Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 311. I'm your host, Chris Zondler, joined as always by my co-host, David Biggs and Span and Biggs. This week is one of the most anticipated episodes of Between the Sheets we've ever done, I would say. Yeah, the people demanded it for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, who knew? Who, who knew that uh, Dude Love would be such a, uh explosive uh, subject to talk about some 24 years later on Between the Sheets, the debut of Dude Love, and the fact that a certain person was wanting to talk about that debut of Dude Love. And we had a groundswell on social media, hashtags, all this other stuff. And uh, yes, thank you, Joe Sposto. He says sarcastically. (laughs) So, yeah, it it was an interesting uh, couple weeks there. But in all honesty, um, we let that thing play out. (laughs) (laughs) We had we had we had it uh, marked down for probably about two weeks before we uh, officially announced it. But, you know, hey, we're going to leave, leave y'all hanging. <laughs> That's just the way it is. We got we got to make it interesting. So we've, the time has come, and we are joined by uh, one of the hosts of Pod Van Dam and uh, a very popular man in some, uh, some areas of the wrestling internet, although John Thorne may disagree with that. We are joined by Ed Cody. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. You say that I'm, I'm very popular with some circles, and I found out this week I'm very unpopular with other circles, like Liv Morgan, uh, Picture, AV's Twitter. Like, those kinds of people do not like me, I found <laughs> out this week. Well, you know, the WWE women uh, stand Twitter is uh, it's quite the place, you know. Um, they, people can get the ire of them very easily. So uh, you're not the only one that's uh, gone through something like that. So you're not alone. Yeah, the Sasha Banks AVs are uh, are brutal. Well, especially after the last two weeks. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this it's been some conflicting feelings for some of them. But well, for, I should say for those of you who are listening to this in like 2037 or whatever, that's because uh, it's it's recent been recently that uh, Sasha Banks has been uh, liking a concerning amount of anti-vaccine conspiracy posts on Instagram. Because it's adorable that you think we're going to make it to 2037. <laughs> oh, you mean as opposed to it's all being boiled alive? Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to happen before that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, get going with this show. Now, the request was for the debut of Dude Love in 1997, which took place on July 14th, which coincidentally is the first day of our week. Well, looking at the archives of Between the Sheets, we did show 210 starting on July 24th of 1997. So this show got extended out to become a 10-day show, which means we have two weeks of Monday night television to talk about. L- luckily for us, one of those Monday nights became a Tuesday night for one of the shows, which we'll talk about later on. But still, 
a bigger show than we would normally have. But anyway, for 1997 at least, yes. And yeah, it is what it is, and ECW helped uh, contribute to this as well. But uh, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, let's go to the week plus or week and a half actually. That was July 14th through July 23rd, 1997. And we begin with the World Wrestling Federation and Dave Meltzer. World Wrestling Federation confirmed last week the story mentioned in last week's Observer that starting in September, they will no longer be taping Raw live every Monday night. In addition, the in-your-house concept has been dropped effect immediately, and WF will go to monthly, nearly three long hour-long shows, all with a $29.95 price tag. The change will be effective with the September 7th pay-per-view in Louisville. The new television format effective September 8th will consist of TV tapings on alternate Mondays and Tuesdays. For example, the September 8th live for all from Cincinnati would be done exactly as in previous weeks with shotgun taping for the 13th and a live raw shoot. However, instead of taping on the 15th, that raw show and the September 20th shotgun show would be taped on September 9th. Site hasn't been finalized for this show as a press time. And it would continue that way with the tapings on September 22nd and 23rd, no taping on the 29th, and tapings on October 6th and 7th. Raw will be continuing in its two-hour format, but then about one hour from 9 to 11 p.m. on the USA Network starting on August the 4th. The reason for the change in WF Live every Monday format was largely budgetary cost-cutting. WF has been trying to cut back on expenses both in running live every week and also in transportation, which, depending upon where the taping is held, can run from 15000 to 30000 per week. Because the Tuesday shows would be booked in arenas within driving distance of the Monday shows. It would cut flight expenses for personnel and already on the tour, doing house shows in half with a new format. There are numerous signs of late that WF has taken the financial situation very seriously. For example, the July 21st show in Halifax, Nova Scotia, there are many regulars who always brought the raw tapings who weren't flown in as a cost-saving measure, and lots of regular wrestlers were featured instead in tape segments rather than brought in to do live material. Those who were flown in, and they believe this is a clue, Vince McMahon himself, were brought in on Saturday as opposed to Sunday to get the benefit of the cost savings of a Saturday stayover flight. The Friday through Monday road schedule WF has been following the past several months since the move to live weekly two-hour raw tapings has been overhauled. There's no set guidelines as to how the schedule will be done. The feeling is that because of the time and expense of flying wrestlers to and from their homes, that doesn't make sense either economically or for the stress level of the wrestlers themselves to fly wrestlers home and back for just a two-day break. So for the weeks where tapings will be on Mondays and Tuesdays, either they will have Wednesday and Thursday house shows, making it a 10-day run, or they'll cancel Friday house shows and the wrestlers will have Wednesday through Friday off and return on Saturday, they continue to tour with Mondays. There will be situations where Doyle will be running a live house show on Monday night going head-to-head with this tape Raw show on USA. A lot of people talk about these changes as like throwing a t- in the towel in the highly and largely over-publicized Monday night ratings war. Ironically, coming during the same week when the group drew its best rating in more than a year. The change is, in a sense, an admission that it wasn't the fact WCW was live every week, and WF wasn't, as to why WCW was drawing significantly better ratings each week. WF, up until this past week, didn't make a significant difference in the ratings being live every week, nor could it cut a significant amount into WCW's weekly margin of victory, despite offering a largely better product than it even had a few months back, and spent a lot more money to do so. As mentioned here many times in the past, when Raw was taped three out of every four weeks, there was no significant difference in the ratings of the live show as compared with that of the tape shows. Theoretically, because word travels faster in wrestling now than ever before, 
there'll be more people than ever before are aware of much of what will occur on the tape shows before they happen. But there is no evidence that anywhere close enough people know it, or if they do make it enough, makes enough of a difference to have any kind of measurable effect on the ratings. All right, Bix, we'll stop here before we get into the pay-per-views. Um, yeah, you know, people may not remember this, but yeah, WF did go live every Monday night um, for a while here. They got off the tape shows when in 96. I'm thinking because, okay, Brett reuniting with Owen and Davey was a taped show, so it went in, would have been April at the earliest. So, regardless, this has only lasted a few months. So, 97, not 96, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Dave's right. It doesn't make that much of a difference as far as ratings goes. I mean, it it, it probably makes a difference in, in maybe some fans' minds on what they will and won't watch because they know what's coming with uh, internet fans and stuff like that. But all in all, it wasn't enough to warrant those extra costs at a time when they're not doing the business that they have been doing. Because you agree with that. I think so. Uh, I'm trying to think back to when... I mean, did they ever really feel indistinguishable? Like, to the average person, I think they usually did, right? Hence the, you know, the, there being no real ratings disparity, and if anything, the tape show's doing better. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you this. Um, more often than not... In this era, and and from then on, there really is no difference because they they've dressed the buildings up where the buildings pretty much all look the same. Now they got that big set. Once they start using the big sets, the buildings don't have. Right, the, we're not seeing the Fernwood sign for six weeks in a row. Well, we're not seeing that just the different looks of the buildings, so to speak, because you're not you're not getting that full shot of the building as you would get. In all the years earlier, you know? Once they changed formats to the whole Raw is War thing, and they had the stage and the set, aside from those, you know, the few shows, like the Lowell one, where, they, where they're in a smaller building again later in the year, you know, or other outliers, the only real change you get, and, you, and, you know, other things like that, where they're in a smaller building for whatever reason that can't fit the whole set, it's either that that's an occasional change, or... In this era, you know, the first year or so of this, you might have the hard cam facing the quote-unquote wrong direction. You know, as far as where the ramp and stage and everything are. So other than that, yeah, you can't really tell them apart, which probably would have been more of a benefit when every, when not every, but when 75% of the shows were taped. But here, it certainly camouflages things better. Yeah, now, Ed, going to you... Um... Dave talks about uh, this is finally an admission that running live to tape wasn't the reason why they were getting their asses kicked every week. Um, no, they, they've, it's gotten better at this point in time, but still, WCW is kicking their ass. So, what are your thoughts on all this? Why I don't understand why they would think it the problem would have been live to tape in general at all because the internet. I mean, it was around, but it wasn't what it is now. You know what I mean? I'll tell you why. They don't want to blame their creative failures 
Well, that's still let's the find, problem. Let's find, let's find another straw man, you know? Yeah. I mean, as far as it, like, going live to tape or anything, uh, this is, like, the first Raw that I caught where I was like, I'm a Raw watcher now, and I'm going to watch this from now on. And I never even knew that they were taped until SmackDown when I found out they taped SmackDown on Tuesdays, and that's when they used to do Raw. Like, that's the only time I ever figured it out. Like, I had no idea forever that Raw wasn't live every Monday. But I was yeah. like 10, so. You were 10 in 97? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the normal wrestling fans wouldn't know. And, hell, didn't care. You know, God knows, you know, when we were younger, when I was 10, um, and watching WF television and, and all that stuff, they, you know, they, you know, try to make it seem like it was live. Whenever, I mean, whenever they had superstars in Wrestling Challenge, I knew that they were not in the same city for three straight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because they, they, they would always have at the start of the show, the city they were in had the building director and all this other stuff talking up, and they do it every week, and it's in that three three week of tapings, you know? I mean, so, and you know that, especially if it's something airs on Saturday morning or even Sunday morning, uh, they're not doing their show at nine o'clock in the morning and there's packed house of people. I mean, come on. So by the tape, there is no difference. So yeah, whatever. So, but it, it is a thing they had to do for, for many reasons. Now let's talk about the pay-per-view situation. Their decision to drop the two hour in your house concept to reduce price pay per view comes on the heels of WCW successfully running monthly nearly three hour long pay per view shows this year at twenty seven ninety five and not showing any effects of the price tag cutting down on buys. Both groups for average shows seem to hover between a point five and a point six five buy rate. But WCW this year is substantially ahead in pay per view revenue because of a charging of a higher price in every show. Now we bet WF charging the higher price as it had been up to the past year. To keep WrestleMania in its position, a special event, that show would be priced at $34.95. 95 WrestleMania, which is some of a major sport, was priced at $34.95, and there are many who blame the price tag as the reason the show didn't come close to earlier projections. <laughs> Obviously, they believe it as well, and, and cut the media price back to $29.95 the past two years. However, there, there's an economic indication this year that the wrestling audience is far more willing to spend more money to see what they perceive as a premium event, and all Ford's entertainment are charging more for tickets than a few years ago. In a sense, this will remove the specialness of the other four of the formerly big five shows of the year, Rumble, King of the Ring, SummerSlam, and Survivor Series. So, so all the shows would be marketed more as equals to the other monthly events. However, WCW has been running this year in similar circumstances while passing WWF as the industry pay-per-view later. While the future USC-type events for 1998 doesn't look positive, one would expect added competition to release three CW events on pay-per-view and several WCW-sponsored Lucha Libre events. Well, and that's something. <laughs> in fact, within wrestling, there is now the theory that up to a certain point, not only is price inelastic in wrestling, but that higher ticket price may actually encourage buy rates. Zane Breslov, who promotes most of the house shows for WCW, which has recently increased this price across the board to a significant degree, and at the same time has shown a significant increase in attendance while doing so, June was their single biggest one for arena attendance in the history of the company, has noted that particularly in the major markets, selling tickets at $35 is easy. And they're generally snatched up the first day. But it's very difficult to sell tickets at $10 to $12. He believes there's a psychological deal where people will take dates or go out with buddies for high-priced tickets, 
but won't do so when tickets are cheap because they somehow see that as a sign of seeing a mildly inter- level entertainment product or being part of the peanut gallery. A similar but opposite situation that gives the same message in wrestling took place in 1992 when Kit Fry was in charge of WCW. To make himself fan-friendly, one of his first moves was to decrease prices during the arena shows. The end result of that was an actual decrease in live attendance, not an increase. It must be noted that pro wrestling, when it comes to drawing mainstream fans to competition with other sports and entertainment events, and for all the talk, $35 is too much for a family afforded by tickets. The fact is the tickets are still far cheaper than events like pro football, the NHL, the NBA, and other major league sports events that routinely sell their shows in most markets. All right, Ed, I don't want to shoot it to you. Um, all right, so you're 10 here. Yeah. So, obviously, you're not buying pay-per-views with your own money. No. Uh, how was it asking your parents to uh, shell out the bucks for pay-per-view uh, at the time that you were trying to get get, get them? Uh, that was never going to happen. They would have never in a million years uh, bought me a WWF pay-per-view. I was lucky that my next-door neighbor uh, had like older parents that were retired, and they had a lot of money, and he just bought them all, and I would go over there. Well, there you go. Hey, that worked out then, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So this increase in money had no effect on you personally at all. None. I didn't even have a concept of money really at this point. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Bix, um, it's interesting to to note that, you know, the concept of increasing ticket prices actually brought an increase in attendance. A lot of that has to do with how hot the promotion is at the time. It's not just the fact that, you know, they raising the ticket prices. It's that people want to go see this event. And in normal cases, when there's a demand for something like that, then the rates will go up. And if you go to the real sports events, let's say a team wins a championship or has a great year, more often than not, they're going to raise their ticket prices next year because they know people will want to come see the team. And it happens a lot. And yes, there's complaining, of course, from people. But more often than not, the attendance is either the same or gets better. So... What are your thoughts on all this? Well, here's the thing. We have 24 years of hindsight. And we know that what happened here was that fans suddenly started seeing the monthly, you know, non-Big Five shows as more important and started buying them more often. And it was a big windfall for the company. Should there have been monthly shows? Probably not. But... If people are willing to pay for it, then it's it, you know it's totally understandable why you you run it. You know, give the people what they want. Um, do we need do we need it now? Pro- no, probably not. Still, we haven't needed it for years, I don't think. But it's what it is. Um, and the in your house thing, it was a great concept, and you know. It was a cool thing to do, but once WCW changed the game, they had no other choice, no other recourse but to follow along and uh, go with every show being the same show except WrestleMania. And isn't it funny reading about how thirty four ninety five was like this huge, you know, problem in nineteen ninety five? Well, you know what though, <laughs> if you really look at things, I feel like. That's the first time where things start to feel a little expensive. If it's a one-off, it's one thing. But 
all of the big five and you know or even all 12 pay-per-views being 34.95 i feel like that's the beginning of it like it was one thing to go from 20 to 25 and then 25 to 30 but once you really started going beyond that was pushing it more so i can see why people felt that way at the you know especially at the time i don't think that's completely unreasonable is looking in hindsight uh boy if they only knew what was coming well, yeah, that is. You know, especially like in boxing pay-per-views and USC pay-per-views and stuff like that, you know, how much they cost. You know what the best part of the UFC thing, though, is that every or close to every time they've done a price hike the last several years, they start by pretending they're only doing it for one card that has a higher paid crew of fighters. You know, like a three-title fight card or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they just keep it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't change. I believe like, there it's what it's sixty nine ninety five plus uh plus the ESPN plus subscription now, I think. Which is going up. We just announced today as we record this, or hiking that up, so uh it's so thirty four ninety five and nineteen ninety five is sixty one dollars seventy three cents in, in today's money. So there you go. What was what was WrestleMania on regular pay per view this year? Oh, you think either of us know that? <laughs> Asking, I don't know. Uh, you would, I would have thought, because it's you. No, I mean, Brandon might know. <laughs> Wasn't it like 80, 80 for HD or something like that? It sounds about it right. It wouldn't so. shock me, no. Or at least 70. That, well, for the combo of the two nights, you mean? Uh, No. <laughs> No, DirecTV. I, oh no, no, no! I think that would that I believe was a mistake. I don't think it was supposed to be eighty per night. Well, but I, I remember reading that that had happened though. Yeah. But anyway, all right. Uh, Raw on July fourteenth in San Antonio, Texas, drew seven thousand seven hundred thirty-one, paying one hundred sixteen one seventy-eight, beating up March the tenth in Worcester, Mass, for the largest gate in U.S. dollars for a Raw taping in history. So even when they're having major problems, they're, they're making gates at these Raw tapings. But that's not kind of fair because Raw didn't get into the bigger buildings on a regular basis until like 96. <laughs> so I mean, Really, it's 97. They're not doing it regularly as far as, you know, NBA and NHL size sheds until early 97. Yeah, so it's it's kind of one of those stats that, yeah, it looks good, but anyway. But still, uh, who knows how many TV tapings in general they've gotten a hundred-plus thousand dollar gate on ever by this point. Yeah. So All there's right, Mer- that, and also I'm sure, I'm sure they do drew it because the, cr- the crowd, the fans in San Antonio, bleh, San Antonio, I don't know why I got tongue-tied there, were anticipating they do love Angle, clearly. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Not that their hometown hero was uh was in a big thing at the time. Merchandising <laughs> was fifty thousand dollars at six forty six ahead. So there's that. They opened the show with a Heart Foundation interview. They announced for SummerSlam if Brett doesn't mean Undertaker for the title, then he can never wrestle in the United States again. If Bulldog loses against Shamrock, he can't see the can If Pillman loses the gold does, he has to wrestle the next line on Raw in a dress. And if Austin doesn't beat Owen, he has to kiss his ass in the ring. And if any member of the Hart Foundation loses at all, Jim Neinhardt gets his famous goatee shade on live television next night. That's a pathetic attempt to build ratings. Well, let's see. Uh, 
Actually, so do you, do any of them other than Pillman and Owen? Well, I forget. What is the actual finish on Bulldog Shamrock? Because I know the others. Uh, Shamrock snaps. But so Shamrock loses by DQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, we know the whole story. One of the reasons they wanted to insanely think, you know, have Austin try to pin Owen after he got hurt was because of the stipulation. I don't know if that's the reason or what, because that was still the planned finish. Had they intended on delivering on the Nightheart thing at all? They weren't going to do it. You know that. <laughs> of course not. So also, though, I forget, when is Nightheart's little vacation because Falcon Coparis is send- sending legal letters to Titan Towers <laughs> about his alleged exclusive uh, UCW contract? Uh, I don't remember him being gone that long. It's sometime in 97, but I don't remember if it's before this or after this. I think it's after this. So is he, he... I'm not sure if he's at SummerSlam. He might actually be off TV. Yeah, I don't remember him being around after SummerSlam because I don't remember even thinking about the goatee thing. Um, I'm pretty sure he was gone for a couple weeks and then he does like a return. Right. Uh, let's see. Alright, so I'm looking now. He's on this show. Oh! <laughs> he doesn't come back until August. Oh, maybe not. Hold on. Let me keep going here. Because remember, uh, SummerSlam's early that year. He's gone for two months. He doesn't come back until the Garden Show on September 22nd. After this show. After this show. Yep. Oh, so he's go. not even in Halifax. Yep. There, there's your, there you go. Two month. Depart. Okay, so that's the reason that they don't live up to this is because he can't legally be on TV. So, so that that's that's understandable. Yeah. So that's why they didn't honor that stipulation. <laughs> we can give them a mulligan on that one, I think. So Austin came out and Shamrock, the Patriot, called by my man Del Wills, the Patriot, Sid and Shawn Michaels all came out and had a big stare down in the ring. So there you go. Ivan and Scott Putsky beat Jerry Lawler and Brian Christopher in 458 when Ivan pinned Lawler with a Polish hammer. It wasn't bad due to Christopher and Scott, who didn't look bad either. Ivan 56 didn't look any worse in the ring than he did during his heyday when he was one of the worst workers in the business but was a major star. Physically, obviously, at his age, he looked nothing like the Mr. America-level competition bodybuilder he was even into his 40s. Ivan just hot tag for the finish, and that was that. And what was it like seeing old man Ivan Putsky in here uh, with with, uh, these guys? I, I just don't understand what like i didn't get what was happening at all uh, i i didn't know who ivan putsky was at the time and now looking back on it 56 uh he could be a main event in raw <laughs> like he's right at that prime money earning age <laughs> Man, well i mean it's funny to look at that you know how how different time time is to the, the guys that were around in the 80s then to what guys that have been around forever now. I mean, he his last WF run, he would his last matches would have been like 87, so he's 10 years. It'd been 10 years since he's been really been in WF ring. And now, in 2021, that means the guy had been gone since 2011. Jeez. So we look, we look at guys like that, though, as, like, oh, he's, he's back, you know? It also goes to the fact that people have aged different now. You know, I mean, people don't look. Uh, well, how people, old is but, he? Look old. Here? 
How old is who? Ivan at this time. 57. He looked really good for 57. <laughs> yeah. He aged in the face some, but he looked he looked great he was, for his well, age. Well, I mean, he, he, was, he wasn't bulky anymore. The muscle wasn't like it was. Oh, no, he's 56 here. Well, Dave's at 57. Either way. Yeah. But, I mean, he, yeah, it's not... It's just, but, but again, the way we looked at people like him is different the way people now look at people like him. Why would they waste this in San Antonio? Wasn't... Well, he like Ivan, no, he's a Texas guy. Ivan was a big star in San Antonio. Was he? Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, yeah. He would he would work uh, Southwest in between WF stints. He was a he was a ta- world tag champion there were Wahoo in eighty one. Yeah, he was a big deal in San Antonio, and his son Scott was a a, a famous high school football player in the late eighties. Played uh, TCU, played there. Um, so yeah, I mean he was a big deal in Texas. Ivan was absolutely so. Yeah. Now as far as Scott. I actually think he acquits himself pretty well in this WWF run. Especially until, to, until he breaks his leg. But I, I, I keep forgetting, does he break his leg or blow out his knee? I thought he blows out his knee. Either way, I watched that not that long ago, and it was, you know, nasty. Well, I, we watched the clip on here, and you could see, yeah. you could see like stuff bunching up in his leg. But I wonder if it's the injury, because he had never been that good. And he's working with really good opponents, but I don't feel like we ever saw what we saw out of him in the Christopher stuff and the Al Snow match and all that anywhere else before or after, do you? Not really. But he gets a knee injury and then he he might have actually put on more size when he went to WCW. And then this being the feud where Jerry and Brian are linked together and that's, that's where that all really starts up and... Jerry's kid and that whole thing, yeah. Yeah. All right, Paul Bear announced next week he'll prove that Kane is alive. Apparently, WF has gone to a Hollywood studio at great expense and have a mask made that looks like a real-life burn victim to the point <laughs> it's supposed to even like a mask. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I can buy the... Well, no, wait a second. If that was ever the plan... I guess Glenn Jacobs is always going to make sense physically, but isn't one of the reasons they went with Glenn Jacobs, besides that he was a big guy already in their system, that he had experience doing exactly what they wanted for Kane as Doomsday and stuff? He was Doomsday in Memphis. Well, and he goes back, and well, well, he he went back as Doomsday to prepare for Kane. So yeah, wait a second. This story can't be true because he's already preparing to be Kane. Under a mask. Yes. So, do I think it's possible they were working with an effects studio for the eventual unmasking? Or at least talking to one? Maybe. But if they were actually talking to a real effects studio, then uh, I think we'd probably get a much uh, better looking unmasking five, six years later. I'm willing to bet they probably... Well, I'm willing to bet that they probably thought that this wasn't going to be... A bit as big as it would become, and oh, that's had, a good point because they had they had a mask ready for when it was time for you know the him to get a mask. Right, the plan. Probably, well, the plan was for Kane to pretty much just be Undertaker's WrestleMania program originally. Yeah, exactly. So they probably were getting that set up to you know have 
had that for you know when it's time to take the mask off. So did they just lose it in the intervening years? Yeah, and well, they man. found it for WrestleMania for Crispy Fiend. <laughs> well, or maybe they just they maybe they just never got it complete completed. Who knows? It's like, well, we're not going to complete it now. We don't need to worry about it. Has so. it ever been reported or anything if it was Bray or WWE that paid for all the Tom Savini Fiend stuff? I had to be I I had to be Bray. He seems like that kind of level of dork. You know it what I mean? Does and also, I I I don't see anyone convincing this era WWE to pay for that. Except Tommy End, maybe because he had a really close relationship with Vince. Oh, we oh, loved all of his ideas. Absolutely. <laughs> and Dave uh, Dave said, still figured Glenn Jacobs is the best bet for this role. We'll we'll have more on that later. All right. Oh, gee, I wonder what made you think that. (laughs) Well, like I said, we'll have more on that later. Takamichi Naku pin Yoshio Tajiri, or the dyslexic version of his name, as he was called by everyone all night, Tajiri Yoshihiro. Which it also says on the network chapter marks, too. Well, that's what he's called when he's announced in the ring in Japan. Okay, okay, so is this bruce pritchard or someone not knowing that's how names work and just assuming well the announcer says so. taka mishinoku it's bruce pritchard so whose whose fault would this be then to not call him yashihiro tajiri i don't know because they i mean it's not like these guys hadn't worked with japanese wrestlers before <laughs> you know i mean yeah i'm also i'm also genuinely curious to hear from people it, do they consider is it considered disrespectful at all if you're an English speaker to not refer to a Japanese person last name first? Or cuz I I don't know cuz I, I I'm thrown by how with the Chinese fighters cuz they have the same convention UFC, UFC has switched to doing last name first for fighters from China at least, but I don't think they have for Japan or anywhere else that does that. But yeah, I feel like I've generally never heard a it's Japanese an, wrestler make, make an issue with that. That's what I'm saying. Like, I've never seen it be the expectation outside of the native country and the native language, pretty much. Yeah. So, I don't know how this would get crossed up, especially since the fact that it happened. You would think it would have happened more in wrestling, but it really didn't. And and the thing is, is you know the non-Japanese wrestlers in Japan always announce first name first. That's a good. That's a good point. The only Japanese wrestlers who are announced first name first is if it's a explicit gimmick name or nickname, basically. Yeah. All right. Uh, to Taka won a four ten with the Michinoku Driver two. WF was going to make a major play to sign Taka up to a full time contract because how impressive he looked last week. He aimed at a short video showing highlights of his first two matches. It's a good high-flying move. It was a little disappointing against Tajiri, who was announced as being from Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Although late, he's been working for CML in Mexico. Didn't seem comfortable with a large WF ring and was off by a few things. They had a hell of a match while it lasted, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Taka, Taka definitely impressed. And uh, Ed, what's a 10-year-old kid like you thinking watching a guy like Taka fly around the ring? I thought Taco was like the dopest thing. Like I, I think that might be the first like smarky thing I've ever like. I remember in like '98 when he's with Bradshaw and they turned him heel. And I remember getting really mad about it, but not like from a, a character standpoint of just like, oh man, I just wish they would do more with Taka. Like 
that whole light heavyweight division I was super into, and they just never gave a shit. Which, yeah, they want it's, it's one of those things that they they wanted to be involved because WCW was doing the cruiserweights, and they wouldn't have their version of it, but they didn't know how to do it. So, yeah, and it had that problems years later too. They did, but it wasn't it wasn't as bad as this one. This because this one. It's like someone had went to Jim Ross's office and got a Rolodex that just said short dudes. <laughs> Pretty much. Although some of them, like Flesh Flanagan, aren't even short. Yeah. <laughs> or or uh, Devin Storm, too. Yeah. They're short by, I guess, by 1997 WWF standards, but in the real world, those are both very tall men. Mm-hmm. Miguel Perez Jr. and Jose Estrada Jr. teamed up to beat the Headbangers at 425 when Miguel pinned Thrasher with a, by the reversing a powerbomb into a cradle. Yeah, wait a Thrasher. second. Why isn't Miguel Perez Jr. in the light heavyweight division? I guess because he's so hairy. Thrasher looked real bad, so it was a bad match. Afterwards, Savio Vega and Jesus hit the ring, and DOA showed up to a big pop. Besides Crush, the other DOA members are Chains, Brian Lee Harris, Skull and 8-Ball, Ronda Don Harris. And the Barricos, of course, are Jose Manuel Estrada, who is actually not Jose Jr. because Jose Sr.'s real name is Carlos Jose Estrada. Jesus Daniel Castillo, Huracan Castillo Jr., Jose Miguel Perez Jr., and Juan Manuel Rivera, Sabia Vega. More on them in a minute. Patriot did a Bayface interview doing the Patriot gimmick. Shawn Michaels did an interview begging Vincent Man to be part of the SummerSlam show so he can see Undertaker beat Bret Hart and send him back. Michaels didn't appear to even have a semblance of a knee injury. And apparently, there was no cartwheels in a commercial break. What an asshole. <laughs> There's still no hint of it went in exactly the return, but everyone backstage took it as if Michaels was back. Michaels is on the WS sponsored Wrestle Vessel cruise this week, as is much of Bret Hart's family. Oh, that's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, we'll have more on that later, too. Of course, Sean's going to show his ass in his hometown. So, there you go. Alright, so the second hour of Raw began with Salvio Vega said there was a problem in the back and they took the cameras to an adjacent parking lot where uh, Jesus Castillo was destroying a motorcycle. Let's uh, go to this, shall we? This is a uh, great moment here of Raw. Something that Bix will definitely enjoy as we watch this. <laughs> oh, we're doing sure. this one. Okay, I didn't realize we were. Yeah, we're going to do this one. Okay, so wait a second. On, so on the network, this is Salvio Vega addresses an accident backstage. Yes. <laughs> I'll say, yes. That's one way to put that. Uh, all right, let's see. What just happened with the network? Did it go to the right spot? Oh, my God! Hey, Jason! Hey! Hey! Oh, my God! <laughs> that was a different sign. I'm actually curious to see what it said. All of what it said. Well, let's see. So the uh, sign says, "Oh wow, Owen, Owen Hart, Jerry Lawler, the three-letter F-word Foundation, the FAG Foundation." Yeah, they're not even a tag team. San Antonio, everybody. <laughs> All right, back to the nineteen ninety-seven. Wait, why Owen and Lawler? Yeah, right. That's Lawler hasn't been programmed was- with Brett for two years. I guess he was creating his own foundation. They were the, the two members. But why not someone else that's in the actual Heart Foundation? Maybe just, well, I wonder who it is in the Heart Foundation. Dude, this Besides guy is Jerry, but Jerry really, Lawler isn't. 
He really hates these guys, right? That's, that's all saying. he can really he just hates Owen and Lawler. That's just two two people he hates the most. So, all right, back to the clip. Now, what the hell does that sign say, though? Stone Cold kicks ass, man ass. Uh, who knows? Oh, some of that's clearly cut off. Catches a cameraman. Come on, something's terrible Look at how terrible that stage is before they knew how to light it or decorate it, by the way, and how dark it is. Something horrible has happened, according to Savio Vega. And we will try and get a camera back there. Wait, are there two different people with that Let's Get Infinitely Stupid sign? We'll bring you those pictures of whatever it is. And, and we're still wondering uh, whatever is going to happen with Steve Austin. Who is Steve Austin's partner going to be tonight? It could be Shawn Michaels. It could be uh, Psycho Sid. It could be anybody. It could be somebody brand new, too. It certainly could. It's not going to be Ken Shamrock who's going to knuckle up with Jim the Anvil Neidhart. And that is going to be a tremendous matchup right there. Absolutely. It's going to be tough. And plus, maybe- oh, it is the same. No, it's the same. It's the same. It's right behind it now. That, Next to a woman who's trying to rock her baby to sleep. Uh, here we go. Somebody could get her. I mean, I don't know. Come, please. Come. I'll show the cameraman will help. Come this on, please. Live. Come on. They're in an airplane hangar? We're in a central time know. zone. Was, you know, they lied. It's a terrible accident. Look at this. It's a terrible accident that happened. It's one accident. No. Three. Oh, number four is over there. Come on, come on. No. That might just run. That might just run. I don't know what happened. I was driving. I got my license, you know. I could, oh, you said it in your head? Wait a minute. Oh, here we go. Yes, why not brain Brian Lee with a trash can 60 feet from the camera? <laughs> hey, Bill Perez didn't even sell that trash can shot. Hey, WF agents are out there. We got Patterson, Briscoe, Daria, Hedman, all had the hanger. And here goes Dragon the Motorcycle. It's that one car alarm that everyone used to have. Yeah. Do you think the Harris brothers are getting paid at this point, or are they paying the WWF for getting to live out their dreams? <laughs> like, they're like, my angle is I get to be a biker and racist? Sign me up. <laughs> oh, they were in love with this this uh, this storyline. My God. Goddamn, pal, what's this race war I keep hearing about? <laughs> Uh, that was Stormfront dot. What's a dot com? <laughs> Dave said, uh, who would believe by giving them bikes that guys like Crush, the Grim Twins, and Brian Lee would be so over? Oh, yeah, and that's they right. Over. They were less the Grim Twins before this. And they were over. Fans, you know, when they came out, fans loved that entrance on the motorcycles. Absolutely. So, there you go. Those big Titan motorcycles. <laughs> yeah. 
Can Shamrock beat Jim Neidhart in 441 with a choke out of nowhere in a terrible match? Let's face it, if Neidhart can't even have a possible match with Austin, how can he be expected to have one with Shamrock? Neidhart and Bulldog were beating on Shamrock after the match. The Patriot made to say, again, both men, hey, Bulldog else a drop, which will be likely his finish the maneuver. Uncle Slam. LOD went to the ring with the Blackjacks, but were jumped by the Godwins, and Henry gave the slop drop to Hawk on the ramp. Hawk came up bloody on the back of his head. They announced Hawk was sent to a hospital, but they believed that was a work. I just realized we missed something very important because it's not mentioned in the description. The Patriots debut. This is his debut? I guess it is. <laughs> well, he got overshadowed by the bigger one. Yeah. Because Dave doesn't really Dave doesn't make a big deal about being his debut. It is, though. I remember the whole thing is like, oh, there's Sean, there's Sid, there's Austin. There's the Patriot. <laughs> yeah, Vince called Del Wilkes the Patriot. Let, let's play this real quick. I'm, I'm gonna, just going to go up to when... Oh, Shamrock's there, too. When Austin is confronting uh, the Hart Foundation, and then his reinforcements show up. Uh, that Right when I was about to queue it up is when the network decided to do one of its things. Hold on. Let's fix that. Ay, ay, ay. All right, give me one second, man, <laughs> for a second. Um. Oh wait, here we go. I think we're in. The, I'm in just about the right spot. Anyway. All right, so they're playing the flip. What are they playing the national anthem with this? I forget. No, they're playing Austin. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. But with an American flag, Titantron thing, and he's gesturing to the Hard Foundation. Now he his reinforcements come out, and this is how the show opened. Was. This ending the Heart Foundation promo segment. I have no idea what's up with the mix on the commentary, by the way. So Wilson's finally made his way to the WWF. <laughs> That's what Vince said. Man, you got to think how deflating it is when you're like, what's your idea for my debut? And Vince is just like, I don't know. You just fucking walk out or something, dude. I don't know. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, it's so well. going to go well. <laughs> Let me, yeah, your mask guy, I'm going to give you a shoot name and uh, say, oh, Del Wilson, he's finally here. <laughs> Goddamn, pal. You see how Luger turned on Hogan two years ago? Mm-hmm. Let's do that, but with your debut. <laughs> well, keep it going, because we have more. And you're seeing it out of nowhere. And we're still not done. We got one more. Ah! <laughs> 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 
God, Vince loves him, man. Songs are my favorite song, like the fire. Sarah. Oh, the backwards cap and the casual. The khaki shorts. Look at how well dressed Sid is, too. <laughs> oh, God, no. Sid's the best dressed man on stage. Sean's just like he's about to uh, go play uh, a round of 18 somewhere. <laughs> so, am, am I reading this wrong? Or is the reason the audio is so wonky pretty much just because of how the crowd is reacting to this segment? Yeah, pretty much. Like, they went nuts Sean walked out. But the, I loved this at it's the time. Here. Now, Sid doesn't end up doing anything because the car accident's right after this, right? Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, oh, we've got that some. this week, too. Okay. Oh, God, yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, but, we, got, we, got, we got the reason why it, 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 he's not there anymore after this, but that way. Well, yes, but it was, it was a great way to completely distract people from the dude love thing, which if you really think about it, is what has made the most storyline sense coming out of the last several weeks is that, okay, if man, if you won't let Mankind be your tag team partner, what about this dude love character? Or to do a Cactus Jack thing, one or the other. Yeah. Here, they give you all of these potential alternatives. Maybe Sean's just back and teaming with him again, and it's effectively a tag title defense. Maybe it's the Patriot. Maybe it's the returning Sid Vicious. Maybe it's Ken Shamrock, who's only been here a few months. It just, it works. And it, it's it's a good distraction from what the obvious storyline had been. Yeah. Alright, so, anyway. Where were we at? Okay, oh, and so also, it's very obvious that Del Wilkes can't lift heavy here because of the arm injury. Yeah. Because he does not look as uh, yoked as you remember the Patriot looking. Yeah. All right, so Vader beat Flash Funk with a powerbomb at 411. Good match. And then we get Austin against Owen and Bulldog for the tag titles. Um, no, all those partners out there, no part. But wait a minute, we got one thing we need to play first that we didn't play. Oh, that's right, yes. Because it wasn't mentioned in the notes. <laughs> the Man interviews Mankind uh, earlier in the show, so uh, let's go to that as we give a prelude to the main event. It's before the new Blackjack's LOD thing, after after Nightheart Shamrock, yes. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, and joining us once again, Mankind, and uh, I wonder, Mr. Mankind, are you going to make good on your... Mr. Mankind. ...that you made last week? Mankind? I know he can hear us. I know he can. Mr. Rotundo. He's not going to speak to us. Let's take you back and show you just how Mankind was campaigning to be Austin's partner next week. Or last week, rather. Here we go. It was Austin's... So, I'm, I like how they shot it with his face obscured and stuff. Even though it's not like he needs to do a big transformation to be dude love. And I feel like they're trying to, trying to just kind of... How do I put this? Make him a little more mysterious so that it lands more when we see him as dude love, I guess? Yeah. Alright. Give me a second, I gotta queue it up to the right spot first. There's no Dude Love makes his entrance chapter mark on the award winning WWE network. So yeah, they Disrespect. were ha- Yeah, they were having a good match and they announced the partner will show up after the commercial break. Well we come back from the break and we have the partner show up. Austin coming away. 
at the British Bulldog who has gained legendary status in the oh, Watch this. Referee diverted. Owen Hart along with Stone Cold. A pair of boots. That's him. We'll take this break. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Stay with us. I forgot they did that before the break. We're live, ladies and gentlemen. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Again, Owen Hart. Again, Katie Boy Smith, the British Bulldog. Oh, he almost lost Austin on that belly to belly. Yeah, he did. Apparently, his partner is. Yeah, I'm sure Austin didn't uh, forget That's that. That's all we know. It's a long walk. Stone Cold Steve Austin's partner is. Do I need to skip ahead a little bit, or? Well, I mean, you would have thought that you, the way they set it up, he would be out right after the break. Well, the hallway is really, really long. Okay. Obviously. As we skip forward ten seconds, keep going, going, go. Okay. Oh. I know where to go. Ah, right, here we go. Yeah. So Austin shit cans them both to the floor. Playing to the crowd. Not the hard cam, though. Like you could use a little help, my man. Like maybe a tag team partner. What? What's the matter? Don't you recognize me? Now I don't blame you for not teaming up with that mutilated freak, mankind. But you never said nothing about teaming up with the hippest cat in the land, Steve-O, baby. It's me, dude, love, and I am coming to save the day. Austin's oh, face. Tell the crowd did not expect him to tag him in right away. <laughs> no, and dude is uh, doing his office while wearing his sunglasses, including a headbutt. <laughs> Jack Foley. <laughs> Jack Foley. And here we go. Austin. He wants to tag him back in. Austin's outside. 
Alright, so the match gets going here. Yes. I mean, there's not much left. But Let's just get to the important stuff. To the finish, yes. If the network doesn't vomit, which it looks like it <laughs> might be. This only happens in the web version, by the way. I don't have issues with the apps and all that, but the the web version is still a bit fickle. I don't remember this happening on the old version of the network, though, do you? No. Okay, now i got to skip ahead again. Great. Great. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we do this for you, everybody. All right. So the way they did the ring announcing winners and champions, does that mean this is supposed to be an extension of Michaels and Austin's reign? His dude lo- oh. No, but he didn't say a new. His dude loved Judy Bagwell. No, Owen and Bulldog weren't the champions. They had the belt. No, they didn't. Oh, Austin did? Okay, well, there you go. Oh, Austin uh, came out with the belt. Okay, so... Dude gave him the belt back. That's the Dudettes. Or one of them. Oh, there's the other. clearly does not want to say the name Cactus Jack ever. <laughs> no. Alright, so let's read Dave real quick and then Ed, I'll throw it to you. Uh, talk about how it, it was mankind with a permed hair, no mask, was dude love. Then uh, no worth to do the Muta, Muta gimmick with mankind and dude love, or he'll just be dude love from this point forward. It was entertaining, although dude love today does seem like a character with a lot of longevity, since it was such a spoof of a spoof character from another time period. Like Austin Powers, particularly the women hitting the ring and hugging him after the match. All right, you had the floor, Ed. <laughs> okay, so Dude Love is the entire reason uh, I am still a wrestling fan today because, like, this is the first angle. 
that I've ever watched, like I, I really sunk my teeth into and like got super into. Uh, the summer of 97 is when I started watching wrestling. I would catch bits and pieces of Raw at my friend's house, and uh, I remember the Pick Me Steve sign, and I remember not really liking Stone Cold because I couldn't understand why he was being so mean to this dude that just wanted to be his tag partner when he didn't have one. Um, and, yeah, we watched – I remember this is one of the first – This I think this is the first week that we had cable, so I got to watch a whole episode of Raw, and um, – yeah, then Mankind came out dressed as a hippie, but coming out to disco music for some reason. And and uh, I just, I don't know, I really like tie-dye at the time. Like, I, like a bunch of stuff just all hit for me on, like, every level. And, yeah, I decided at that point that this should be a thing that I should spend a lot of time and money on for the next, like, 24 years. So you did not know the dude backstory then? Um... Kind of, sort of, like, I remember the Jim Ross interview happening, but I don't remember, like, specifics of it. I know definitely in my brain I did not think – I thought it was going to be Mankind. I thought Mankind was just going to come out and, like, Austin was going to have to deal with it. Like, no part of my brain – like, I didn't even know who Cactus Jack was really. So, like, no part of my brain thought that, even though, like, watching it back, that's kind of – I think what they were hinting at is it was going to be Cactus Jack. But, uh, yeah, this just – it completely blew my mind, and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And when I met Mick Foley, I told him this, and he got not – he wasn't happy. I know I don't know what the emotion was, but he was definitely <laughs> – I think he thought I was fucking with him when I was like, dude, love is the entire reason I'm a wrestling fan because, like, his demeanor definitely changed. I wonder why that would be. I don't know. I don't know at all. I know from, like, his books that he wasn't – the big like he makes jokes about dude love all the time, but I don't think it's not like a Black Rain situation. You know what I mean? This isn't like embarrassing. I it's just a silly gimmick he did, but I thought it was like I don't know. It's my favorite Mick Foley gimmick, like still to this day, because it's just so weird and out there. Well, yeah. also the the heel dude love character is really underrated too, even though not 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 around very long. Oh yeah, when he puts his teeth in for heel heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um Bix, I mean obviously the uh, Mick Foley uh transformation nineteen ninety seven is one of the big things that propelled him into uh becoming a major star in that company more than anything else. So uh, what were your thoughts on seeing Do Love here show up? I don't know if it was exactly what I expected. Um the one thing that always rang kind of weird about it to me was that Dude Love the WWF character is not like very much like the Dude Love from Mix Home Videos. Of course not. Like you watch like the type of promo he tries to do on the you know on the you know the loved one thing and then the compare it to the WWF stuff. It's not really the same character, which is fine. But and it felt a little weird that it was like, oh, he's realizing this dream when it's not really the same thing. But it worked. Yeah, it worked. It wasn't going to have a long shelf life. They probably handled it about the right way, which was to give him a few months as dude love, then switch Cactus Jack to being the like main babyface character for him. And then 
setting up the turn and how they handled all that. I mean, all, all told, you know, Royal Rumble ends up being a one-off. Does he have more than like a combined five, six months as dude love? No, it's, it's, yeah, the Madison Square Garden is where it ends. And then the Royal Rumble one off and then, and then not the until heel the heel stuff. turn. And the heel, with the heel turn, it's less than eight weeks because I think it starts in April and the, well, definitely April because it begins with him interrupting the alleged Vince Austin match. And then he's mankind again well before King of the Ring. Yeah, he wasn't around long, and that is part of the reason why those shirts are so fucking expensive, and I'll never own one. <laughs> I only sold them for like four or five months. It's it's something that it, I don't think it needed to be more than anything. I mean, it, this this is something that should have been in a small dosage, you know, because you don't. You don't want to overkill something like this, and and, and having to be do love for an extended period of time would overkill it. You know, it need to be another facet of his story. He's he can be mankind, some he can be Cactus Jack, some he can be do love, some. You know, it didn't need to be an every week thing. You know, I no. guess in hindsight now, no, but as a child, <laughs> I well, was. Did you I did you have the dude love Jack's finger? Well, and she would be oh. clear though that he oh, yeah. it wasn't an every week thing, even while he still dude love. Yeah, he does go back in between mankind for a little bit. Yeah, but still, I mean, it's something that you know didn't have to be a a, a regular thing. So no, I think no. I think they were doing the spot on house shows where like mankind would start and like they'd fight to the back and or dude love would start and they'd fight to the back and he'd come back out as mankind. Yeah. But yeah, you so you did have the dude love Jack's figure. I remember seeing the dude love Jack's figure. It's one of those figures that would hang around the store shelves. <laughs> Sorry to tell you that, Ed. <laughs> no, I had one, and uh, I have one on my wall right now, like mint, mint on card and everything. I only own like two, two action figures, and that's one of them. I mean, it wasn't Doctor Dusty Williams uh, Jack figure on the show. Or Jacqueline, 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 yeah. That. The Doctor Death is still on shelves. Uh, back in my hometown, there's a vintage toy store, and for like I'd say the last two years, every time you go in, there are three Doctor Deaths still on card <laughs> on that shelf. That nobody, nobody wants them. Amazing. That's fantastic. All right, so that's Raw Week One. Now, of course, they uh, had off the air stuff, and we go to the torch for that. Jim Cornette came to the ringside to do some announcement cuts for Shotgun. He taunted and egged on the crowd for a minute. Where we had Scott Pusky beat Nick Golden during a match with Brian Christopher Jerry Lawler in the ringside. They nailed Scott with a chair, then leg dropped the chair over his face. Ivan Pusky was nowhere to be seen. The Godwoods beat Bob Holly and Jesse Jamis in the competitive match. Rockabilly beat Al Jackson. Vince interviewed Brett, Owen, and Bulldog regarding their match to SummerSlam. And that's how the show ended. In the dark main event, Undertaker beat Brett and Austin in a triple threat match to retain the title. It wasn't the typical two-minute dart match made of taping. They were in like 10 minutes. They put in a good, I'll be in a slightly rushed effort. Owen, Bulldog, and Pillman were at ringside. Pillman interfered a lot during the match. Well, one reason probably went long because they're in a central time zone. So they had, you know, they had some time to play with. But the big, big news 
Sid collapsed backstage due to his back problems and was rushed to the hospital. They never showed a close-up of him and showed him in clothes because the auto accident injuries are legit. Oh, it's after. Okay. As opposed to the questionable nature of his previous injuries. And he's dropped a lot of weight and clearly hasn't been able to weight train. He no longer has that Sid look. He is believed to have suffered an anxiety attack and told friends he thought he was having a heart attack. He was taken to the hospital, although no officials wanted to take him to the hospital. But he refused to go, and instead went back to his hotel room, and they had downtown Bruno stay with him to make sure everything was okay. Oh, I'm sure Bruno loved that. <laughs> Sid has lost a ton of weight since he hasn't been able to train due to his back injury, and also from the flu, has no had no appetite. He was getting on the MRI this week with problems with both a pinched nerve in his neck and the bad back, which sometimes causes one of his legs to go numb. The belief right now is that his match with Vader is almost surely off SummerSlam. It hasn't been announced, but Dave believes Gold Dust Appeal will be taken from the free for all and put on the main card in its place. Okay, so is that all from the torch? That's Dave. Oh, that's Dave. Okay. Oh, I see. It's a new paragraph. Okay, I was confused. So that's all one paragraph from Dave? Where he didn't realize he wrote the same things multiple times in the same paragraph? That's <laughs> <laughs> Dave. Doesn't he also contradict himself? Doesn't he say rush to the hospital and then never went to the hospital? <laughs> well, I mean, it's Dave. Look, within a few lines of each other, was rushed to the hospital. Then he wasn't taken to the hospital, although WWE officials wanted to take him to the hospital. <laughs> but he refused to go back and went to his hotel room and Bruno and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> Who knows? But anyway... All right, so that's Sid. All right, so when it comes to the quarter-hour breakdowns on July 14th, WCW won a 3.0 for the Nitro Girls and their stuff there, which we'll talk about later. They did a 2.1 for the Horror Foundation. WCW grew to a 3.1 for the next quarter. 3.5. Well, WF did a 2.5 and 2.4. They did a, Nitro did a 3.6 to a 2.7 after that. Then 3.5 for NWO Nash. W to a 2.8 for the Barikos Brawl. W7 jumped to a 4.0 where Harlem Heat gets 6 and Hall. And it's WS 2.6 for Shamrock and Nightheart. They kept the 4.0 for Public Enemy against Muto and Chono. We see new draws are there. To a 2.7 for Godwin's LOD and Vader and Flash Funk. And finally, W7, which usually owns the final quarter, fell to a 3.9 for Flair and Jeff Jarrett and Luger with NWO and Sting to a 3.3 for the tag title match. So. It goes to tell you that Austin is starting to pick up a whole hell of a lot of steam mm-hmm. at this point in time. And one thing to note, as we're about to get into the second Raw. Um, one well, also, did you mean to skip the previous paragraph? What previous paragraph said? About the SummerSlam special? Yeah, I'll get back to that. Okay. Uh, um, because it talks about the TV. Um one thing I was talking about, well, I was about to talk about before you interrupted me, is that WF at this time, and you can tell from the TV just watching these clips, their baby faces are hot. Well, WCW, it's the heels that are hot. Other than Sting. So, and Luger's picking up some steam as well, and DDP, but still, it's different to watch the shows where you got one show where the baby faces are looking strong, and the other show where the heels are looking strong. But the, the, the show where the heels are looking strong, though, is doing the big business at this point in time. But the other show is starting to catch up, little by little. So this is interesting there. 
All right, the biggest news that's confirmed was a shocking 3.75, 6.43 share draw in the 10 to 11 p.m. time slot on July 14th by the WWE SummerSlam special. Yes, that aired after Raw. Uh, the show aired highlights of SummerSlam shows dating back to the first show in 1988 with Hogan and Savage against DiBiase and Andre MSG. The show built an advertising around the biggest names of wrestling in the past decade. Most of them are now in WCW, with Hogan's name leading off the advertising drew a lot of speculation within wrestling. Some folks would try an updated commentary to bury the former headliners or show them in an unflattering manner. None of us turned out to be the case. The show aired interviews and angles along with the original commentary and the finishes of the headline matches at the previous night's SummerSlam pay-per-views, along with news clips for the same time period. Besides clips of Hogan, Savage, and Elizabeth, Flair, Piper, Kurt Henning as Mr. Perfect, Scott Hall, Lex Luger, and Kevin Nash as Ray, as, uh, as Diesel, Scott Hall's Ray's Ramon, all of whom are now in WCW, also prominent on the show, either in clips or in commentary, were announces Gene Oakland, Bobby Heenan, and Tony Schiavone, even on the first SummerSlam on commentary. The voice superstar Billy Graham, not to mention a wrestler they involved in legal action against and Jim Nolte Warrior Hellwick was on the show. It was a strange, nostalgic look at WF wrestling over the past decade, with the main impressions being just how roided up the top guys were up through five years ago, how much worse the main events were in those days, and the fact that overall the crowd heat, as impressive as it often seems today, was generally even more impressive than in those clips. What that number means is the bigger question. Is it only affirmation to the masses that all the big names in WF have gone to WCW, making it the place to be? Did it show WF can draw a big rating in an unopposed 10 to 11 p.m. Monday night time slot in the fall? Did it show WCW's headliners to be generally small and much older as compared with in their WF Prime? Does it mean about star power that will in the future roll out the archives in a ratings war? Was the rating largely drawn, as quarter-hour breakdowns indicate, by people who tuned in from TNT after Nitro ended, then slowly watched the nostalgia, and by midway the show were turning out? In the long run, aside from one very impressive rating, does this mean anything in the weekly wrestling war? A lot of no's there. <laughs> WWF <laughs> Summer Flashback. Yeah. Which WCW then sues them over. <laughs> so I forget if the so I forget if the countersuit exists yet and or if it's an amendment or whatever. But remember, WCW countersued over the NWO lawsuit, and eventually one of the things in there was oh, they tried to use our stars and make it seem like they were part of their thing with this special, which is nonsense. Hey, they were they were trying to do whatever they could, I guess. So, <laughs> and this show was incredibly well put together too. Well, I would expect it would be. But this is this is one of the better pieces of nostalgia programming they've ever done, though. Just very well packaged. You know, at that point in time, it's a lot of it is stuff people hadn't seen in a long time. It just it just worked. And also, it it did kind of show that that people wanted to watch wrestling for that extra hour too. Hmm. Whether the, they wanted to go three hours or not, the promoters or whatever, but it showed that there's the audience there, you know, yeah. willing to stay and watch it. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting to look, look at look like a hindsight. Um, Ed, did you watch this? No, I never knew this even happened. This is okay. the first time hearing about it. Um, but it makes me wonder, like, do you think? When the pandemic happened for like the first, let's say, month trying to figure it out, if they just showed like old Raws, do you think that would have popped? Uh, that's, what I, I, that's what I said. I mean, I, 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 in my opinion, it should have been that way for as long as they could have done it. Now, mm-hmm. AEW, I understand 
because they, you know, they didn't, they don't have an archive like WWE has. But and they had an opening or venue pretty much from the beginning too, which was a pretty important distinction early in the pandemic. But still, either way. Um, oh, I would have preferred no one ran any shows. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it should have been better. I mean, it should. They should have just went ahead and did as long as they could to have. Uh, the run nostalgia stuff or show best of or show, you know, stuff like that. Would it have drawn any less than what they're drawing now? I mean, probably, but still, I mean, would it have made a big, that big of a difference? I don't know. I don't know what the floor is for that. How, when they were doing stuff like airing the rumble from a couple months earlier, how well was that holding the audience? I, I don't remember. But... I mean, I understand why they didn't. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. But, anyway. All right, July 21st. Halifax, Nova Scotia, Raw. Drill sell at 8,544 p.m., 159.375, which in U.S. dollars is 116.344, or barely being the all time live Raw record gate of 116.178, set the week earlier, San Antonio. Although those marks will be easily broken for the July 28th Raw in Pittsburgh. A.K.A. the night that Brett says that if you're going to give America an anima, that's where you put the hose. <laughs> yes. Um, also, in attendance. Oh, you beat me to it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, between the sheets, guest Jordan Breen was at the show because that's his neck of the woods. Uh, Dave believes the show sold out a few days ahead of time and that previous recent crowds of Canada, the heat was incredible. Well, especially now at the- at this point in time, with the, the big team Canada angle, to good lord. Yeah. For Canada, this hard foundation is the anti-American payface angle continues to do incredible business. This show has some good, some bad, it's so strange, and indifferent. It opened with Vader over Ken Shamrock in 702 by countout when David Westman and Fear and Power slammed Shamrock on the ramp and he couldn't beat the count. It was anywhere close to their level of their pay match in May, but it's still a solid match. And how do you follow that up? Well, it's a night where we have a, a couple of vignettes to uh, talk about new people coming to the promotion. And this is one of our favorites. So let's go to the clip. On his way to the World Wrestling Federation, I'm talking about none other than Brockus. My name is Brockus. And I come from Deutschland. My weight is 300 pounds. And when I come to America, to the World Wrestling Federation, come, and the Heart Foundation, in the ring, Krieger, werde ich sie zerbrechen. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Canada's own Heart Foundation. This pop. Jim no Pillman. We all got their Canadian flags. All right, Bracus. Ah, what a what a uh, figure, huh? Bracus. Yeah, all the all the memories of Jeremy Soria are flooding back. <laughs> Ed, what do you think about Bracus, the ten year old kid? Uh, I mostly thought about Bracus when he wasn't like that. He never was around, and that would be it. Like that would be the thought mostly. Is just like. Where is this dude that they showed vignettes for for all these weeks? Why has he never been on television? And then I think he like was on the brawl for all, and then never again. It was all really, really weird. 
Yes, Brax's career was really, really weird in many ways. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so... Well, we got... is the one raw, regular Raw match he has, and that in 97 or 98? I don't remember. I'm looking real quick. Well, Dave, Dave knows that he's been training in Canada with Bret Hart and Leo Burke. And worked on and off for a few months in Memphis at the debut on some small shows and TV tapings and dark matches late last year. So it ain't for the fact that he didn't have good trainers, put that way. No. And Dr. Tom was with him, you know, at times as well, so... It's just he was Brackus. So... Alright, so the harsh interview where they expect a huge pop and loud U.S. sucks chance. They challenged Undertaker, Austin, and Shamrock to a flag match later in the show. Dave's not sure why they mentioned Shamrock's name because him not accepting after already losing early in the show made him appear weak. Austin came out and accepted it for himself. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Why was Shamrock? He just he just was <laughs> in the match. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Makes no sense. All right, they uh, announced Mariko's a DOA were suspended for a week. Apparently, the round-trip airfare to Halifax from anywhere was huge, and they mainly used wrestlers that were already on the road tour and then flying extras and full crew, as is normally the case as a cost-saving measure. And this show had tons of tape features, which apparently with no opposition head-to-head, the feeling was they get away with better. Think about that. We're in a, we're in a time period where they can't fly in a, a, a decent chunk of their crew because they can't afford it. Well, we took out the goddamn water coolers. <laughs> See, back then, they, they, they couldn't fly anybody in, but now they're having such money problems that they have to fire people to afford Ava Marie's contract. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it's the money problem. It's the fact that they just want to get rid of the glut. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, Brian Christopher beat Brian Walsh in 353 with a leg drop on top rope. Decent match. Okay. And, and then we get another vignette for another soon-to-be-debuting foreign heel faction deal. So let's go to this clip, shall we? I am the Commandant, Commanding Officer of the Truth Commission from South Africa. We will prove our superiority when we smash your so-called athletes right before your eyes. Beware, the Truth Commission comes to enlighten you, America. And the truth will hurt. Yes, we'll see the Truth Commission next week. I love that photo right there. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when Raw is war. However, next. Also, I I like that there are clips in the video of uh, Mantor as the masked tank. And then when they show the graphic for their debut, he's nowhere to be found. (laughs) Yes, uh, the members of the group were were, uh, Kurgan, of course. Uh... Rambo, Lou Poirier, and uh, Bull Buchanan, and uh, Mantar and Damascus Tank. Yes, Mike Alec. Yep. And that was the group in USWA. They had... Did they do shotgun matches before Raw? They had to have done something so they have tape footage. Yeah, I don't know if that was a dark or shotgun or what. So dark, uh, dark or shotgun. But... Because I don't remember if Mike Halleck was ever in the gimmick on WWF TV proper. But, I don't think he was. But anyway, yeah. So it ends up being them. And Commandant is also not long for this world. They en- Now, they end up advertising for a replacement, I believe, in Variety. They were still looking for an actor. 
to replace uh, Commandant, who, if I remember right, was a legit South African actor who Brett met on the set of Lonesome Dove or something yeah, why, like that. Why not just hire Ed Wyskowski? <laughs> be Colonel De Beers. <clears throat> Makes perfectness. I I don't know. And then they were seems like they were trying to move them into the gang war stuff. And then someone realized, I guess, maybe may, maybe with wh- how we're doing this, maybe adding, like, white separatist South Africans is maybe going a little bit too far. Yeah, but when you got enough white separatists in the gang war, with the, <laughs> they would have simpatico together. Uh, <laughs> um, Don Harris walking up to the commandant, like, so I've been reading about this apartheid stuff, and I really like it. So Dave saying that after seeing him in Memphis, I can hardly wait. <laughs> that was facetious. Yeah. All right, the Goblins won a triple threat match over the Blackjacks and the Headbangers in 524 to get a title <laughs> shot at Austin and do love next week in Pittsburgh. They changed the rules, so now in these matches, there are three men in the ring at all times. You can only take in your partner. The old lame rules they stole from WCW made it so partners could take anyone, and what partner could actually lay down for the other and allow their team to win the match. And then they changed it back anyway. Yeah, this is off the page horrible. You know, Dave brings that up, and God knows, I, I mean, I saw the, this type of, you know, those type of rules in many promotions over the years where you could tag in your own partner. Why did anybody ever do that? Wouldn't that been a, a great finish to him, uh, this deal? Here they, you know, we, oh, we outsmarted you. We tricked you. <laughs> we talked you about know? this the last time that came up. They did do it. Who did it? Okay, so there, there have been a few times where partners did it and it got broken up like there's a hall and nash one in wcw but in i think early to mid 98 there's one where the outlaws are defending the titles they do it and it's the finish and they retain the titles and then the next time they have a match they've added the outlaw rule which means they can't pin each other to retain the titles well that shows you how much impact it had on me if i can't even remember it <laughs> wow well that was it was really important Bro, bro, you're not supposed to remember it. It's fake wrestling. Good lord. But anyway, I, I mean, yeah. You built that finish, and man, you get, get some heat off that. But anyway, good lord. All right, so. Head bangers. Head bangers. Uh, they said this was off the page horrible. Phineas Penn win them after Henry hit him with the bucket. Next, we get Shawn Michaels. Get ready, folks. Is is this the one where he has that line that ends with him like really dragging out, saying, "Cause Canada sucks." I don't know why I sounded like Vince there, but anyway. Well, we're gonna get classic Sean here. Oh, we already have the flag match stuff up. Would you please yep. welcome the most charismatic, the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> Read all of it. Yeah. Sean's in his docker short. Fargo strut. American flag with kiss my Canadian ass written on it. Man, Hart, be this. 
kill the click. Oh, this is the raw with the sign of uh, the Heart Foundation pissing on the American flag. Yeah. Babe, I was scared. Sudden knee injury on Sean Mike. Okay, real quick. I think we do believe the story as he tells it now, right? I mean, I'm sure he probably did something, but... <laughs> and that he went to, like, his regular doctor was like, yeah, your knee's fucked, you can't wrestle again. Well... And as opposed to going to James Andrews or wherever, it's like, no, you can... You can just put on a brace and wrestle, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. I think there was something going on. And, and yeah. now I still don't understand why Killer Kowalski thought he was going to rehab, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Backflip and lands on his feet in flip-flops <laughs> while theoretically having a knee injury. He's not wearing flip-flops. Oh, wait, what is he wearing? Jersey's not off. Again, break me. JR very much looking like his action figure in this era. Okay, trivia time. Do either of you know what relationship of Sean's that ring around his neck signifies? It's collateral, probably, for drugs, right? No. Oh. <laughs> Uh, no. This is when he was engaged to Julie Youngberg. Okay. The future Mrs. Drozdov and future Mrs. Shannon Moore, who was one of the WWF seniors at the time. Okay. I just mentioned it because I, I I noticed that it doesn't seem like anyone remembers that they were a thing. They were engaged. Anyway, that's why he, in this era he is wearing his ring on a necklace. Blockbuster announcement. The stage is yours, and we're ready to hear it. Well, I got a lot of things on my mind, Gerf Brooks. <laughs> wow. Gerf Brooks. How unappreciative. Also, a little weird when JR is like the slimmest he ever was in this era. What? We're that kind of uh -oh. we're that kind of country. We'll free your fairies, we'll free your heterosexuals, we'll free your transvestites, we're good with everything. <laughs> Sean Michaels has fun no matter what he's ever in. What is the underlying story he's referring to? Okay. There? I, I only know this because I just watched this a few hours ago and they talk about it beforehand. They do like one of the things where they talk about something in the news. Yeah. And there was something about I um, it was either a Canadian ferry got stuck in U.S. waters or a U.S. ferry ferry got ferry stuck a boat. Yes. Yeah. So Sean's doing an awful joke about it. Yes. So he's being homophobic, Emily Latella, basically. 
Yeah. Never mind. My appreciation from this crowd. I have some deep memories of Canada. I can remember sitting home. Very tanned. My parents gave me some little Canadian army men, and they all came out like this. <laughs> Hands up. And of course, I can't pass this one up. Everybody knows why the U.S. keeps from falling into the ocean because Canada sucks. <laughs> Every now and then, the shot can go just a little too far. But now that I've had my fun, Toronto's got Canadian flags in this plant box. And let every one of you know that the heartbreak kid. Nineteen ninety-seven, everybody. I've never seen such a response. If I didn't know better, I'd say you were talking to me, but you can't be. I know you're not talking to me. Now <laughs> oh, where was I? Oh yeah. This flag match. The Heart Foundation won three ready and able Americans. Stone Cold is one. And I'll give you one guess. Who's gonna be number two? Can it be? That's right. HBK himself, the Hunt Rick Kid. Whoa! John Michaels in action tonight. Is he? Man, no. Wait a second. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Did you think that was it? <laughs> no. You've got to know me better than that. Now everybody knows, last week, I got on my hands and knees and pleaded to the World Wrestling Federation officials <laughs> that I wanted to be a part of SummerSlam. <laughs> HBK refused the job, son. <laughs> I wanted to sell tickets. That job was taken. I wanted to give away souvenirs. That job was taken. So I once again went to the head of the World Wrestling Federation. And he said, Sean? Actually, he said, Mr. Sean, because he knows better. He said, if you want this gig, there's only one opening for you. It seems that Earl Hebner, the top WWF referee, is a little out of it. So the Heartbreak Kid is going to be a special referee at SummerSlam. But what match are you talking about? What match are you going to referee, Sean? What match? Now, you've got opening card you've got your middle of the card you've got the top of the card and then you've got the main event and I only work 
one match and that's the main event the undertaker and Brett the hitman hunt for the world wrestling federation championship and i will be the special referee that's gonna be now wait just a second you're gonna referee a match involving Bret Hart and The Undertaker for the WWF title. Don't you think that Bret Hart may feel that that's a little bit prejudicial? What Bret Hart feels is not my concern. You wanna feel something, Bret? Feel this, but the WWF <laughs> officials... You forgot to point at his dick. ...made it clear to me <laughs> that if I do not call the match down the middle, if I lean towards the Undertaker's side, I also will not be able to wrestle in the United States. So, if I don't call the match down the middle, I'm going to have to move up here with the rest of you and wrestle in front of you every day of my life. <laughs> the house right next to the hitman and live in Canada for the rest of my life. But Some girls like that. But Undertaker and all you distinguished people of Canada I want you to know and I want Bret Hart to know Bret Buddy if you can't trust Shawn Michaels, who can you trust? I'll tell you what, that young man has a lot of courage coming out here and saying what he said. But he is the best referee, but with the caveat, he does favor the Undertaker, he too. God, he's so Yeah, but if Bret Hart loses to The Undertaker, he's gone for good. Sean is undressing. <laughs> well. Okay. All right, so Sean's in the graphic, but yes. Uh, Man, how do, how do people like Bret more than him? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I love Sean Michaels. Also, they totally renege on the stipulation because, regardless of what? the outcome, he favors Undertaker. Well, yeah, but anyway. So let's read Dave here. Sean came out to a heel response to life, of which would have made the Sheik in his heyday proud. Michaels did a back of the top rope, landing on his feet with his knee not even wrapped. Dave guesses an inside rib to show his buddies that his knee is fine and he's just screwing with everyone. He gave the Wolfpack sign on the air and seemed out of it, and his voice was so far gone that he sounded like Brian Pillman. <laughs> the crowd chanted the F word at him. He announced the referee Undertaker and Brett SummerSlam was told if he showed any partiality Undertaker, he'd never be allowed to wrestle in the U.S. again. He also set the spot in the TV main event. <laughs> oh my gosh, Sean. Hunter Hurst Humsley then wrestled the Patriot. Because the Patriot came out with the American flag, he was booed out of the building. And Helsley became the big bay face. Well, there you go. Wasn't this one of the last draws with Cor- not the last because that comes in a, I think a couple months later 
Or actually, wait, no, where is it, this one? Because I feel like he's on... No, because he's writing the shows later, I think. But one of the last draws, at least, with Cornette and Russo and being on creative, was that Cornette's like, um, should he really be working a match on this show, <laughs> Patriot? Well, you know. <laughs> They tried to babyface him before, too. And he starts talking about how he's a fan of Patriots for, from all countries. <laughs> and he and it's just, a, yeah, they don't care. So Owen Brent Bulldog came out. Brett slapped Vince over swerving him by name and Sean's the referee. <laughs> so we got that. We got to play. We'll play it in a second. Uh, at the same time, everyone destroyed a Patriot. And uh, so let's go. Let's go to Brett and Vince here. Yeah, people get this is actually during a uh, basically during a match. This took place. So wait, do I need to cue this up? I think I do, right? It's during the match. It's during the Triple H Patriot match. So you got to go find it All in right. the match. Let's see. They don't have it separated out. I remember I remember watching this and then downloading the av.avi file in whatever format on AOL keyword WWF the next day. All right. I think you're way you're going backwards. Okay, I, I wasn't sure which entrance it was. Uh, yes, okay. during the match. Yeah, I know. All right, here we go. Oh, here we go. All right. And by the way, they don't really come back to this angle after this show. <laughs> we'll talk about that. <sighs> it might receive. He made his debut, his wrestling debut. Here we go for the cover. But the Patriot made his wrestling debut in Pittsburgh hey, next week. Look at this. Here's Bret Hart. Owen Hart and the Bulldog. The Patriot. We have no idea why. He's yelling at Vince. Stands up. Owen and Davey tried to hold Brett back. They're walking Brett away. Brett heads back. Slaps the headset off Vince. Vince got that look in his face. Patriot breaks it up. Camera ramp falls down. It just looks awful from like going to that real looking like hockey fight kind of between Vince and uh, Brett with shirts to like Hmm. There's Briscoe. Come 
And that's right. basically the last we ever hear about that. Oh, no. Oh, it's not? Come back. Okay. Come back. Okay. Well, past this show, I guess we don't, but... We're back, ladies and gentlemen. We're, we're live here in, uh, in Halifax, trying to get a little bit uh, of order and some decorum restored here. Vince almost put his glasses on and realized he couldn't do that on camera. <laughs> and there's the headset. He's food. So, you know, I don't well, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's, uh, we have Paul Bear standing by. We can go there now. Mr. Bear, you have said... Oh, we were going to play this anyway. You're going to prove that, that Cain exists, that Cain, the brother of the Undertaker, is alive. I don't know why we should believe you, quite frankly, after the heinous acts that you perpetrated. So what is your proof? Put your money where your mouth is. Put- oh, we were. <laughs> uh, thanks, award-winning WWE Network. <laughs> Tell everyone what it says right now. Sorry, the video's not available. Um, so... Well, you get this back. They're having quite the night tonight, aren't they? Well, you are. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, that what we just saw, and and that whole thing there, that whole the way that all that played out, it's reasons why WF was really starting to pick up steam because they their TV show at this time period had definitely more of a chaotic feel. There's all kind of stuff going on. It just seemed like something that you cannot miss in a lot of ways. Either you watch it live or you tape it and watch it later. Or you flip back and forth either way. But yeah, I mean, Raw I mean, even though Nitro was 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 still, you know, kicking ass and they were having their great television too, this just felt different. These conflicts felt different. It, because it was so different than anything WF had done. Mm-hmm. You know? That's why. I mean, this is not your WF from even a year ago. You know, I mean, it's just changed so much. So, yeah, that's great shit. All right, so let's go to Paul Bear and, and you guys can talk about it. That Kane exists. That Kane, the brother of the Undertaker, is alive. I don't know why we should believe. <laughs> Maybe not. that one really is an issue with this video, though. Either way. Because it All stopped right, at so... the exact same spot after I reloaded it. Okay, so I guess it's that, that particular video part but anyway and what was your thoughts on the whole brett vince thing uh it looks like i said it looked it looks really real like it that looks like how a fight between brett and vince would go and then i think i think they lose it when the patriot comes in throwing his worked right hands in a way yeah and uh bix i mean it is interesting how this never does come up again it is also I wonder if shooting this angle is one of the reasons that Brent realizes he should not put a shirt on before he confronts Vince so nothing like this happens. Like, he said that. That's why he does not put a shirt on before he confronts Vince in Montreal. Mm-hmm. That in case there's a, con- con- a confrontation, the shirt can't be used against him. Yeah. So it seems likely that Brett took that from his worked fight with Vince and brought it to his, I was going to say real fight, but his real uh, knocking unconscious with one punch event. Yeah. All right, so Paul Bear does the cane thing here, so there's that. All right, um, let's see. All right, so Goldust beat Farouk by his qualification in 327. The comment interfered a terrible match, even worse finish. 
This match served as a backdrop as McMahon left the announce position and went backstage where Michaels was holding his knee from the idea that the Hart Foundation had jumped him doing a sweep on the deal from Hartford. I'm not even going to try to play clips anymore. The weird knee injury gives him a few more weeks off. Michaels was swearing at McMahon on TV. Not all the winch was edited out. Again, trying to do an angle uh, there behind the scenes in Hartford. Again, only people that would know that would be the internet fans. It's 1997, but still, it made for entertaining television. Unsafe working environment, brother. It, it, it looked like something that you would not see. I mean, it looked like it was chaos. And this was not part of the show. A big difference. It's like, you know, WF for so many years was, you know, so overly produced and so, you know, choreographed, I guess, in, in a way. And this era of Raw is so against that. And in many ways, because we're going to talk about this now in this main event deal, that it's different. All right, so TV main event saw Brett Owen and Davey of Undertaker, Austin, and Do Love and a flag on a pole match 1827. Match had great heat, but the work was disappointing given who was in the match. Actually, almost the entire match consisted of Owen doing a Bayface sell job, but the Bayface heels he worked against were all screwed up due to crowd reactions. Undertaker at this point, due to style and Do Love due to gimmick, really don't work in an environment where they're heels. It was a mistake to put Dude Love in this situation so soon because he's not only was totally flat, making the role like a one-hit wonder, but he's also dealing with The Undertaker with no storyline reason or even acknowledgement after such a bitter feud. Bennett saw Brian Pillman come from under the ring and knock down Undertaker as he tried to climb the pole to get the American flag. So the opposite side of the ring, Brett grabbed the Canadian flag to win. This match, though, also featured one of the biggest televised exposés of the year. Here we go. Obviously, they got clearance from USA Network to go 10 minutes long. And Jim Ross announced that they would stay with the main event until all night if they had to. However, USA ran across saying that La Femme Nikita was starting 10 minutes. And then at five minutes later, ran a second cross about starting at five minutes. And right on time, they went to the finish and got out of there. <laughs> now, Ed, I asked you about this before we started recording. You said that these graphics were not on the network version. No, no, they weren't. Which makes sense, because the network version generally appears to be the international version of a given show. Um, I just remember seeing this at the time and being like, couldn't they have at least been less obvious? Well, tell everybody what it said, Bix. It, it said basically what Dave said. Like, But they were being almost jokey about it. Like, we That's guarantee you that La Femme Nikita will start at 10-10 no matter what. <laughs> and then they went home at like, 9.59, or excuse me, uh, 10.09.30 or whatever. Yeah, so, I mean, that's crazy. And crazy. even worse, that it's contradicting what the announcer is saying. Yes. Who would have thought... On top of the expose. Yeah. Would have been like, been like that. But uh, this is also around the era... Well, it was before this, because, like, when they kind of scapegoated them for the gun thing the year before. But it's this era is where they really start to have their issues with the USA in general. Because they are not being, they are just generally not treated like a show of the value that they actually had to the network. Nope. Boy, is that changed. I, I have found a version on YouTube of the USA feed that was uploaded many years ago, over tw- uh, 2009. Okay, so you want me to play this with the sound no. off? No, quality shit. I'm watching this now. Um, as I'm flicking through, part one... Okay, so part one doesn't even have the graphic at all. 
All right, so let me see if, if there's part two on here. Uh, let's see. God, I hate when YouTube does this shit, where it has something that's broke up in the parts, and then you only see one part. Well, it could be the other one got the lead. Yeah, it looks that way. It looks that way. That the other part got deleted. I'm checking to make sure. I, I see some daily yeah, motion yeah, uploads it's, it's, and stuff. It's deleted, yeah. So the second part was deleted. Right. Always weird how that works. And, and there and there's another version of the match on YouTube, but it's the network version. So hmm. it doesn't have anything on there, but uh Yeah. Oh, I think I just found it on Daily Motion. Okay. Let's see. Because it looks like VHS sourced, and it is the flag match. Well, why do you look for that? I mean, Ed, it made no sense to put the Patriot on this show. It made no sense to put Do Love in this spot on this show. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Um, they kind of explain it a little, because it's like Dude Love's a, an alter ego. So, like, this is a lot of headcanon. In his brain, right, he wouldn't have problems with The Undertaker. Because that's a mankind thing. Well, Undertaker would, yeah, but Undertaker would have problems with him. Yeah, fucking hey, you're right. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, it's fake wrestling. It's I fake. know it. I know. <laughs> but like, I mean, it worked, right? Like, I never until reading this, that thought never crossed my mind. Is like, oh, they, these men feuded for like a year and a half before this. Yeah, I mean, it worked, but you look back at hindsight, like, wait a minute. Yeah, they could have done a number of things, and uh, yeah, maybe not have your USA baby face get booed. Yeah, weird. Uh, they backed themselves into a corner. Really, what they needed to do was have the Patriot do an in-ring debut the week before. They booked themselves into a corner here. Well, he is going to be booed no matter what on that show anyway. No, that, no but I'm saying if he does a match the week before, you don't necessarily need to have him here. To keep his momentum, whereas because he really didn't do much besides the opening appearance and then maybe a quick promo the week before, you kind of do need to have him on this show. Now, should they have probably just done a pre-tape without crowd noise or something? Yes. But they booked themselves into a little bit of a corner here. So I can at least see where they're coming from and feeling like they had to put him on this show. Yeah, but at the same time, you're going to come like they're going to have those problems with them because they're in between America and Canada like regularly during this time. So like maybe they just weren't that worried about it because they're like he's going to get booed in Canada eventually. All right, I've got what we need here on. Make sure I'm using the right browser for this because I did it in Safari. All right, I'm just going to do it with the sound off, but wanted to make sure you guys could see it. Okay, I'll read it. Okay, so it's getting late. You're thinking about turning in. Got work tonight, tomorrow? Early bird gets the worm and all that? USA urges you to throw caution to the wind. Stay up, stay tuned. Because in ten minutes, Peter Wilson stars in the explosive series La Femme Nikita. And hey... If you're a little late for work tomorrow, blame it on Peter Wilson. We dare you. Very weird tone in general. Was Lafemnikita doing that big in numbers? 
<laughs> I don't like, know. Honestly, to like to the point where they needed to like assure everyone that it was going to be on. Like, also, they've been haven't they done some overruns by this point? Hello. It was the number one drama on basic cable for <laughs> for the first two seasons. Oh, you were muted. I take it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the first one. I'm trying to find the second one because it seems like it's not exactly at the five minute mark after that. But okay, here we go. I found it. Oh wait, so that's thirteen forty. But here's the thing. All right, so this is interesting when this comes up. All right, so the third season of La Femme Nikita. This is the third it? season premiere. What is this? I'm looking to see when the third season. Oh no, wait. I think this is the second, either the first, like second half of the first or the second season. All right. So anyway, here's here's why. Because I, I think it was premiering in when they did the thing at the Sky Dome with her in January. Yeah, Steve Steve Chow, when he became the boss, um, the network president, he was wanting to use WBF people on the show to help their ratings. Mm-hmm. Well. Here's what it says here. It says that Shao's bizarre request to offend the key to cast wrestlers in key terrorist roles is a way across from USA's broadcast of Warbus Federation. Despite evidence the shows did not have compatible demographics. That's why they're doing this. USA Network, I mean, knows that La Fit, the La Fin the Kita audience is not the wrestling audience. Right. So these people that are tuning in at 10 o'clock expecting to see La Fin the Kita and seeing wrestling. They don't want them to think they're in the middle of a wrestling show that ends at 11 or whatever. Yeah. All right. So uh, La Fin the Kita was averaging 1.7 million viewers. That's not bad. Yeah. So. How many of their later original series averaged at 1.7 million viewers? Uh, not many. <laughs> Five seasons. So at this point, we are where? Yeah, that was in September 97 when that, that was. Yeah. So, okay, yeah, this is either early second season or late first season. All right, so. so anyway, so I did get the thing queued up. So here's our second crawl, okay? Here we go. The following is a special announcement. Stay tuned to USA. In exactly five minutes, Peter Wilson stars in the most explosive show on television, La Femme Nikita. Your life will never be the same? Again? <laughs> okay, so that's an exaggeration. <laughs> but you won't be disappointed. That's guaranteed or your money back. Okay, so it's basic cable and you're not... And that they use the wrong your and you're not paying. They used Y-O-U-R. It will last a lot longer than the Tyson fight. That's for sure. Four exclamation points. It makes you wonder who's doing this. Who's the writer? Who made the call? And who made the call to put it here? Who made the call for it to be so weird and like avant-garde funny or whatever they're trying to do? It's very strange. Yeah. I wish this was on the award-winning WWE network. <laughs> but so clearly this is also added at the network layer, I would think, right? It's a USA thing. Because also, it doesn't look like any kind of font WWE normally uses either. 
No, definitely so the, not. So this probably only aired on... Well, I was going to say USA and TSN, but is TSN even airing the entirety of Raw yet at this time? Um, they are, they are. I just realized I used to have a tape that was taped off TSN of the uh, Manhattan Center show from earlier in the year. So, But the thing is, is that they got the USA feed with a TSN logo overlaid. So they probably got this too. But presumably no one else did. But what a weird, what a weird thing to do. Yeah, definitely weird. Absolutely. It's also just very un-USA network for this era. Like, it doesn't feel, it didn't, that was the other thing that made it so weird. It didn't feel like it was in the voice of the network. No. That did not feel like the network that's bringing us La Femme Nikita and Silk's talkings. It might have fit in okay in the, you know, the quote-unquote Blue Skies era. Maybe they're trying to sound like hip and cool for the hip, cool wrestling fans to stick around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, anyway, the ratings uh, went unopposed because Nitro was on Tuesday due to TNT running a miniseries. More on that later. Drew a 4.1 rating and a 6.1 share. The rating would be the highest for a Raw show in more than a year and among the company's biggest TV audiences for any show in several years. Show drew a 3.8 first hour, grew to 4.3 for the second hour, headlined by the flag on the pole match. While the rain may have been slightly higher than expected, Dove was expected to do a monster rating because all the wrestling has been geared up this year towards Monday nights, and Raw was on the game in town this week. This figure represents 66 to 70 percent of the combined audience that the two shows would receive on a typical Monday night. So that means 30 to 34 percent of the wrestling fans that watch on Mondays didn't watch because they only watch Nitro. TNT can't be unhappy about the preemption because that Civil War miniseries drew a 4.1 rating as well, which is well above what Nitro does in that time slot. The board was a draw, brother. Nitro ratings weren't available as a deadline, but nobody believed, even on the post, that the number would come close to a raw rating because Tuesday is a night where four, four plus million homes are patterned and watch wrestling at 8 p.m. And I don't remember what that Tuesday raw Nitro rating did, unless I have it later, which I probably do. So we'll worry about that then. Yeah. So yeah, 4.1 rating, which is the same rating as a Civil War documentary on <laughs> TNT. That Civil War miniseries was kind of dope, though. I remember them making us watch it in high school. This is the one with Patrick Swayze, right? I think so, yeah. So, wow. All right, so let's talk about some other stuff here. Pablo Marquez of Puerto Rico was called about working on Raw over the next week or two against Takamichinoku. Devin Storm and Star were also called about working the August 4th for all in the lightweight matches. Oh, gee, I wonder why Pablo Marquez can't work. (laughs) <laughs> we'll have more on that later. Uh, in a way, we'll have more Pablo Marquez news when we get to the ECW set. Oh my god, is this the week where he gets deported? Well, it's, no, it's the week where Perry Saturn tries to deport him. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Furness was told by a doctor that his uh, broken neck, broken back would require surgery to put him out of action for at least six months. But he decided to get surgery and was instead trying to rehab the best he could. Always a great way of doing things. He's shooting for a return probably around mid-September. Well, that's when Phil comes back. Yeah, but good lord. Doug? (laughs) Neither of them were ever the same. Doug doesn't come back until when? The ECW pay-per-view in early 98? No, for Oh, no, he's at Survivor Series. What am I talking about? Yeah, yeah, Survivor Series. When when the doctor tells you to do something, more than not, that's the way you need to go. Especially something like that. Good God. Doug is looking to produce a major car in the United Kingdom in September. Hmm. I wonder what that could be. Uh, I'm sure whatever it is, it'll be a one-night-only event. I'm sure. 
Weekend house shows in Worcester on July 18th drew, drew 4596 and a $78,611 gate. July 19th, and St. John's, Newfoundland drew 3636 and a $79,248 gate. Sydney, Nova Scotia on the 20th drew 3654, 78903 gate. Weekend merchandise $131,000. Are we assuming the Canadian gates are in Canadian dollars? <clears throat> um, not sure. Torch has a report from that Sydney show at Memorial Stadium. Um, in same exact numbers. Merchandise twenty four thousand six sixty per head. Yes, we get a little more specific there. Leave Cassidy over Scott Taylor replacing the advertised Bob Holly. The Godwins over the headbangers. Brian Pillman over Flash Funk during which Flash was booed badly against the Heart Foundation member. Nod versus Black Jacks. Shamrock over Bulldog by DQ. Shamrock playing heel. Goldust over Triple H. Brett Owen over Austin and Dude Love non title match. The oblivious dude love put out a small U.S. flag and tried to get USA USA chant going, but fans chanted Canada instead <laughs> when Owen waved the Canadian flag. Dude love said, "I don't know why he's waving the Canadian flag, since we all know we're in the great state of New Hampshire <laughs> instead of Nova Scotia." Undertaker evaded in a casket match where a fan had a sign that read, "Paul Bear, a Coco Beware." <laughs> why Coco Beware? <laughs> <laughs> Now, Ed, there you go. I mean, Foley, uh, Foley's uh, playing up the, the stuff here. That's a, a, a smart on him to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe that he figured it out by then after that Raw that, like, dude love what? can play heel, but he has to be oblivious that he is a heel. Well, this is the day before Raw. <laughs> oh, then why didn't they do <laughs> Exactly. This is the day before Raw. Oh, man. Never mind. I don't even know. Yeah, why wouldn't they do this on Raw then? Who knows? Who knows? All right. How, how were, big physically is Nova Scotia that they did such strong business back to back? I mean, it's not uh, huge. I feel like that's a pretty strong sign for them. Yeah. Well, they're hot there because of the Team Canada stuff. Yep. WF has a one hour primetime slot on the Star Plus channel in Hong Kong, which is now being broadcast by Satellite in Japan. So WF now has all of its television shows in the Japan market. And the company itself probably won't even know. It won't even know it until they read it here, as they have previously had no re- television in Japan. Raw split into one-hour shows on Monday and Tuesday. Livewire on Wednesday. Shotgun on Thursday. Superstars on Friday. Raw's also repeated both mid-afternoons and late nights on Saturday and Sunday. All the shows air with Japanese subtitles. WCW airs only worldwide and pro on Samurai TV and Gora TV, respectively. Okay, at a minimum, Dave's getting something wrong here because I'm guessing that if it's airing primarily on a Chinese station in Hong Kong that happens to be carried in Japan, that these are subtitles in. Well, wait, Cantonese and Mandarin are dialects, so would subtitles be in Chinese or would they be in Cantonese? Either way, I don't think the subtitles would have been Japanese, like he's saying here. Uh, also, the thing that really jumped out the most with me here wasn't WCW on Star TV. And there were one in the point. Chinese market. Because remember, how does Bischoff end up getting the meeting with Turner that leads to Nitro? Because he's negotiating a deal with something in this under the Star TV banner in China that would bring WCW into the black. But he needed to get Ted's personal permission because it was a Rupert Murdoch property. And I think as Bischoff has talked about, he doesn't—he never got to pitch Ted on it during the meeting. So I wonder if as a consequence of that, they never actually ended up on there. 
because, you know, we're only talking two years later. Who knows? Although that said, there were a lot of places outside the U.S. where they were both on the same network. Canada well, yeah. being one of them. Yeah. All right. Torch says, we're keeping an eye on the battle between Seagram's company and Viacom Inc. over ownership of USA Network. They're dissolving their joint ownership and are involved in a nasty court battle. What is he talking about? <laughs> I don't think either of those things are true because I don't think Viacom ever owned USA Network. Way well, must know something that you don't know, Bix. I'm pulling up Wikipedia. I know there's all sorts of weird ownership in that era, like the Chris Craft thing with the WOR and all that. Seagram's to buy USA Network for $1.7 billion. That was in September 97. Okay, uh, but if I threw They paid it to Viacom, Viacom's half of the share. Okay, okay. Here's what Wikipedia says, okay? This is in a section that's just USA Network's ownership from 94 to 01. Let me read this, because this is a, a full article here. This is from the LA Times. Okay. Ending a bitter dispute between two of the entertainment industry's most powerful moguls, the Seagram Company agreed Monday to pay $1.7 billion to Viacom Inc. for its half share of popular USA Networks. Uh, an agreement announced Monday, Universal loaned the New York-based USA Network, which reaches 70 million homes, as well as a smaller but faster, fast-growing sister cable service, the Sci-Fi Channel. In short-term, companies said to offer more virtual programming USA Network. Both Seagram and Viacom have been under pressure from shareholders to settle their disagreement over ownership of the cable partnership, which has been fought in the federal courtroom in Delaware. Summer Redstone, Viacom chairman and controller shareholder, can use the capital from the sale to pay down the company's heavy debt to boost its stagging, so- sagging stock price. For Seagram, the acquisition reinforced the beverage and spirit company's commitment to Hollywood as the first major expansion entertainment since their 1995 purchase of Universal. And then it goes more into ba 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 ba. Seagram sued Viacom in April 1996 for breaching their contract by launching the TV Land Nostalgia Television Channel. In the lawsuit, Seagram also claimed his partner ownership of MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1 violated the contract, even though those cable channels were started by Viacom before it acquired a stake in USA Network through the 1994 purchase of Paramount Pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to parse this myself reading the Wikipedia. It's that. It, it it wasn't for long. It was part of the Paramount thing because Paramount was in was in with MCA to own USA, but then Viacom bought Paramount and Seagram bought MCA. Yeah, so there it's you go. complicated. Okay, that explains that because that was not familiar, but clearly it's because a lot of this does not last very long. Yeah, so there you go. Oh god, their ownership has changed so much. I forgot that Vivendi owned them for two years. Yeah, it's passed around, that's for sure. They've the current, you know, universal ownership, even though they had close ties for several years, is only goes back to oh three. <laughs> yeah. Alright, there's a locker room joke that the guys ribbed Ron Simmons with. They bend over and ask Simmons to kick them in the kidney so they can put on thirty pounds of muscle like Ahmed Johnson did after he had his kidney injured. <laughs> <laughs> also, why are you running this? Uh, eight months after Ahmed came back. That's Dave. So ask him. Clearly, no one told him this till now. Man, so. and Triple H must have got like his kidneys pounded after that <laughs> quad injury, right? <laughs> oh man! So I did notice Conan's looking a little more jacked lately. <laughs> Several of the biggest, biggest names were on a Russell Vessel cruiser in the past week, including Austin, the Hart family, Michaels, and others. The way this is being phrased by Dave here, is it to suggest that maybe the first Russell Vessel 
was more of a WWF effort, whereas this one is just them making a deal with a cruise company and sending some wrestlers. Well, my thing is, look, I saw this wrestlers just feuding with each other on the cruise together. <laughs> Ain't that great? <laughs> but it's weird that he he's writing very detached in an odd way. That he's, yeah. he, he keeps writing about it as if it's not a WWF event. Yeah. Livewire did a 1.3 and Superstars did a 1.4 rating on the weekend, so there's that. Tor said WWF was more impressed with Taka Michinoku than Grace Sasuke and has signed Taka to a full-time one-year deal. Because behind the scenes politics, Sasuke's tenure in WWF is in jeopardy. Oh, it sure is. Yeah, so we've talked about this a lot before. It's pretty simple. Taka was trying to be a heel, but he's the only one that plays to the crowd in those two matches. Sasuke yep. really does not do much to try to get the crowd involved. So it's it's more noticeable in Edmonton than it was the first night in Calgary. But you know, by the end of that second match, the fans live at least seem a lot more into Taka than they do to Sasuke for obvious reasons. Taka's more explosive. They should Sasuke should have did a barrel bump. <laughs> well, he wasn't day. doing those yet. <laughs> should have stuck a firecracker up his ass or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should have. <laughs> All right, well, not confirmed. Rumor has that Victor Quinone has assigned his stairway for AAA, along with getting back Mini's Mascarita Sagrada Jr., who's over from Azteca's Mini Rey Mysterio Jr., and Espetrito, who was here before his Mini Vader, along with several other top Minis like the Ricito. Not sure if this is for WWS consumption, but his job was to sign up good young Mexican talent. Mini Ray and Expertrito were scheduled to debut on the July 28th night show from Charleston, West Virginia, but both weren't happy since they jumped for AAA to promise Tech with the promise Conan be getting them a WCW contract. Then they were pissed off saying they didn't want to use Minis. Finally, they were going to get a look-see on Nitro, hoping in better conditions than the last time where they had Minis tag up, gave them two minutes to do nothing, and that fell apart. Uh, no wonder Suki stays with the WWF. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, what would you expect on that scenario? Um, that said, even if you weren't going to use minis regularly, I think that's a missed opportunity to have the ability to bring in Zuki in the mini Ray Mysterio Junior gimmick and not do it. Uh, I know, I know it, <clears throat> but it's WCW, everybody. What do you it is, it is, and I'm not the only one who was looking at the notes and initially read that it said that Victor's job was to sign up good-looking young Mexican talent, and not good young Mexican talent, right? <laughs> wow. I also love... Oh, okay. You you go away from Pena, who probably was... Let's just say was probably the more decent, much more decent human of the two, and you'd be like, ah, I didn't like that, but I'm fine with working for Victor. <laughs> like, this Victor guy's nice. He keeps inviting us over for sleepovers. That's right. Let's say he's a sports car. <laughs> well, maybe not the minis. Uh, Torch says uh, Glenn Jacobs did get called to the majors. They informed the USWA during the week that they would need him full time starting right away. So they dropped the USWA heavyweight title soon. Expectations remain he'll end up wearing a professional design mask that will make him appear to be a burn victim, and he'll end up being Undertaker's long lost brother, Kane. And it has both spellings C A I N slash K A N E. And the working idea is apparently not to introduce Kane until the September February show. Well, close. So, um, when does he stop working USWA shows in reality, though? In the summer. So, is he just completely off for a few months? I don't know how long, but he's in the summer. Hmm. 
But anyway, all right. Do, uh, AOL chat. Dude, love was interviewed. When asked what it felt like to get finally get all the girls, dude said, "Well, we had to pay them." <laughs> <laughs> Regarding the future of the Dude Love character, I have no idea what's going to happen with Dude Love. I don't know if it's something we will let it out of the bag once, or that's who I am now. I just so people have a little sympathy for me, considering how bad the mask of mankind smelled by now. Regarding his wrestling style, he said, I'll worry about a lot. It's a major concern for me, and I think over the years I've learned to pick my spots a little better. Oh, sure. Uh, these days, I don't think people watch me just see me crash and burn. <laughs> sure. So I don't feel like I'm letting the fans down if I don't do it every night. He says finisher's now called the Love Hand. <laughs> love, it was Love Handle, was what he said. Yeah. I remember the AOL chat, actually. He said, well, tell Wade that. So he said someday he would like to wrestle in ECW Arena again. Well, good luck with that. He also said that all the best-selling wrestling shirts are the ones that fans aren't afraid to wear to school or work. Let's face it. No matter how good Shawn Michaels is, no teenage woman will suffer the consequence of wearing a picture of Shawn on his chest of school. <laughs> he's not wrong. No, he's not wrong. Re- any shirt... That had a picture of the wrestler, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Forget about it. Can you imagine that he do yeah. love what he got in ECW? Oh. Well, you know what, though? They would have cheered it. You think? Because they're ECW fans. No, but if it was an extension of the heel run, I think is what Ed is saying. If the fans knew the backstory and Dude Love was done as part of that heel no, run in the last six months in ECW. you mean him showing up as Dude Love here, like in this era, Ed? That's what I did mean until oh, okay. I did the Sid and the Scott Hall thing. Yeah, exactly. they would definitely they would just cheer for him. <laughs> oh, oh, if he just showed up at the arena in this era, of course he'd get cheered. Absolutely. Huh. So, all right, let's close it out with part one of this story. Also from the Torch. The August edition of Icon Magazine and a six-page feature on Vincent Mann. That's worth picking up at a newsstand. He talks about not being as close to his father growing up as he wished, and it's a strange relationship with his mother, who has married five times. It chronicles his relationship with his wife, Linda McMahon. <clears throat> Said Vince, when you're around the show business type of environment, around beautiful people, most of them you created... It's pretty easy to fall into, on occasion at least, a very loose morality. That doesn't help business, and it doesn't help your family life, that's for sure. Women, and to a certain extent, drugs. Whatever the drug of choice was for beautiful people. Linda said whatever hurt she has endured is probably not as much as he has felt looking back on it. Wow! Regarding the steroid trial, Vince said, pleading guilty to a bunch of sons of bitches who tried to ruin my life so I can hang on to the business? No, screw the business. If that was the call. Man, man, see, he plans to run the WF until he's so senile, he has to turn the reins over to his kids. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> Regarding Eric Bischoff, man, man, said, my competition is not some flavor of the month running to turn an organization. You're sending me this kid Bischoff at the moment. My competition is the guy who's holding the money. By the way, for the record, at this point, Bischoff has passed the point where he is the longest running WCW executive in charge. He would have earlier in 97. Because Heard had basically exactly three years, and Eric took over, I think, in February '94. So, whatever you want to say about Eric, like he's not—he's not the usual fly-by-night WCW executive in charge. But it's—it's it's Vince, you know. He had that whole stupid thing where if he typed his name, he'd spell it Biscoff <laughs> to pretend he didn't know what his name was, and because he knew it drove Biscoff crazy. Uh, boy, there are some interesting lines here, though. 24 years ago. It's definitely interesting. Okay, so wait. The, the Linda line, whatever hurt she has endured, 
probably not as much as he has felt looking back on it. What the fuck? <laughs> Where do you even start with that? It the I mean, there's a whole section in the Playboy interview where he's she catches him in a lie or something, he says, and he admits to a specific affair, which I've always kind of assumed was Emily Feinberg, because it's someone that Linda knew, and he would have had to have told her about it, because there was the chance it was coming up at the steroid trial, which, you know, they were able to... I wouldn't say I keep it from getting mentioned, but it doesn't get mentioned, and the prosecution agreed they had no interest in mentioning it. But then he talks about how Linda starts asking him other names. Did you have an affair with X, Y, and Z? And he just keeps answering yes. Air <laughs> him the most, though. Yeah. Also, I thought this was one of the interviews used for the uh, the David Shoemaker oral history events thing that he did for Grant. Or, no, excuse me. It was Ringer. It wasn't Grant Lid years ago. But does not appear to be part of it. I don't think I've ever seen this whole article. Kind of curious, too, because it does seem like it's one of the more in-depth Vince profiles, you know? Well, Seems... we're not done, either. We have more on WCW oh, side of things, the reaction of their people on this, and quotes they had in the article. <laughs> and Bob Go ahead. It seems more in-depth uh, than the Playboy article, but definitely not as quotable. Well, it seems like this is more of a feature, because they talk to Linda. You know, the Playboy thing is just straight-up Q&A. It's, you know, the traditional playboy interview um also as vince things about talking about the trial goes this is one of the less egregious because he's in the context of what he was charged with he's right he shouldn't have pled guilty to any of that he like they they got it so that they charged him with something that was physically impossible based on the timeline they provided and no one noticed until trial <laughs> he did not need to plead guilty but I'd, I'd love to read the whole thing one day, but it's it, it involves getting a copy of Icon magazine off eBay, and I still don't even know what that really is. I just found a copy on eCrater. I think that the the link I saw was one of those worth point you type for, eBay. But it's on it's thing. on hold. You can't buy it. Somebody's got it on hold for nine dollars ninety cents. Whatever on hold means. And Wynton Marsalis on the cover of it. By the way, I do hate, too, that there are so many, like, weird, obscure magazines that probably have, like, useful interviews and stuff that are just gone into the ether. No one owns them anymore. They're not on ProQuest or anything. They're just gone. Yeah. Well, the late 90s or the 2000s, good lord. I mean, just a dearth of magazines. Oh, you, you mean know? the era where there were so many magazines, despite everyone on the internet knowing that it was very easy to get free subscriptions to any magazine you wanted? I mean, it was just... I went. To, I mean, I just loved going to Tower Records and just walking their gigantic uh, magazine section, you know, and just, just everywhere, and all the major, all the bookstores, and... Stuff like that. So there were so many magazines out Oh, there. we're going into like a Barnes & Noble or someplace like that, or like the bigger Hudson News places Borders. that had the overseas titles. Borders, absolutely. Stuff like that. My God. Absolutely. So. There you go. World Wrestling Federation. 
All right, Ed will be back with us later as we uh, discuss WCW. But now let's go to Japan when the Rising Sun. We'll begin with All Japan Pro Wrestling. We ran to Cork and Hall July 19th for 2,100 fans. We have Shoshi Kikuchi, Yoshinara Agawa, Satoru Sako, and Daisuke Ikeda. Kamala 2 over Masao Inoue. Masafuchi, Haruka Egan, and Junior Zamita over Jaya Baba, Russia Kimura, Mitsumoto. The The Cross. Jim Steele over Timon Honda. Mr. Hamasawa and Yoshinobu Kanamaru over Junakayama and Kentaro Shiga. Dr. Death Steve Williams and Gary Albright over Stan Hansen and Johnny Smith. Akira Tawe, Toshakawan Takamori over Kentakabashi, Johnny Ace, and Monokea Mossman in your main event. Now, Yoshiro Takayama of the Kingdom promotion worked uh, shows on July 20th and 21st, and he's part of the group that includes Dr. Death, Gary Albright, and Lacrosse, with the connection being that Albright and Takayama were both uh, with the same UWFI promotion a few years ago. On July 20th in Yamato, Takayama, Albright, and Lacrosse beat Masao Inoue, Timon Honda, and Kawada, while the next night in Kawago, Kawago A, Takayama, Albright, and Doc beat Kawada, Tawe, and Masao Inoue. In a main event, when Albright pinned Kawada clean at their German suplex. They're grooming Takayama for Kawada since the two had a memorable match last September on the UWFI baseball stadium show. They were foes in a tag team title match at All Japan Budokan Hall show earlier in the year. Okay. Um, that is obviously the Triangle of Power. Yeah. Forming there. Uh, the Lacrosse, though, is not long for this world, though, because aren't we getting Wolf Hawkfield pretty soon? Uh, definitely in 98. Because I feel like All Japan Pro Wrestling featuring Virtua is in like late 90 i think it's yeah i think it's the 97 tag league right is when they have the saturn logos everywhere i mean it's around that time yeah so he's only got a few months left in this gimmick anyway and i i don't remember was he in triangle of powers with Hawkfield, or did they switch someone else in i think he's just lacrosse no but once he's wolf Hawkfield, is he still part of that group um not positive and for what it's worth, uh, Wikipedia and stuff just say 1997 for the game. But this is Takayama now starting to get in, I would say full-time, but starting to become more of a presence in all Japan. Yep. So, there's that. Yes, nope. and also I did find it interesting that I always forget that Ikeda was in all Japan long before Masawa took over as the booker. Yeah, he worked uh, work shows. Early, early in the game for him, yeah. He was almost more like a, in terms of the pecking order, almost more like a second-tier Hayabusa or Shinzaki than he was... Uh, I don't even know what the comparison would be. But, you know what I mean? Kind of like a Baba favorite guest star junior heavyweight kind of... Well, it's the, deal, the deal is, is they were having to look for guys, you know, guys like him because they're... Young Lion system was nowhere near what New Japan's was, as far as numbers. Has there ever been an explanation for that? Uh, probably because probably because of two reasons. Um, maybe the ones that tried couldn't cut it, and then they probably didn't didn't uh, didn't want to use all those numbers and were depending more on uh, booking uh, foreigners than New Japan was. Mm. Also, uh, we we just don't know that much about the All Japan Dojo in general when you really think about it. Not a whole lot, no. I mean, compared to New Japan, All Japan Women, FMW, 
you know, all the major promotions of that era, I feel like we know a lot more about their dozer system in, you know, English-speaking countries than we do about all Japan's. Uh, so much you interviewed Richard Slinger about it. He wouldn't know, so. Mm. Yeah. Or Moss Man. Yeah. Now, Moss Man, did he replace Patriot in Get, and that's why he's teaming with Ace and Kabashi? Yeah, probably. It's probably some affiliation. That 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 stable did not last long though, because burning comes in ninety eight, right? Yeah. All right, New Japan, and we'll have more on the tapings uh, than WCW. But Monsieur Chono suffered what is being reported as a broken ankle during the WCW Universal tapings in Orlando, Florida. The match against Dusty Wolf, when he delivered an atomic drop, and the ankle went out because his knee was out of position. Even with the injury, Chono has made it clear he's going to work both the G one. Tournament starting like August the first and the Goya Dome show. Earlier in the week, Chono asked that both he, if both he and Shinyashimoto win their first round match at G1 on August first, that a second round match be against each other on August the second, be made into an IWGP Heavyweight Title match. Chono and Hashimoto for the title scheduled for the Goya Dome eight days later, but Chono says since Hashimoto was born in Gifu, a city near Nagoya, and son of a local hero, that he won the going to Nagoya having the title rather than challenging for it. This hasn't been made official, but it's doubtful that an angle like this would be brought up if it wasn't going to be followed up on. Well, he doesn't win the title, so there you go. No, and this is this is the last time they do a single elimination G1, right? 2000. Oh, I forgot 2000 was. That's the big one. But anyway, Chono and Hashimoto is on August 2nd, but it's not for the title, and Hashimoto wins in 545, so... Yeah. And then the Goya Dome, Chono doesn't work because he's hurt. It's Tenzan against Hashimoto. 5.45. So, yeah, Masa, my hero, Chono, got pretty beat up in that match with uh, Dusty Wolf. Yeah, Chono and his injury issues, one of his main problems of his great run, you know, just couldn't stay healthy for an extended period of time. Although this is one of those cases where it's just simple spot goes awry. Yeah. You know, you know, as wrestlers always say, the big injuries are usually from random bullshit. Yeah. You know, Liger broke his ankle doing a slide between Mudo's legs. Um, you know, who knows now that he's out of WWE if he'll ever have another match. You know, like, Sanjay Dutt was just stepping off of running the ropes when he tore his Achilles in his last match. You know, it just shit happens. Yeah, it does. All right, Muga. Testament Fujinami's uh, offshoot. They uh, ran Hakata Starlands on July 22nd for an 1875. We have Shane Lisby, which supposed to be Shane Rigby, I guess, over John Patrick. Alexander Otsuka over Katsushi Takamura. Shinichi Nakano over Nobuyuki Kurashima. And Testament Fujinami over Yuki Shikawa in your main event. Hmm. Now, Muga was promoted by New Japan, though, right? Because otherwise I would feel like Fujinami would have kept the name after he left if, if it was his own thing. It's just an offshoot. That's what I'm saying. It's it's The reason tradition exists is that he doesn't own Muga. Yes. <laughs> now, Battle Arts, they ran a day earlier at Ichihara Shonen Zoo in front of 220 fans. I need to know if that's an actual zoo. Yeah, I didn't, uh, who knows. Alexander Otsuka over Mamoru Akimoto. Takeshi Ono over Ekota Hidaka. Young Generation Battle Match, Kazumi Yasuda over Daisuke Keita by TKO. 
Mamoru Okamoto and Takeshi Ono over Alexander Oskar and Nakoto Adaka. And then Young Generation Battle Match, Victor Kruger over Yuki Ishikawa by TKO. Big Victor Kruger here winning the early uh, foreign stars of Battle Arts getting the big TKO win over Yuki Ishikawa. How did he never get signed and flown into developmental or anything? With his size and Different look, time but, and place. Yeah. Oh, if he was around now, he'd be in developmental in no time. Different time and place, and, yeah. you know, no, they were looking for guys like him, so. Yep. All right, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Great Pogo, formerly the original Mr. Pogo, returned after his December retirement for Big Japan on July 23rd at Cork and Hall against 54-year-old Shinya Kajika. Pogo used a gigantic knife and electric drill on Kojika's forehead. This is built into a match on August 3rd in Osaka where Pogo will face Shoji Nakabaki, a.k.a. Lamanamanui. But with all the four Nages put in the ring and the two have a countdown sprint to grab them. Seiji Yamakawa, Ryuji Yamakawa, and Yoshiro Tajiri won the Big Japan Tag Titles beating Takashi Shikawa and Kishikawa Bata. Ishikawa and Kengo Kimura were the chance, but the two broke up as a team and Kimura is no longer with promotion. Old-time Mexican star Arias Romero is working the Grand Sheet gimmick for this group underneath. All right, they drew 1990 at Cork and Hall. We have uh, Minoru Fujita over Tomoki Homa in your opener. Ichiro Yaguchi over Genosuke Kobayashi, Abby Jr. Aya Koyama over Nana Fujimura. Takeshi Okano over Zumbido, Zumbi Zumbi Zumbidoski. Hiromichi Fuyuki, Gato, and Jado over Kendo Nagasaki, Shoji Nakamaki, and Satoru Shiga, future Shadow WX. Great Pogo over Shinya Kojika. And Big Japan Tag Titles, Yamakawa and Tajiri over Ishikawa and Kawabata to win the titles. I always forget that Fujita was a Big Japan guy originally. Oh, yeah. That's what I love about this era of Japan and the Japanese indies, that Two guys from, you know, friendly but completely different promotions like him and Hidaka can become, like, a regular tag team. Yeah. Well, the Indies work together most of the time, so, you know, you guys are just flip-flop back and forth. Right. And, of course, Big Japan and Battle Arts had their feud as well. Well, yes. Well, that's what I said. They work together a lot, and they have their little promotion feuds and stuff. So... Now, did they have the same hair until they were before they were a tag team, though? Oh no. Okay. I think Fujita's. If I remember correctly, Fujita's black hair, short tights here. Oh, young lion type. Yeah. So, all right. FMW. They ran Osaka Rinkai Sports Center on July nineteenth for twenty four hundred fans. We have Crusher Mel Demar over Miss Mongol, Ricky Fuji over Flying Kita Chihara. The Headhunters over Leatherface and Freddy Krueger. Shar Shishuya and Eagle Sawai over Michiko Omaka and Kori Nakayama. Wing Kanemura, Bad Boy Hito, and Hideki Asaka beat Masato Tanaka, Tezira Kuroda, and Mr. Pogo number two. Then we have the Gladiator and Hiskatsu Oya and Mr. Ganesuke over Hayabusa, Jensei Shinzaki, and Koji Nakagawa. Of course, Mr. Pogo number two was, uh, if I remember, Gosaku. Gosaku Goshigawara, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's... So was Omukai FMW trained, or is she a freelancer who just happens to be here? Oh, it's, it's it. Well, Eagle Sawai's here. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. I do add a brain fart there. And, so wait, uh, so, so Sawai so is was, uh, LPW, right? Uh huh. 
So why is it LLPW, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, so I guess Omakai started there, and I didn't realize. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, and Gosaku was Mr. Pogo number two, so... There you go with that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a sellout house at, at, at the building. Uh, FMW has a, a, a tremendous 1997. It's one of their banner years of the promotion. A lot going on that year. Yes. So. And it's weird, too, because it's also like they rebound somewhat business-wise, but it's from a mix of finally having built new stars, but also Onita coming back. Yeah. And also the biggest star that they had built in the interim retires during the year, and that's a problem. And kudos. Yeah. And this is also, you know, faction warfare and Zen and all that stuff at Terry Funk and Yeah. Alright. Now let's go to the Yuki Army, speaking of all shoots. The Yuki Gun promotions on July twenty first and Hakata may have promoted their first in Japan. The main event was a six-man tag, or six-person tag, you want to call it that, as Gato, Jado, and Fuyuki went against the Headhunters and female wrestler Shark Shishuya, where Shark pinned Fuyuki with an inside credit to win the match, which they believe will be the first time a woman has ever pinned a male star in a Japanese match. Full results of this card, Chikaku Shiratori over Masami Azuka, Yuki Lee over Sachi Abe, Jaguar Yokota over Yura. Gato over Freddy Krueger, Linus Asuka and the Bloody Phoenix over Kuga and Yuko Kazuki, and then Headhunters and Shark over Fuyuki, Gato, and Jado. Now this setup, the show the next day in Nagasaki, where um, Fuyuki faced former crush gal Linus Asuka in a singles match. Asuka started with a low blow, and then Super Leather, Mike Kirshner, Corporal Kirshner came out with his chainsaw and cut up Fuyuki's head. Asuka did one finish after another on Fuyuki, getting near fall. She's moves like a moonsault, two power bombs, a head buff, top rope, superplex, Wakitami submission for a rep bump. Gato and John interfere, and they did a triple power bomb on Asuka, and Fuyuki scored the, scored the pin. It was then that Asuka and Shishuya would team with LOPW's Eagle Sawai in the August 5th support tournament with the rest being men's teams for the FMW World Street Fight 6 per man tag title. This drew a thousand fans. Kuga won a battle royal. Jaguar Yokota and Yuko Kasugi over Bloody Phoenix and Ryura. Gato and Jado over Flanky and Char and Super Leather. And then Fuyuki over Lioness Asuka. Well, that happened. <laughs> There's your intergender stuff, Bix. Yeah, I had no idea that Drew got into the business booking for Fuyuki Gun. <laughs> yeah, I mean. 1997. You know, Fuyuki was ahead of his time. This is pre-China wrestling, yeah. Yeah. And trying to think, what else? You know, there were some indie gimmicks that played off of China, but those all I think came all came right after she started wrestling. Then, um, Tenru and Kandori is a few years later. I can't think of anything before this. Can you? No. Yeah, Fuyuki was ahead of the game, that's for sure. So there you go. All right, Michinoku Pro. Grace Sasuke ran what was billed as his farewell show on July sure. 19th. Jinhohei, pinning Tiger Mask 4 over 578 fans. Michinoku Pro's really gone down with Shiru having quit. Kasayashi, now Metsuko. Took a Michinoku in Mexico, And if you hadn't done so already, certainly being a strong possibility on WF. Jensei Shinzaki on tour with FMW and we're for all Japan, although he hasn't completely quit this office. And Super Delphin haven't quit as well. 
which explains that strange situation in his singles match a few weeks back where he wouldn't wrestle Ditogo. Sasuke announced the company's biggest show in the year on October 10th at Tokyo Sumo Hall will be headlined by Undertaker versus Jensei Shizaki, and the three other WF headliners would work the show. The situation with Sasuke and WF seems quite uncertain. At a press conference on July 18th, Sasuke had to mad at WF for flying him in with an economy class ticket from Japan, given the idea that WF didn't respect the level of stardom he's achieved in the industry. He also took it as an insult when they first flew Michinoku from Mexico, who in the pecking orders below him, they flew him in first class. Although others are saying that Sasuke would actually pay more for the matches than Taka, because he's the bigger star on a worldwide basis. There's tremendous pressure with all the guys leaving his company theoretically having to run all these shows if he weren't to be on them because he's in the U.S. and U.S. Instead, this also may be posturing and they have to up their deal with him. All right, before we talk about that, real quick, the results of that show, 570 fans in Hachinoe, Nerushikawa Masaru Seno, Yoni Genjin went to no contest with Wanda Lucas Jr., Shichi Fanaki, Hanzo Nakajima, and Minsteo and Ditogo Kayantai over Masato Yokosuji, Nehirashikawa, Grand 91, Grand Amada, and Sasuke over Tiger Mask 4. All right, Bix, what are your thoughts on Sasuke's uh, whining here? I forget. Was his seemingly leaving for the WWF the catalyst for people leaving, or was there just other stuff going on? <sighs> not for Delphin. <laughs> well, Delphin ends up not leaving yet, anyway. Yeah, that's later. But uh, I think it, <laughs> I think there were some people that had issues with Sasuke, so that way. So I don't know. It's like in that promotion, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that go on. You know, I mean, you have it depends on the day sometimes on who's friendly with each other. Well, uh, there, there's a lot of conflicts between people. So yeah, who knows? Who really knows? But uh. Economy class. <laughs> uh, Sasuke, something else. <laughs> you believe you believe this, or is this just stuff he's just throwing out there? I don't know. I I can see Victor doing the talk and negotiating and insisting on first class or something. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I don't know though. And I don't know if I know that specific match with the Togo Delphin thing, but I'm guessing that's part of the ongoing angle they were doing. Yeah, it was. Okay. So, good lord. No Sasuke. All right. SPWF. They ran a show at Kumamoto City Gym on July 18th in front of 859 fans. The early days of SPWF when they were still, I mean, running like a regular indie promotion. We have Masiko Kochi over Kawasaki, not first name. Crusher Takahashi over Hiroshi Asumi. Chiharu over Mass Okada. Don't know. Then we get to this match. Ishamu Teranishi and a Mr. Wrestling. No idea. Being Maeda, no first name, and DeLorean Power. Okay. And then we have the main event. Oh my god, I just saw this. Charlie Norris, Sam Houston, and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Over Ichiro Yaguchi, the one-man gang, and the murderer. Now, do you remember what the murderer looked like? No. He was wearing, like, a, if I remember right, like, a green, kind of vaguely lizardy, like, monster-type mask. <laughs> and here he's teaming with uh, the man known now as Raijin uh, Yaguchi. What is it? Raijin or Ranjin Yaguchi? 
know. It's one or the other. Uh, and one man gang. Uh, murderer. Again, uh, these gimmicks. Murderer. Don't know. Mr. Wrestling. Don't know. <laughs> but the murderer is not a one off, though. The murderer was in, like, you know, the super catalogs and stuff at the time in this era. Yeah, like, but it's got to be. It's, these are got to be Americans or some type of non Japanese, but who knows? Well, I got to think Mr. Wrestling's a foreigner. I don't know about DeLorean power, though. <laughs> DeLorean power. Is that me- is he measured in gigawatts? <laughs> I wonder if he's powered by cocaine. I don't know. I mean, it is DeLorean power. Well, a lot of the wrestlers these days, well, I won't say a lot, but a few wrestlers these days are powered by cocaine. So, I'm actually glad I let you finish that because I was going to make a joke about if he knows Kushida, but I didn't want to imply that Kushida does coke. <laughs> I wanted to make it clear it was the DeLorean thing, but anyway. All right, let's go to Wrestle Dream Factory now. They were at Cork and Hall on July 16th. We have uh, Bashara and Kato over Soldier and Fujisaki in the first name. Azteca over Wolf. Shinichi Shano and Rikyo Ida over Gokaku Umibozu and Masashi Oyangi qualification. Then we have Masaki, Masaki Mochizuki, Takashi Kamura, President Kamura, and Yoshikazu Taru over Kamikaze. Fukuda, no first name, and Hiroshi Kasuba. Is that Masakazu Fukuda? I guess. It's got to be, I think. Then we have Yoshiaki Fujiwara over Shinigami in a singles match. And then our main event, Shinichi Nakano and Masashi Mategi over Tarzan Goto and Ryo Miyaki. I don't know if I've ever seen a match on paper quite like Yoshiaki Fujiwara versus Shinigami. (laughs) Uh, For those who don't know, Shinigami was... What would you call him? Like, uh, kind of, was he partners with Onryo? Yes. And he did kind of a similar gimmick, more zombie-ish, I guess. And bigger guy than Onryo who had claw-hold-centric offense. Like the claw slam and the claw suplex. And here he's wrestling a singles match with Fujiwara. Yep. <laughs> the dangerous shooter who dabbles in porn. Um, you might be uh, interested to know this. Shinigami has a Facebook page. Oh, there's a picture of him. He wrestled this year, uh, posing with uh, Ultimo Dragon and somebody in a Darth Vader costume. <laughs> I, I'm trying to. How do I find this? Uh, I mean, I can link you in the chat. Hold on. Okay. He had a birthday recently. His real name is Hideo Matsuda. Okay. Let's see. As I look this up here. So what? I'm looking at his post here? I'm clicking on the Just scroll down the timeline. It's not very far. Is he birthday stuff? Okay. Oh, wow. He's friends with Naoshi Sano. And I have eight mutual friends of Naoshi Sano. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's good to know. I have four mutual friends with Shinigami. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, so I have six mutual friends with Shinigami. Uh, you're my, okay. One of these people I don't even remember. I don't remember why I'm friends with this person on Facebook. I'm drawing a blank. The other five who I'm Facebook friends with that are Facebook friends with Shinigami are Jimmy Suzuki, uh, Kikitaro. Kazuo Sakurada, Ultimo Dragon, and Jamutsuruta's son, Yuji. I got a better mutual friend. 
One of uh, the mutual friend I have with Shinigami is uh, Paul Varlins. <laughs> so there you go. Well, All right. Now this. What a great segue. So wait a second. Wait a second. Did Paul Varlins, when he would do shows, do fighting in Japan, he would take in like Dream Factory shows? Who knows? Well, speaking of. The on-again, off-again shoot match between Hickson Gracie and Nobuhiko Takada is back on again for October 11th at Tokyo Dome, but not without a lot of questions to be answered and a lot of skepticism where this version of the show will take place. The event, first proposed for June, then pushed back to August, then canceled due to Nippon Television pulling out a deal, which took away between 250000 and 500000 from the show's budget, leaving them without a major television coverage or promotion event. Nippon TV was apparently concerned that a true shoot match could easily wind up lasting only one minute, or turn into a law defensive struggle which made for boring television, so the risk of viewer dissatisfaction was relatively high. However, according to the press reports late last week, Tokyo's Channel 12 this past week agreed to broadcast show live and pay the rice fees, and the match was announced after Takata signed the contract on July 17th. Gracie arrived in Japan on July 19th for a July 22nd press conference in Tokyo to formally announce the match. However, at that press conference, it was instead announced that Sky Perfect TV a home satellite outfit in its infancy in Japan, so direct to be in the United States, will be broadcasting the match. What was also strange in the press conference that the promotional company, a new group called Kakutogi Revolution Spirits, KRS for short, didn't announce when tickets would go on sale or ticket prices. Which usually what these press conferences are held to, for, to either kick off ticket sales or to announce a date they go on sale. The company didn't even announce where it would be setting up its office, and its phone number or fax number or any contact info that people could get for further information. Later, reporters called Tokyo Dome. They were told the building wasn't even booked for October 11th. The company has originally pending this promotion, H2O, not Matt Tremont's promotion. Uh, this one's on, based on Nagoya, which had also never promoted anything at this level, had dropped out of the show due to inability to finance such an undertaking. It was announced at press conference that Gracie would be receiving $935,000 for the match a figure which is more, likely more than any no-holds bar fighter has ever earned in the ring during their entire lifetime, let alone for one match, while Takata would be receiving $187,000. The main figure for Takata was roughly the same as he received from each fan for his three Tokyo Dome record-setting houses against Keichimoto twice, Ishiyashimoto once, in 95-96. In the original deal, Grace was promised a $600,000 guarantee and percentage of the house, which would sell out current him in the $900,000 range in total, which is believed to be the second-largest payoff ever for an event of this type. Muhammad Ali was offered $6 million for a 1976 mixed match with Antonio Noki, but actually received close to $1.8 when all was said and done. The highest payoff we were aware of for a single pro wrestling event besides Ali would be $750,000 that Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant received for their 1987 WrestleMania match. And I figured to believe there'd be about $750,000 that Dennis Rodman received for his match at Bash at the Beach on July 13th. What I believe to be the largest person women in the whole bar genre being $150,000 first prize won by Dan Severn at Don Fry and their respective Ultimate Ultimate Tournaments. The match should be fought in the maximum 12 five-minute rounds would have been in the boxing ring as opposed to an octagon, with a two-minute rest period between rounds. If the match goes to time limit, the match will be declared a draw, rather than having the judge's decision. If both fighters agree to it after 12 rounds are over, the match can continue indefinitely under sudden death rules. The match can end with a tap-out or by stoppage by the referee or doctor over the corner throwing the towel. There will be no rope escapes or breaks if caught in the submission hole, and the grabbing the ropes is illegal. There will be no kicking with shoes, so Takata would fight barefooted, likely. Both are mandated by the rules to wearing light grappling gloves. 
they have the option to wear elbow or knee pads, and elbows are legal set to the spine. There'll be no kicking of an opponent who is down. Headbutting is illegal, and there are no attached to the groin, spine, hair, or eyes allowed. The ring will have four ropes like boxing instead of three like pro wrestling. Uh, well, I'll continue reading the whole thing. Shit. There'll be six other matches on the show with no hints as to who, as to whether they'll be worked or shoot matches. The only names announced thus far appearing on the show are Koji Katao and Yoji Anjo. Two named Japanese pro wrestlers who have done shooting matches in the past. Although Katao is 0-2 and Anjo is 0-1 in Palatudo competition. Rumor has it that Katao's foe would be Ricardo Moraes. And that Brazilian's Roberto Traven, who was a tournament in Russia recently. He was a tournament? I should say who was in a tournament. And Fabio <laughs> Gurgel would be on the show which gives Greenacy the idea that it would be an all-shoot show. In the past, Gracie has insisted on not only doing a work, on only not doing a work match, but not even agreeing to a time frame such as agreeing to carry his opponent for one round before going for a victory in the second round. Plus, had insisted he wouldn't appear on a show where any match would work because he didn't want anyone to question the credibility of his match. His younger brother, Hoist, turned down a reported a million-dollar deal for New Japan Pro Wrestling to a job for Antonio Noki in a match that would have taken place on October 96 at the Tokyo Dome. And resulted in the entire show having to be scrapped. Originally, the belief was that Grace Nakata would be able to sell the Tokyo Dome as the most hyped shoot, as opposed to work shoot, match in the history of Japanese pro wrestling. But fan anticipation has likely been soured by the previous postponement cancellation, plus the fact that the interest level of pure shooting has decreased in Japan, as well as in the United States. However, one would think from a financial standpoint, this would be the biggest money Knowles Bar match in history, which again shows the value of fake hype over reality production. Gracie, reputed in many circles to be the greatest fighter in the world, has not had that reputation truly tested in many years. Now 38, the 185-pound son of fighting legend Helio Gracie, an older brother of Hoist Gracie, won two Valley Tudor tournaments in Japan, but none of those tournaments contain any big-name fighters other than Gerard Gordeau. Oh, okay, okay, real quick. Because <laughs> this will get lost if we don't mention it now. Um... The field in that Valley Tudo Japan was better than a lot of early UFCs. Not in Dane's mind, I guess. <laughs> they had a kickboxer who knew how to stop takedowns and submit people. They had multiple shooto guys. Like, I think that's a, I think that's a better rounded uh, set of fighters. Yeah. All right. Um. In the second tournament, blah, 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 who actually lost in the first round, even though he was a stand-up stand up fighting legend and had very limited ground skill. With major holds bar shows taking place in the U.S., Japan, Brazil, Europe, Russia, and Australia, he chose to set all of them out, never answered challenges issued by various winners of major tournaments, such as Dan Severin, Ken Shamrock, and Mark Coleman, instead waiting for someone to meet a nearly seven-figure price tag. It's a wise business strategy because his time came. Gracie is reputed to be undefeated in 400 matches. And all that figure is clearly an exaggeration. He's never been beaten, and his damn Brazil was considered as the best fighter in the world. And did tap out Olympic gold medal winning wrestler Mark Schultz twice. At the same time, in his last competitive situation, where two years ago in a Japanese tournament in Budokan Hall, he had a first-round match against Japanese pro wrestler Yoshisa Yamamoto, and he looked very much human, as opposed to mythical, and took a 21 minutes to beat Yamamoto instead of a few shoot matches that time in rings that he has lost in a much faster and more one-sided contest. The fighter's like... Ricardo Moraes with far less reputation and skill level. Takada is one of the greatest pure athletes and workers of this generation in pro wrestling. He had the reputation of being a strong shooter in the dojo and has excellent demonstration kickboxing skills as opposed to battle-tested kickboxing skills. 
But the fact is, he's still a pro wrestler. He's never had a legitimate contest. He's a top level fighter in his life. Not to mention that he's 35 years old, past the athletic prime. And as we consider an incredible long shot, he'd be able to survive for any length of time against someone who's with so much experience in this form of fighting, even given the fact he'll have a 25, 30 pound size advantage, as well trained in both standing and ground fighting, and is a few years younger. All right, Bix. <laughs> yes. This happens. I mean, we get this. This, this is, is the actual Pride date. One. Yep. Pride one. And. It was 447. Okay. What what do you make of had a, the reputation of being a strong shooter in the dojo? Nah. I mean, Takata was a guy who could hold his own in the dojo. But again, that's the dojo. You're saying fighting against world-renowned shoot fighters. Well, that's a good, actually, that's a good point. I, I wonder... But what 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 are the differences, especially since it's still such a grappling heavy sport at the time? Well, there, I mean, in grappling dojo, dominated in, in dojo, you're not having guys throwing the strikes like like a like kicks on Gracie or other. You know, I mean, it's not a complete deal. I mean, your main it's mainly I would say mainly a, a grappling art form. Anything else? Okay. Because I'm thinking about it, and it's like, yeah, you know, he had a good reputation in the dojo, and Anjo, I should say, had a good reputation in the dojo. But they were probably the two worst shooters from that dojo, from that dojo system that was actually tested. You know, the best would be Sakuraba and Tamara. Yeah. I'm trying to think, is there anyone else that's from the original... I shouldn't say original, but from the UWF system. Well, the thing so is, is that Sakuraba and Tamara are, they were the young guys, and they came up more in the UWFI system than the UWF system. So they're dealing in a different type of situation. But wasn't Takata one of the coaches? Yeah, but it's still not the same. I, I still you, have trouble reconciling UWFI, how bad UWFI, he was. UWFI, I think, was more based on striking. Okay, that's the difference. I mean, UWF. The, I mean, Fujiwara, Maeda. I mean, Maeda was a stri- could strike too, but you Fujiwara Maeda. Well, Maeda was a karate guy originally. Yeah, but but, but it, it was there was a lot of a lot of gotch style. You know what I'm saying? Right. I get what you're saying. The whole this is re- you have a more of a direct Carl Gotch influence. So you have the whole this is wrestling, not soccer thing. So look, look at the difference between U- rings and UWFI. That's a good point, actually. Look at the difference between U- PWFG and UWFI. PWG is like a middle ground, so to speak, between rings and UWFI. Yeah, UWFI is basically New Japan with most of the moves stripped out. But again, it's, there's a lot more kickers. Yes. Basically. So there's your difference. Yeah. So any as for other stuff here, um, trying as I scroll back up because there was a lot here. What do you think of some of those rules? 12 five-minute rounds and then sudden death rounds unlimited if they agree to them? Yeah. Well, 47860 was the announced house for that uh, Tokyo Dome show. And, uh, I mean, yeah, Kimo and Dan Severing with the 30-minute draw. You had Bronco, Sikatich, uh, uh, and Ralph White, no contest. Koji Katao over Nathan Jones. That was a work. Enzo Gracie and Akira Shoji going to a 10-minute draw. 
Gary Goodridge over Oleg Tatarov, and Kazan Murakami over John Dixon. So. I just thought of something. What? Is this the. Is this the first MMA card to have two Gracies on it? As far as a non Brazilian show. As I'm far as outside so. of Brazilian Valet 2 down the like, yes, yes. Yeah, probably so. I never I never think about it that Penzo's on this one. And the uh, Bronco Sicketish match, that was a K1 match. K1 it was level. under K1 kickboxing rules. Okay, and Branco, for those who don't know him, he's probably best known these days as the... Uh, well, he was the first K1 Grand, Grand Prix champion in 93, but he's probably best known now as uh, Mirko Krokop's mentor. Yeah, so... This is the beginning of Pride, so obviously it was a success. So, and Takata loses to Hickson, so... Yes, but they eventually have the rematch where it's pretty clear Hickson agreed to carry him for a round yeah. or so. And, you know, of course, Takata also got, you know, his very obviously worked win over Kyle Sturgeon and then later would get his even more obviously worked win over Mark Coleman. Oh, of course. So there you go, Takata and Gracie. All right, Pack Race. They ran their annual Neo Blood for the Younger Wrestlers Tournament. The afternoon evening shows on July 20th at Cork and Hall. Both draw themselves to 2250. Keitra won the tournament, beating Satoshi Ashigawa in the finals. The main event in the evening show was a match to determine the next challenger for the King of Pancrase title in September between Minoru Suzuki and Jason DeLucia. It was announced that day that Suzuki had just blown on his knee in training for the match and he didn't reconstruct the surgery and be out of match for the rest of the year. So DeLucia won the match by forfeit. They did offer refunds, which is rare in Japan because generally they get the word out in the press well ahead of time about a main event substitution. Apparently, this injury really was at the last minute. There were a lot of changes in the original lineups as Bob's Root and Guy Metzger's match was canceled when Metzger can participate from announcing injury suffered an auto accident a few weeks back. Probably the biggest upset of the year in Pancrase took place on the evening show when Jason Godsey upset King of Pancrase champion Yuki Kondo in a non-title match with a forearm choke in 8-17. Maybe in the afternoon shows for normal contendership for the title. Why would they have a match for normal contendership at a totally different match the same day for the ti- next title shot? It's one of those things that don't make much sense. Where Moscow's Fanaki kept his spot using the guillotine choke on Osami Shibuya. Our afternoon show, Satoshi Ashikawa over David Moore, Akisa Minawa over Haigar Chen, Kosei Kubota over Kim Jong-Wan, Kichi Yamamiya over Les Johnston, Leon Daiko over Takafumi Udo, Ito, and Moscow's Funaki over Osami Shibuya. Night show. Hashikawa over Minawa, Yamamiya over Kubota, Jason Gatsu over Yukikondo, and then Yamamiya over Hashikawa. Thoughts? I'm just trying to map out in my brain how many of these are works and how many are shoots. Yeah, but that's for Minoru Suzuki, huh? Yeah. So, mm. All right, rings. They ran uh, July 22nd at Osaka Faritsu Gym before uh, 4,500 fans. With a surprise result of Kyoshi Tamura beating Besazi Tarillo in the main event. It was interesting to Tamara and not Akira Maeda to put in the main event, particularly when Maeda was facing one known Hans Nyman. While Tamara is a much bigger star than Tarillo, the group always keeps Tarillo strong, and the size difference between the two is immense. As Tarillo is 6'6.5, 310, Tamara is 5'8, 190. Jerry Bolander, scheduled to make his pro wrestling debut on this show, canceled last minute. Bolander flew to Japan, had some, some sort of paperwork problem when he got there, and was sent back. He's still scheduled to work for rings in the future, and there's this chance Frank Shamrock will wind up with them as well. All right, the rest of the card. Shoshikasaka over Grom Zaza. 
Christopher Hazeman over Minoru Tanaka, Masuki Narusa over Wataru Sakata, Yoshio Yamamoto over Masuya Nagai, Akira Maeda over Hans Diamond, and Kyoshitamura over Besadze Torio. These days, when we're going over these results, and there's not that much that's particularly notable, it's always interesting to me to see the Dutch guys in both the rings and the Pancras results, knowing that they're all booked through Chris Dolman and would kind of have pissing contests with each other over whose fights were worked and whose were shoots. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating to me that he was double dipping like that. I wonder how well known that was, though, outside of, like, the Dutch martial arts community, though. Like, was it a kayfabe thing? Was Dolman kayfabing that he was also with Pancrase? Or was it a thing like, this guy has a chance in a shoot, he goes to Pancrase, this guy is probably a better, it probably wouldn't, so he goes to rings? Is it that? Like, what do you think? Uh, just playing all the fields, I guess, you know? Yeah. Keeping all your options open. A lot of future pro wrestlers on this car. Kosaka, Tanaka, Naruse, Sakata, Yamamoto, Nagai. Well, it's rings, that. so they're already yeah. pro wrestlers. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but it's about, like... Traditional pro wrestling. Yeah. I totally forgot Tanaka worked rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a lot on this one. That's We've good. got our early 2000s junior heavyweight battle, too, in Naruse and Sakata. Yeah. Let's go to Joshi and some big news here. Anja Kong, real name Erika Shishido, announced at a press conference on July 14th she would be leaving All Japan Women at, at, in a promotion that she's been a stable for the past 11 years. Kong, 26, announced her final match will be on August 20th at the major All Japan Women show at Tokyo Budokan Hall. Oh, 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 26? Oh, I wonder why she's leaving All Japan Women. Well, it went, she said it was not going to be her retirement, but she would consider her graduation. Uh-huh. No behind the scenes details of the whys were made clear, but the believe is that Kong must continue wrestling, but not the taxing 250 plus date per year All Japan Women's schedule. Kong indicates she wanted to wrestle one more year working as a freelancer so she can have a match against top stars from women's promotions. All Japan Women's popularity has gone down in recent years due to not being able to produce any new stars. While there have been exceptions in recent years, generally All Japan Women want their wrestlers to be to retire at age 26 to not block their young stars' ascension, but that rule has been relaxed. Because of the lack of young stars with potential to headline. Honestly, even the promotion comes just one week after Toshiya and Yamada made a similar announcement joining the Gaia promotion. Could you imagine if uh, a male wrestling promotion here in the United States held a uh, mandatory retirement age? How'd that would go? What would they even make it? Could you imagine if WCW would have done that? <laughs> and where, like, you. Once you hit the age of, uh, I don't know, 40, 45, you had to retire. Could you imagine that? Were they still doing 250 shows a year? They were doing a lot of shows. So for what it's worth, I just went on Cage Match and put 1996, because that's her last full year in All Japan Women. Uh, I mean, she has like one or two matches in other promotions, but overall, yeah, she had 248 matches in 1996. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Oh, yeah. In that style, especially. Oh, absolutely. I'm pretty sure there wasn't nights off for them. I mean, being that they have home videos where you see, like, Akira Hokuto getting injections and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, no nights off for the women. They're gonna, and they work hard anyway. So, yeah. Speaking of, all Japan women are being is being decimated by injuries. Mariki Yoshida broke her arm on July 22nd in Hano and be out of action for at least four, six weeks. Yumi Fukawa is out of action with a fractured foot. Riyadh Simon is working on a very bad knee. While Mima Shimoda is working with a bad neck. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that those women worked all those, has worked all those years. Some of them still working. You know, it's amazing that they it, that they hold up. And Toyota only retired a few years ago, and she she held up remarkably well, though physically. Yeah, and you look at people like you look at Mako Sonomura. Oh God, I'm, God knows, and she's been around for you know God knows twenty five plus years. Yeah, twenty six years now, I think twenty five plus years, and it's still one of the best performers in the world <laughs> in WWE UK. Oh boy, Fitz getting phone calls again. <laughs> no, no, I can I can take care of this one. I just had to do the uh, text reply thing. I thought I had muted it though. But anyway, all right. So the multi-promotional women's junior all-star show took place on July 19th. Yokohama Bunker Gym for four thousand fans. Younger wrestlers from all different offices that have women wrestlers participate as a way to give newcomers main event exposure on a big show. And the top matches. Mako Sonomura and Snokokado of Gaia retained their AAAW junior tag titles, beating Tomoko Miyaguchi of JWP and Saya Endo of All Japan Women. Yoshiko Tamura of All Japan Women won the WCW Women's Cruiserweight, remember that belt, from uh, Toshi Yamatsu in 2009, while Momo Nakanishi of All Japan Women retained her All Japan junior title, beating Sumi Sakai of JD. Full results. Rina Ishii and Sakura Hirota team with Amami Kato of Gaia to beat Nana Fujimura, Ayakuyama, and Miho Kawasaki of Big Japan. Sachi Abe of JD over Miyuki Fuji of All Japan Women. Nani Takahashi and Miho Wakazawa of All Japan Women over Miyuki Sugabe and Sari Asuma, JD and JWP respectively. Masai Genki and Tanny Mouse, no. All Japan Women. Over Keiko Ono and Miho Watabe of LPW. This should have been the main event. Uh, Tomoko Kazumi over uh, JWP over Shiro Ono uh, Independent. Then we had the uh, Momo title uh, match. Yuka Shin of Ultimate Women team with uh, Kanaka Matoya of JWP and Yuka Kazuki of JD. It'll be Sugar Sato of Gaia, Chikai Nagashima of Gaia, and Rika Amano of JWP in 30 minutes. Well, they went to a draw. Not and then the uh, Tamra over Imatsu made a bit. Oh, we're not done. Then we had the the Sadamurakado Sodom, over Miyaguchi Endo. That was a man. So there you go. Hmm. Again, nice that all these promotions could work together and have a card like this. So in in this sort of analogy, who does this make Impact Wrestling? <laughs> well, a lot of their t- people aren't young. <laughs> They're not young talent trying to uh, well. to get the main event exposure. So, I mean, they're not, they're not old, but they're not young. No, they're just so mooching off other companies. <laughs> or is Impact mooching off other companies? No, I mean Impact is. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, But anyway, there you go. Gaia, Toshiki Yamada's debut as a regular for the Gaia promotion was on July 21st at Cork and Hall Park, solid 1,800 fans. Yamada beat Koru in what was billed as a UFC rules match. No idea if that constituted a shoot or match work luck or shoot, but Dave's guessing a ladder since Koro just lost 
launched into five rope breaks of submissions. Akira Hokuto worked that show both under her ring name and under a mask of the main event as Reina Jabuki. They started a feud with Jabuki and Sugar Sato. All right. We have Rina Ishii and Sakura Hirota over Maiko Matsumoto and Amami Kato. Akira Hokuto over Maki Namao. Yamada over Kaoru. Shigusa Nagayo and Toshi Yamatsu over Meiko Sadamura and Sonokokado. And Reina Jabuki and Law Infernal over Shukasado and Shikayo Nagashima. I'm guessing Law Infernal is Kaoru under a mask, and Dave just didn't mention that. Sounds right. Right, because she had bit her full name at one point was Infernal Kaoru. Yeah. So there you go. Double duty for her, some uh, two women on this show. Then we have JWP. They ran a weird angle on July 18th at Corkin Hall with Street 1900 fans. Main event was Devil Masami and Tomoko Kazumi against Hikaru Fukuoka and Mi- Tomoko Miyaguchi. Fukuoka and Masami pinned and the ref counted two, then held up his count as if he thought Masami was supposed to kick out, but she didn't since only nine minutes to the match. And JWP Corkin main events usually last around 20. Masami started screaming in the house that she was pinned and she lost the match and walked out of the ring. Fans were chanting double, double for 10 minutes to get, get her back in the ring, but she never came back. Jennifer's president got in the ring with tears in his eyes. So the only thing he come up with was to restart the match as a handicap match with Kazumi going against both, which Kazumi ended up doing and losing. Masami has since worked all the JDP house shows at that time, so it isn't like she walked out of the promotion or anything. Huh? Results. Plum Mariko over Kanaka Matoya. Kuri Suzuki over Kandi Okutsu. Akira Hokuto over Michael Matsumoto over Reiko Amano and Miyami Ozaki. And then Fukuoka Miyaguchi over Masami and Kazumi. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. Through a 2021 lens, the most simple explanation seems like she got her bell rung and the rest just kind of flowed from there. I can't think of anything else that makes sense. Can you? Well, it, I mean, it's not like she's a JWP regular at this time. Or she's working for Gaia. I mean, she works for JP, JWP, but... You know what she, I'm saying, though? I don't think this is her being unprofessional. It's weird, whatever it is. Um, I think that's the only thing that makes sense. It, you know, then, you know, she's out of it. She's yelling on the house mic, and who knows? And then, also, that would also explain... If nothing else happens after, it also explains why she doesn't go back in the match, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm guessing she's hurt. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else on this I can find. Um, it doesn't look like there's anything on this. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, hold on. Let's try this. Okay. Uh. Okay. Um. This aired on the W O W O W. Wow! Wow! Sure. Wow! 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 That was the network they were on. Yes. Uh, the name of the show was J Hot Shower '97. Oh my god! <laughs> um. Wow. I'm looking at Laura Fice's re- review of this. Uh huh. He says Devil's pin, but the ref doesn't count it, so she just walks out. Kazumi continues two to one, but they don't show this on the TV show. That's all I said about it. Okay. And she's she's on the, the, the next shows. She's working on the August 17th Cork and Hall shows. She's super healed of Masami on those shows. It's, I mean, it's... it's that was a Muda-type gimmick. So I guess that's what this is. It's an angle. It's an angle. I think what at best like, it's an angle, <laughs> yeah. What it sounds like to me, yes. So 
if she's if she's bringing the superhero gimmick out on the on the next big shows, yeah, that's what it is. Okay. All right. Out of Vant CWA, they ran Vienna, Austria, on July twentieth on their uh, tour. Super Brawl, name of this show. We have submission rules. Mark the Hunter over Osama Nishimura on his thirty fifth excursion. Handicap match: Rasta the Voodoo Man over Michael Kovac and Rico the Gladiador. Rico the Cuba. Street fight: Tony St. Clair with Fit Finley by disqualification. A chain match: Christian Eckstein over Robbie Brookside. In a main event: A steel cage match: Franz Schumann and Ulf Herman over Eddie Steinblock and Cannonball Grizzly. Yo Master baby, of the Tope Suicida. PN News. Did you see that gif that was going around today? Yeah. Of of him hitting a fairly decent tope on uh, Rhino, of all people. Mm-hmm. But not in CWA, in ECW. Um, did anyone have a more stop-start wrestling career than Lester Spite? <laughs> yeah, he was all he was around the world, wasn't he? Here he, he's back as Rasta the Voodoo Man. man well, man here. not He was a man in global. Uh just on and off you know he's one of the wcw plaintiffs in a few years based on whatever efforts he made to try to get hired there who knows yeah i wonder about weird stuff like that you know like malibu from american gladiators showing up as a wrestler just in five star that kind of thing Mm-hmm. but anyway there you go autobots cwa yep Super Brawl. You know, we're about being sued over there, I guess. <laughs> well, okay, so wait a second. That's a good point. I mean, well, what about WCW guy working the show? Yeah, what I was going to mention, though, was Super Brawl in Hawaii, the MMA promotion. They changed their name, I believe, because WCW threatened a lawsuit. Right? Because they became the Icon States. Sport, wasn't it? Hawaii is in the United States. Well, yes. But CWA is also a business partner of one of their business partners. Yeah. All right, it's halftime. So after some great 1997 commercials, we'll come back and talk about our Patreon. Then we'll talk about IWTV, hit the blogs, and then we'll come back where we'll go to uh, North America. So we have Lucha and Canada and all stuff going on there. And then we'll have an ECW section when we get back to the United States, which has a lot of stuff in there, boy. All that more after the break. What's your favorite month of the year? May. Ooh, what a rush. Are you kidding me? Ooh, September. Now, every month will be your favorite with the 1997-98 WWF Superstar Calendar. It covers 18 months, not just 12, and is chock full of photos of your favorite WWF superstars. To order, call 815-734-1161 or send $12 plus $3 shipping and handling to the address on your screen. No cinnamon gum, large or small, freshens breath longer than Big Red. Kiss a little longer, stay close a little longer, make it last a little longer, longer with Big Red. That Big Red freshness lasts right through it. Your fresh breath goes on and on.
they can send you backpacking to some remote lake in the Canadian Rockies. Designing these CD-ROM trail guides was their senior class project at DeVry. At DeVry, we learned how to make technology work in really exciting ways. Now it's their own company, Adventures Design Mode, Inc. With a DeVry degree, you can go wherever you want to go. DeVry helped us create our own path to success. For a higher degree of success, call DeVry, 1-800-247-7800. You didn't feel like it. Your brain didn't feel like it. Your feet most certainly didn't feel like it. Please, let us lie down, they said. GNC's all-natural Optobolic Energel helped you feel like it. Helped you find the lift you needed to do what your body and couch and bed were begging you not to do. Optobolic Energel capsules for men and women, exclusively at General Nutrition Centers. GNC, live well. Why are so many people taking Fruit of the Looms Comfort Challenge? Extra soft waistband, roomier cut. Uh, sir, how do you like those new briefs? Really comfortable. But what do I do with these old ones? Put them under your pillow. Underwear fairy comes, leaves you a shiny new dime. <laughs> okay. Take the Comfort Challenge now and get a free pair of these new and improved briefs when you buy six. <laughs> what a night. I'm out of dimes again. Underwear fairy. <laughs> Hi. Hi there. Why do you come to me? Why do I deserve this generosity? I need a man who has powerful friends. Be my friend, Godfather. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. It's not personal. It's strictly business. I want no acts of vengeance. All I want is a truce. My offer is this. Nothing. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. SummerSlam. The man from the dark side possesses the gold. But this angry hitman is hell-bent on reclaiming it. It will be the World Wrestling Federation champion for a fifth time. SummerSlam. The reigning intercontinental champion got the one, two, three in the ten-man tag. But the bottom line is a promise this stone-cold killer intends to keep. I'll pick this up. If I can't take it, and that's the way it's gonna be! Stridex presents WWF SummerSlam, Heart and Soul, live Sunday, August 3rd, only on Pay-Per-View. There's only one agent that can draw the line between evil and innocence. What do you want from me? La Femme Nikita on USA, coming up next. All right, we're back. I've been enjoying those great 1997 commercials as we take a very quick... Halftime segment here, because we're up against the clock. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. We will have the new Patreon show coming up at the end of the month, so be on the lookout for that as we go back 10 years to discuss the CM Punk, Summer of Punk 2, Pipe Bomb promo, and all that stuff going on in World Wrestling Entertainment. So be on the lookout for that. $5 a month allows you access to listen to that, plus all the other audio we got in the archive. $25 a month gets you the opportunity to pick a show for the week. $50 a month allows you to send in for a segment of that show and 100 for the whole show, if you so choose. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. All right, who got that this week is our new and or returning patrons. You're really speeding. All right, let's see. I told you, if it's not me, it's been 90 <laughs> seconds. All right, we'd like to thank Old School Wrestling Podcast. Thank you, Old School Wrestling Podcast, OSWP. Yeah. Javier Gonzalez. Thank you, Javier Tyler Gignac put down the 100 for the show uh, 
he wants to do in November, where it's basically the week after Montreal. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, what's that? Number four for him, I think, on the Something hundred dollars. Like yeah. So, yeah, Will Tricity, Yeah, he's uh, he's got your beat, brother. It's time for you to step it up. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> uh, Aaron R. Let me make sure I'm reading this right. Uh, Gisberg. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, uh, well, I'll do these out of order for a reason. Daniel Cookler. The man who's named on this segment more than any other person. Thank you, Danny. One of these days I need to just track what his, like, pattern is for when he signed. <laughs> the... Hey, he, he's on and off. But he's it's, always, no, he's it's always fine. Around. It's fine. I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, just, he's on and off, but he's always he's always around. He, 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 he may take a month or two off, but he comes back. Nothing wrong with that. No. Nothing wrong at all with it. And finally, Piper's Ear. Thank you, Piper's Ear. So there you go. Patreon.com slash Tween the Sheets. All right. IWTV. Tell them about that real quick. Do I have to? Yes. Uh, Just Chinese run down the information. <laughs> Wait, I started saying the wrong thing anyway. Uh, independentwrestling.tv. They don't have any like coupon coupons per se right now, but if you use uh, the code BTSPOD when you sign up, we do get a kickback as long as you're a paid subscriber so if you are looking into signing up please do that so and yes and uh, if you definitely go in there and watch nwa wild side mm-hmm. more than that a minute more than that in a second uh real quick uh i know the WWE network uh has been cracking down on some vpns but viper vpn does work folks so don't worry about that yes we were recording this right before money in the bank and i just checked and it still works yeah, so there's there's that. So tinyurl.com slash BTS VPN. Yeah, if you want to use VPN to watch the WWE network, that one will work. So there you go. Uh plugs. Exxon Badge Street came out over the past uh, few days uh, discussing the June July two thousand one era of NWA Wildside. And what a show that was. Almost four hours. Because we had so much to talk about. We had Freedom Fight two thousand and one. All the TV before and after, all the big angles going on there, and there's a lot of them. Um, whether it be the AJ Styles, Air Parasonics, NWA lead angle, the Steve Martin, Jeff G. Bailey uh, tension that eventually gets rectified as we end the show and everybody comes together again. Uh, Caprice Coleman, Jimmy Ray, we got the debut of Tank. We got Mr. Delicious, JC North, or Jason North on the early Wildside shows. And we have the reason why that was. And uh, yeah, there's so much on those shows. So everybody, go listen. It's a great show. Talking about a great era of NWA Wildside independent wrestling history. And some great stories from Dan and Jeff, as always. As Especially this time, as Dan and Jeff are two of the main creative forces in the promotion. So definitely listen to that, folks. It's a, a doozy. And you get to hear from Bill Barron's a little bit talking about the business side of things via his torch talk. Yes, yes, which we, I, I do the reading of Jason Powell and Bill Barron's, and that says Jeff and Dan really didn't care about it. <laughs> well, they had heard these lessons uh, many times. Yes, and Jeff told me, I can share this on the air, Jeff told me in our private chat that uh, he fell asleep reading the uh, torch talk in the notes. <laughs> But anyway, regardless uh, of whether or not that's true, that definitely sounds like something Jeff would say. <laughs> but yes, so um, very, very interesting stuff on the show. So definitely check that out. Um, of course, next week's Between the Sheets. 
We'll go back to 1992. So we'll have that. We've got Bigfoot at the end of the show. And the, we record this after we recorded that. Yes, there will be a WCW section. And it's, there is actually some stuff from the Observer that I found. But, I mean, it was in the, a different week of the Observer. But, yes, there will be a WCW section, but a lot going on. A very interesting time period. And, uh, yeah, so definitely check that out. As mainly we'll be discussing the Penthouse article on Vince McMahon. And we, it's, we go very in-depth, thanks to Wade Keller. So definitely check that out. All right. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show profit BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on in your world? Uh, hell if I know. All right. Well, good enough for me. So that's it for us. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Let's go to other North America, and we'll start with Canada. Frank Sassone, who promoted Wrestling Weekly in Calgary at the Stampede Wrestling Fold, was shot in the leg on July 21st while coming out of the Calgary Bank. Policy, policy, police believe Sassone was targeted for the shooting, and they believe robbery is the motive. Sassone runs the Silver Dollar Bar and Casino, which has for wrestling in Calgary at Stampede Wrestling, shut its doors at the end of 1989. That's the Silver Dollar Action Center. Yes. Which, Stu apparently loved their chicken fingers. <laughs> So they were like the Sportatorium's french fries? Sure. Like, when Stu was on his deathbed, Frank brought the chicken fingers to sneak into Stu. Who would have been his John Brazil? Ooh. Well, it's not like they really had a built-out office, though. Some dude named Gord, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, uh... Shot in the leg, I mean... You know he's the guy that runs casino... He's going to the bank to get some money, so he's a prime target for somebody to rob him. Yeah. Harry Smith, the 12-year-old son of Davy Boy Smith, wrestled on the July 19th Rocky Ford Rodeo Arena show near Calgary against a 15-year-old workout partner named T.J. Wilson. Ted Annis, another grandson of Stu Hart, was at that show. At well, was on the show as well. And that showed your tuner fans for Stampede Wrestling, as we have Greg Polnick. Polynick over Dean Durango. Is that probably the future Greg Pollock then? I guess it is him. Jordan Clark over Ted Annis. Poison Ivy over Kerwin Bostic. Harry Smith over TJ Wilson. Red Thunder over Ken Johnson. Gama Singh over Mike Anthony, Mike Lazansky. And the Cuban Assassin, Angel Acevedo, and Jerry Morrow had their team going here all these years later. Going to no contest with Bruce and Ross Hart. Is this Harry's first match in front of fans, or had the one they did on the WWF show happened before this? This is the first one, I think. I'm going to make sure. Because WWF hasn't been to Calgary yet in that whole deal. The Brett deal. No, but remember, it was, it was, it was a tribute to Matt Annis, though, and Matt Annis died in 96, right? I don't remember. Uh, let me see real quick. I'm pulling up his, I'm pulling up Harry's cage match. Let's see what they have. I forgot. Where was he called Bulldog Heart? Who? Harry. I don't remember that name. Okay. So there are two results on cage match before this for Harry. There's a stampede dark match at Rockyford Rodeo on, Ju on July 23rd, 95. Okay, and that's when Matt was still alive, and it was Matt and Teddy over Harry and TJ. Then July 20th, 96, Rocky Ford Rodeo, 
question mark and question mark versus Harry and Ted. And then this July 19th, uh, 97, Rockyford Rodeo. So they did something like this three years in a row. And this is the third. Huh. Also, it is kind of funny that this is a week after they're all celebrating in the ring on the pay-per-view. Yes. So. With Ted being very conspicuous because he still kind of looks like Ted and has hair. Has Teddy hair, even that early. Oh, absolutely. He was uh, early to the game. His, his clothes right. aren't as flashy, but he's getting there. Well, no. All right, let's go to Mexico. Triple A, they take TV on July 15th in Pachuca. With Vespertrito 2 and Mini Sinestro over La Parquita and Otacacito. Then we got some type of little gauntlet deal. Arachnophobia over Flying. R15 over Winners 2. Renegado over Capitano Cerro. Kickboxer over Cuervo. R15 over Arachnophobia. And then R15 went to double count out with Kickboxer and Arachnophobia. Then we have Coco Amarillo, Coco Lazul, and Coco Rojo over Los Chivas Rayadas and El Mexicano. El Corbarde, Alcantar Dorado Jr., Mayflowers, and Picudo. One by qualification over La Parca Jr., Leon Negro, Mascara Sagrada Jr., and Super Muñeco. And then our main event, Dos Caras, Heavy Metal, and Tenebas Jr., over Blue Panther, Cibernetico, and Sangre Chicana. I just thought of something. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe we never really thought of this before. Okay, what is what is Antonio Pena's big strength in the years leading up to the Promos Teca split as far as like recruiting? It's that he's going to look into all the different, you know, regional, you know, promotions and stuff and find undiscovered talent. It's part of why he had built up his undercard so well. Yeah. How is he not really doing that again? Obviously, he does to some degree, but why is he not able to have as close to as much success when he had to rebuild, do you think? Was it just that there happened to be a huge surplus of ready talent in 92 that there wasn't in 96? I just think he wanted to go with a different direction. I think he wanted more gimmicks. You know, and not not as far as like like uh, work work guys. He wanted the gimmicks, the flash. But nothing says he can't have both. That's what the soccer playing goats are. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea what to tell you. I don't, I don't know. It does kind of stick out when you think about it, though, doesn't it? Well, and, uh, probably some of those. I mean, a lot of those wrestlers probably don't want to go work with him. Well, there is also the whole thing of... Oh, so who were, who were the other two promotions working with? WCW. So... Right, and WCW, you know, you can make more money, but still do something approximating Lucha, and work on your off days, and blah, 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 so... It's the carrot and the dangles. Yeah, so that that's probably as good a reason as any, that all of a sudden now, if you're an up-and-coming Luchador, you're like, wait a second... I want to go to WCW and make money and be an international star. What if this stops me from doing that? Yeah. Fuzzle Guerrero and Heavy Metal, excuse me, Fuzzle Guerrero and Moscow Dino Merced catching the Mexican national tag team titles, which have been vacant for a long time since Fuerza originally jumped to Promo Azteca. The tag titles opened in tournament on July 20th in El Torreo de Nocapan, where they beat Pedro Guayo Sr. and Jr. in a bloodbath, which ended with Grand Marcus Jr. at the ring and knocked out Pedro Sr. of a chair. 
Negro Navarro Renegado and a Caballero Cocha Primera match on the same show. Top Win Promotions, which runs through every Sunday, then announced a few days later that they were canceling their contract with AAA and would be promoting with CMLL with Mono Negro as a promoter. Huh. Well, the results of this show, we have La Berriosa and La Praticante over Julissa and Zulema. Then Negro over Renegado in the, the hair match. And then the tournament for the tag titles. Fuerza Moscow over Dos Caras and Metal. Kaneka Fantasma over Shua Guerrero and Cibernetico. Cobarde Jr. and Gran Marcus Jr. over Catacolini and Mil Mascaras. I know who did the job there. Uh, the Perros over El Signo and San Grichicana. Then the semifinals. Fuerza Moscow over Kaneka Fantasma. The Perros over Cobarde and Marcus. And then the main event. I forget, how much had they been tagging before this? Because obviously this has to be a huge thrill for Moscow, because for those who don't know, El Moscow to him, Merced, was for his nickname. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they hadn't been teaming very long at all, so... But, yeah, so he gets to team up with his all-time favorite wrestler and his idol and win the tag titles. Mm-hmm. Pretty much right away. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a dream, for sure. Yeah, how about the top win going to CMLL after this show? Obviously, it didn't draw very well, I would say, probably. I would guess so, yeah. Also, looking at the undercard, how long had Labriosa been wrestling at this point? I don't know. She had been around a long time, hadn't she? I think, yeah. Labriosa, I'm looking at Lucha Wiki. Do we have a pro debut? They do not have a debut date on Lucha Wiki. Uh, says mid seventies approximately. Okay. Oh, that's CML- right. She's part of the like Shiggy Cito Robles family too. CMLO. They were in Rio Puebla on July fourteenth for the forty fifth anniversary show of the arena. Of the arena, Blue Center of Array Especial, Puerto Chicana and Sayonara of Astorano <laughs> and the Tiger. Uracan Ramirez, Uracan Ramirez Jr., Team Mercurio, Ivola, Mercilago, and Tarahamara. Solar over Satanico. Bestia Safaje, Rico Latino, and Scorpio Jr., Team Not to be Angel Azteca, Felino Negro Casas. Then the Moscow Crutcher Caballero match. Mr. Niebla be MSA Uno to take his hair. Ah, uh, the years and years where we all badly wanted to see Pueblo shows and didn't get them. Yeah. Because it's, this is a heck of a card on paper. Yeah, good talent. It's all matchups. Arena Mexico on July 9th, July 18th. We have Rico Latino and Reyes Villos over Brandon and Oriental. You're not going to ask me? C- no. Cadaver de Sotomba, Espetro Jr. and Greta de Muerte went to a draw of Estuary Jr., Solar, and Ultraman Jr. Mascara Magica, Mr. Aguila and Super Astro over Haco Negro, Repo Cunero, and Violencia. Bestia Savahi, Io de Santos, Rudo, and Satanico over Felino, La Fiera, and Shocker by disqualification. Now, man, man, Apollo takes Kevin Quinn and Steele. Yes, Val Venus over Atlantis, Brasa de Plata, and Lise Mark. Here's and question. Um, yeah. Not that I think I would vote for him, but if Kevin Quinn was on the Observer ballot, Hall of Fame ballot as a non-wrestler for his training of people... Is it Mary? Does he have a sneaky, decent case? I don't think he'd ever get the votes, but he is a pretty damn strong pedigree of the people he helped train. Yeah, but... It would never happen, but you get what I'm saying? I was just thinking in terms of, because people have argued over the years, like, 
how much does being a trainer matter? You know, it was a big part of all those Ultimo Dragon debates. Yeah, but Ultimo Dragon had a much more prolific career. Right, and he had a... Right, he's going in as a wrestler and it helped him. But mm-hmm. the, the only person that's probably in almost exclusively for training would be Diablo Velasco, right? Yeah, and that's more of a... Let's, you know, let's get him in there more than anything else. And also, also basically everyone went through his training system. Yeah. All right. Uh, July 20th at Arena Coliseo, we have Mara Negro Jr. and Picasso of El Supremo 2 in Tigre Cota. Chicago Express, Dr. Woman Jr. and Kundra of Ala Grande Durango, Filoso and Tobellino. Astore Jr., Master, and Mr. Aguila over Gerda de la Muerte, Hocco Negro Jr., and Moguer. Does Master have a partner named Servant? <laughs> or, or maybe a partner named Bader, I don't know. Uh, Olympico, Solar, and Super Astro over Rambo. That's Rambo. Riva Canero and Scorpio Jr. And in Apollo Dantes, Emilio Chavez Jr. and Kevin Quinn over Atlantis, Mascara Sagrada, and Takamichinoku. That's an interesting selection of wrestlers there. Absolutely. In July 22nd, Tuesday, Coliseo. Bracito de Oro and Mascarita Magica over Peratito and Chitoncito. Greta de Fatura, Jungla and Rico Latino over Alacrande de Rango, Filoso Oriental. Atlantico, Olimpico, and Solar 2 over Américo Roca, Damiano Carrero, and Arias Villos. Bracito de Oro, Ringo Mendoza, and Takovichinoco over Guerrero de la Muerte, Calificado Jr., and Valencia. In the main event, Apollo Dantes Jr., Dr. Pagner Jr., Emilio Chavez Jr. teamed up to be Brother de Plata, Lee's Mark, and Negro Casas. Mid to late 90s uh, Ringo Mendoza results have taken on almost that kind of mid 90s UWA result significance in my head. Like, still? Wasn't he gone by then? Type of thing. But he mostly just works Arena Coliseo for a long time, right? Yeah, mainly just Coliseo. He didn't work really over in Mexico and later. He was used strongly, but mainly just yeah, He wasn't pushed. He was just in matches. He would get hair matches. I mean, that's, I mean he's one of those types of guys where he would, he'd be good to have his head shaved every year, and that's it. He'd be a guy that worked matches and then time for the head shave. No, I forget. Ringo is not related to... To the Mendozas, he just got the name because he looked like them. Because right? he looked like he looked like Ray Mendoza, yes. But then was Cachorro Mendoza was actually a relative of Ringo, right? His brother, I think, brother or cousin. And that's the extent of it, right? There's no other members of that family. Uh, there. Yeah, yeah. All right, Monterrey, Arena Solidaridad, on July 16th. We have Atreo in Venom over Casador in Montenegro Third. Sitter Moreno, Estarita, and Princess Shugi over Vince Janeth, Rosie Moreno, and Tiffany. Bobby Lee Jr., Mascara Sagrada Jr., Pathfinder, team with Pegaso, the Monterey version, to be Charlie Manson, Mayflowers, Nigma, and Pecuda, Los Patos Locos by disqualification. Hector, Mascara Sagrada, this is Alebrije in the gimmick. Sangre Chicana and Super Crazy over Espirito Jr., Chaos, Pirata Morgan, and The Panther by disqualification. And Bezo Negro Jr., Cibernetico, Electroshock, and Jerry Estrada over Paraguay Jr., Heavy Metal, Hector Graza, and Latin Lover. Stacked Triple A show here. 
TV taping at Arena Solidaridad. And even Arena Solidaridad isn't on the Atomico's main events here in Monterey. Yes. In the semifinal? Well, the last three matches. Are all Atomico's. Yeah. So hmm. they brought the big guns out at the time they on this show for in their promotion. So there you go. Promo Azteca tape TV on July 18th in Cuatitlan. We have Fuerza Nuclear and Rapaga de Oro over Tahitiano and Yelka. Esprechito, Flexita Carrera, and Jarito Estrada over Mini Conan, Mini Rey Mysterio Jr., and Mini Super Calo. El Gitano, La Mascara, and Pantera 2 over El Brazo, Ninja de Fuego, and Sky Day. And El Brazo, Mascara Unidismil, and Tejano over Mascara Sagrado, Super Parca, and Vampiro Canadiense. Not a deep show for Promo Azteca there as far as talent. As far as names, certainly not. Yeah. There's there are some good workers on there. Yeah, like, but name name value. No, I like, I definitely want to see the second and third matches, but all the names are in that main event, pretty yeah. much. You know, I don't really outside of the main event. The biggest names on the show are probably Espectrito and Dorito Estrada. Pretty much, which is not how things usually went in that era. No, and. You know, it, as much as fans liked them, the minis, when put in drawing positions, didn't draw. So, it is what it is. Yeah. Let's go back to the U.S. now, and we'll begin with ECW, which had a lot going on during these 10 days. Some of it really happened, and some of it didn't happen. Like this. ECW is expected to file a federal lawsuit next week against WCW regarding a number of issues, including Scott Levy, Raven, and Michael Manna, Stevie Richards, appearing at the Bash of the Beach Fairview show on July 13th in Daytona Beach, Florida. Steve Carroll, who is handling the legal situation for ECW, went and commented on legal affairs or if the suit itself had been filed at press time, but did say that ECW considers the actions of both men having violated the terms of their agreements with ECW. Paul Heyman has said over the weekend, and ECW had reported on his own hotline, that a lawsuit would be fired in federal court in the Southern District of New York for contract tampering, torturous interference with contracted personnel, and violation of the company's intellectual property. Although the observer has no confirmation of such a lawsuit has been filed at press time. Heyman claimed he has sent copies of Levy's contract agreement for the April 13th Barely Legal Pay-Per-View, which included a six-month non-compete clause in regards to appearing on a Russell Pay-Per-View show there at Bischoff. But Bischoff or Nick Lambros or whomever in WCW made the actual call still put Raven and Richards' segment on the show. For whatever reason, WCW has been very careful when it comes to winning out contracted periods before de- debuting WF talent, such as Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Kurt Henning. But was it in this case, which may not be based on the company's lawyer's interpretation of the solidness of the ECW non-compete clause? Amos said the ECW had been threatening legal action against WCW if they were to use Levy on the pay-per-view show. And there have been talks in the past between Heyman and Bischoff regarding a contract buyout where WCW would pay ECW for the rights to use Raven immediately on the pay-per-view. However, WCW refused the deal. Heyman also claims WCW tampered with ECW contract personnel by using Levy as the intermediary and in trying to get James Fullington, the Sandman of WCW. And has also claimed that WCW has slandered ECW on his hotline. The contract situation with Richards is another one of those disputed situations. Heyman claims that Richards signed a deal on May 10th or an intention to sign a deal as opposed to an intention to negotiate a deal with ECW and thus was legally under an agreement with ECW at the time he was negotiating with WCW. Richardson admitted to signing a document of that type but claimed his time period for the document had already run out 
and since he didn't sign an actual contract, he had no legal obligation to ECW. Heyman claims that Richards was still under the agreement, but that he released him from the agreement due to him claiming that due to a broken neck, he was concerned he would be unable to wrestle the ECW style. Although there was heat in that, as Heyman wasn't aware of Richards appearing on Nitro on July 7th until the day of the show. Actually, when it comes to this case, whatever deal Richards was or wasn't under is a moot point, since ECW isn't claiming him as being a contract performer when it comes to his appearing on either Nitro or the pay-per-view show. But is claiming the intellectual rights to the characterization of Stevie Richards, and not the contractual rights to the person of Michael Manna. ECW's claim is that both Raven and Richards, the characters, as opposed to the individuals, and how they are being portrayed, is the intellectual property of ECW. And by WCW using them in their former ECW roles, it's a violation of copyright and trademark. There have been legal precedents in wrestling regards to similar situations. For example, WCW has legal threats changed the entire name and character of Ray Trailer from The Boss, doing a gimmick very similar to the big boss man character in WF, to the Guardian Angel. Because WF claimed the Night State Police uniform, etc., as their intellectual property. However, numerous other wrestling characters have gone from company to company without changing names in their gimmicks, but the basic premise is to maintain that stage name or gimmick, such as Randy Macho Man Savage, one must have established the name and character before joining the company, rather than being the gimmick established within the company. Generally speaking, both companies have allowed wrestlers to use their gimmick names when working independence as leading an organization, but the problem surfaced when trying to use those gimmicks with a rival major promotion. Levy had claimed when establishing the Raven character, which was his idea, that he maintained the rights to the character. Now, The Torch said on, their late, uh, on the latest ECW 900 line commercial, Joey Styles said, ECW prefers a federal lawsuit against World Championship Wrestling and Toronto Broadcasting. Find out exclusive details, not even Aaron Bischoff will know until next Monday. Unless he has a good taste called the ECW Hotline. Or you think the clowns on his hotline get their news. Hey, Mean Gene, I'll be waiting for your call. All right, Bix, this is all up your alley. So, intellectual property. Uh, you know about that pretty well. Um, I don't know people, if I'd say that, but... For people that may not understand what intellectual property means, in this case, uh, give them a, like a brief summation. I guess in this case they're referring to either the gimmicks or the character names or maybe even the trade dress or whatever, all the above. You know, it's not necessarily referring to copyrights on a given work or anything like that, but those all fall under the umbrella of intellectual property. Well, the thing is is that Raven and Richards both showed up using not just the names, but the entire looks that they had in ECW. I mean, they they were Raven and Richards to the T. (laughs) Yes, but as we know with hindsight, Raven trademarked the gimmick himself. Yes, in hindsight we know that, but it's not being talked about this time. It's being talked about how ECW is the one that that uh, you know is the owner of said gimmick. Okay, so if we're reading this right, ECW's in the right about Raven in the pay per view. They're in the wrong about using the Raven gimmick, and Stevie's a little more murky. Would you agree with that? Mm. Well, Stevie Richards. Okay, so when. When, before Raven became an ECW, I mean, Steve Richards was doing like a hair, hair band fan geek gimmick in a lot of ways. He was, you know, he was back in like 89, 90 with the, with the look and the music and stuff like that. He still had that when Raven first came in the company. And it was just a little while before he started becoming 
the Stevie Richards that we all know and love. Well, the hairband stuff with the shirts and the, all that, like in the cutoffs, that was that was after he hooked up with Raven. That's what I'm saying. After he hooked up with Raven, yeah. Oh, I thought you said before. Okay. No, he was hair metal, Stevie. Yeah, before he's just Steve. Ri- I forget. Was he? I don't think he was even Stevie until he was they Steve started. Richards. Yeah, it was and Steve was, Richards. And he was still Steve Richards, like like a month into the Raven gimmick. Well, at f- so at first he's Stevie Flamingo and Stevie the Body and Stevie Polo. Well, that's way early. Yeah, as they're building up Raven's arrival. Um, but I don't think he's you know dancing Stevie yet until a few months. No, into but the Raven, he's, so. he's Steve Richards, in, you know, into eighty five and ninety five. Yes, yes. But did he? All right. So, in your opinion, even though we know what happens here. Did ECW have any leg to stand on with this? It seems like they did with the Raven pay-per-view non-compete thing, which makes WCW not just bothering to buy it out kind of weird, because I would think litigating it would be a lot more expensive. Yeah. Is it possible this is Nicola Ambrose or someone being like, ah, they've pulled this shit way too much with us? Well, I guess the, 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 the thing is, is that they don't consider ECW in the same league as WWF, obviously, when it comes to stuff like this. You know, I, w- w- would you agree with that assessment that that, that that Bischoff doesn't see them at that level in a, you know, in a, going to a, a court of law or a legal sense? I think so, yeah. Who That's they? one of the only things that really explains the behavior here, I think. Because they, they would not have done this with a WWF employee, as is mentioned here. Look what they did. You know, when Hall and Nash showed up, yeah, we got the twinge of of Razor Ramon early on. But they waited until their contracts and their non-competes, or, well, not non-competes, their contracts were expiring but they, completely. Exactly, and they were not, and they were totally out of any type of gimmick look. Yes. You know? They were in street clothes like that. I mean, this is, like, complete egregious. <laughs> you know? So... And ECW was what were they trying to get out of WCW for letting them do this? I can't remember what was it. What do you mean, money? Were, were they trying? Were they trying to get some type of compensation? Oh, on this one, other other than what's mentioned in the article here, you mean? Or I'm confused. Because usually when ECW was trying, when WCW and ECW, oh right, always... they they get a settlement where they try to get a concession of an appearance or something. Appearance, yeah, something. Somebody just show up at the arena. What was this one of those? I don't remember. I don't think so because they have all this stuff ongoing with WWF that we're about to talk about. Yeah, and and, and tell everybody what the end game of all this was. As far as what. What happens here? I'm trying. <laughs> well, that's an easy question. What's the end game? What happens? Oh, and oh, what actually happens? I thought you meant what was the end game as far as Paul or whatever. Okay, um, I don't remember where this goes. I don't think it goes anywhere. Remember? Oh, that there's nothing filed. Even you mean? Yeah. Uh, maybe they never- do. Maybe they just settle before that. Then. Yeah, maybe. Uh, who knows? But I don't remember ever hearing anything out of this. So, is it safe to say that ECW is the most litigious wrestling promotion ever exists? No, I think 
Every time we talk about ECW, we're talking about somebody suing somebody or threatening to sue or something like that. But they're not necessarily the always litigious ones. Now, did they use it against other promotions more than most? Yes. Because of how they tried to leverage it, they, Paul, you know, repeatedly with ECW. Between suing, trying to sue wrestlers and threatening to sue wrestlers and these other promotions and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's always something. Always something legally involved. There's a lot, yes. A, a whole hell of a lot. Well, his dad's a lawyer. Well, there you go. All right. So we'll stay with the torch here and go to Queens, New York on July 19th, where ECW drew a sellout turnaway crowd of 800 fans. Observers said the number of fans turned away was in the high hundreds, perhaps well over 1,000. The event got publicity just two mornings earlier on the Howard Stern Show. In St. Cloud Posse were guests on the show, and they brought up they were big fans of ECW and mentioned specifically Friday night's event in Queens. I remember this. Um, that was, I remember that was on the E show. I can't remember if the ECW part made the E show, but I knew this appearance of ICP was on the E show. My recollection is the ICP appearance aired on E, but not the references to ECW. Yeah, because probably it was well after the fact. So. Because sometimes, I mean, the E show would not uh, be same day. In some cases, it could could be in the early days. Well, yeah. Occasionally, like early on, early on they were trying to do same day stuff as much as possible, like the first year or two. But it seemed like it quickly became untenable. Yeah. So, anyway. All right, so the results of the Queen's Elk Club show were as follows. Jason... Be Chris Chatty after Chatty Mr. Moonsault. Tracy Smith's little Guido with the big Don, Tommy Rich. Be Axel Rotten and Spike Dudley when Guido pits Spike after Rich hits Spike with a flagpole with his face on it. Axel and Spike exchange words after the match, but left together. Bobby Duncan Jr. beats Supernova with Thomas Rodman and Blue Meanie after a top rope reverse DDT. Chris Candido pinned Mikey Whipwreck after rolling through on top rope body block and holding the tights. Bam Bam Bigelow pinned Balls Mahoney after which Balls killed the referee with a chair. Bubba Ray Dudley and Devon Dudley with sign guy Big Dick Angel Gertner beat Eliminator John Cronus with Perry Saturn and the Gangstas in a three-way tag match when Bubba pinned Cronus and New Jack at the Bubba Cutters. During the match, Bubba slapped a beer out of the hands of a fan who wasn't even looking in his direction. The fan jumped over the railing but was held back by security. Bubba also showed another fan. The Dudleys harassed two women in the front row balcony, prompting a show your tits chant. A guy who was with the women got thrown out by security, while Gertner pleaded with security not to jet the fan so he could kick his ass. Uh, this doesn't sound great. <laughs> oh, the ECW house shows. Can we can Always. we just say too that like Bubba has never been some great heat seeker promo. He just does shit like this and tell women that they taught their daughters how to suck dick. It's cheap heel heat. Yeah. It worked because, I mean, they, they got it got them heat, but it was cheap. Yes. You know? So, like I said, it worked. It was funny, but it was cheap. You know, there was no... There was no psychological game to it, I guess, so to speak. You know, All or right. something like that. But anyway... BCW fans ate it up. Oh, and and speaking of, uh, I don't even know what word to use. <laughs> Taz beat Shane Douglas to retain the ECW television title by submission 
Douglas told Taz for the match he could fuck Francine if he could, if he could force him to tap out. He did tap out, but when Taz looked at Francine at the match, he turned down the opportunity and made a very lewd comment afterwards. Rick Rude then came out and kissed Francine and got her in the missionary position. Francine enjoyed it so much she wanted to stay with Rude, but Candido and Bigelow pulled her out of the ring and to the back. What a sex charge show this is, huh? Uh, <laughs> have you... Have you seen the... It wasn't about this show, I don't believe. I've seen this show. But have you seen have you seen the clip of an interview Francine did where I don't even remember how I found this originally. It's from January. Where she says basically that um the time where he carried her out and was trying to make it look like he was, for lack of a better term, going down on her. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, she, he did not really ask her permission to do that and went, according to her, went a little bit too far at a minimum. I can believe that. <laughs> Actually, wait, when I was looking for this, the, the clip came up. Yeah, he, boy, this is worse than I remembered. Oh, yeah. Wow. The, I mean, let's be honest. The Rickard ECW character makes even the worst, like, bad in hindsight WWE stuff of this era look good. As far as, like, in terms of misogyny and all that. But that's what the thing was, though. That's what they wanted him to be. That's what they were going for. And he and he was perfect to play that role because of what he was. Yeah. He was never that way like that anywhere else. No. But it's this is the extreme Rick Rude. You know, he's able to cut cut loose. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's different. You know, it, it's it's time. Everybody loved it, though. You know, it, I mean, I, I never heard anybody complain about Rick Rude. They love Rick Rude in ECW. They loved the way he, he was portrayed. He was a big time baby face. Until he just randomly turned heel. With, yeah. of course, the gimmick that he finally got to have sex with Francie. Yeah, that was why he turned heel. Well, he joined Shane Douglas. I don't know if I say he tur- actually really turned heel, so to speak. Uh, we'll talk about that because it's coming up. But, uh, I mean... Oh, yeah, we have Heat Wave. But, uh... We'll, talk- we'll wait and talk about that. All right, in the main event, Sabu and Rob Van Dam defeated the Sandman and Tommy Dream when both heels were pinned by both baby faces. Todd Gordon was handcuffed to Bill Alfonso at ringside. Wild match, including Dreamer smoking along with Sandman. Sabu clothesline in Beulah. Sandman caning Alfonso. Sandman drank a whole six-pack during the match. And Paul Heyman said the next show there on August 21st would be televised. Now, Heyman got on the house mic and did a big-time fuck the WWF speech. He announced the tape would be, uh, at the first tape of the preview would be in Queens. The heat in the building was described as similar to the East Arena in 1995. And even the opener with Jason and Chris Chetty got big reactions. Oh, fuck the WWF, huh? <laughs> But anyway, I right, uh, any thoughts on this particular ECW show? So is this what... the Elksage debut? I think so. Or it's either it's either the debut or it's the second show. It, it it was the best atmosphere for TV at this point. You know, pretty much right away. Oh, absolutely! It was a different, different. Yeah, it's not the first show. Uh, February twenty first, ninety seven was at the Elks Lodge. Okay, Cyber Slam. That's right. 
I think it's something about, besides that Paul would try to rile them up with the New York versus Philly stuff, I think something about the way that building was configured with everyone on, like, just on top of everyone in the action helped the atmosphere. It was, it was Paul Heyman's home base. It, it is, I mean, that's what it was. It was a home, home show for Paul. Hmm. And that's why they did that thing up, but they did it. You know, they went they went a little harder in Queens. As a, the show had a little more edge to it at times, the Queens show. So, yeah, that's what it was all about. And by the way, real quick, I had forgotten. Francine had actually tweeted a couple of years ago, but she did eventually give this interview a few months ago. But she said two years ago, please stop tweeting me about the Rick Rude spot. Jeez, it happened 20 years ago. All he said was that he was going to flip me over and carry me out. Yes, he took it too far. No, I don't want to discuss it in 2019. Get over it. I have. Man, that's all needs to be said. Yep. All right. So let's go to Heat Wave 97 at ECW Arena in front of, get this, Bix, 1,400 fans, a turnaway crowd. Uh, who reported that? Joseph Bonsignori's Wrestling World Weekly? In the torch. I'm kidding. But yes, by the way, we I don't think we've ever really mentioned this before. Joey Styles is also in the like early ECW pay-per-view, but pre one wrestling era, very briefly tried to start up a newsletter that like in terms of style and typeface looked exactly like the observer. <laughs> and you wouldn't if you didn't see the commercials at the time and didn't see occasionally see them on eBay, you'd have no idea it existed. Yeah, it worked out so well, didn't it? Yeah. All right, so in the opener, John Cronus with Saturn beat El Puerto Riqueño, Paulo Marquez. Puerto Riqueño been gone from ECW for months. After Cronus hit, beat Riqueño in a short match, Saturn hit him with a crutch. Now, I'm going to skip down the list here to read about this. Perry Saturn inside the situation involving he and Pablo Marquez. This is Dave on this one. As an EC Arena show on July 20th, is that the crutch shot was a work that looked great. But Ash was protecting him doing the blow. He did pie face Marquez in the back after the match with John Cronus to get his attention, as he claimed that's what Killer Kowalski did to him when he was learning wrestling. But simply wanted to explain to him that he didn't sell Cronus' finish properly, and the beginning of so fast made both he and the finish look bad. He said he thought Marquez did a good job in the match, except in his selling of the finish, but disputed the idea that anyone would have to defuse the situation backstage, and said so he even recommended to Heyman to give Marquez a full-time job with the promotion. <laughs> if you've never seen that shot, he destroyed him with that crotch. Oh, my God. Didn't that very briefly make it into the opening until he jumped yes. to WCW? Yes. Yeah. It was gone immediately then. If I remember right, doesn't the top of the crutch fly in, all the way into the back yes. of ECW Arena? Yes. Oof. Axel Rotten beat Tracy Smothers with time reaching Little Greer through a chair shot. Smothers bled from the shot to the head. Mike Whitbacker's fight barely beat PG-13. PG-13 wore their USWA tag titles to the ring, but refused to put the belts on the line in such a minor league city. <laughs> PG-13 beat on Spike until Mikey got the hot tag and scored the win in pinfall. Anyone who has not seen this match, you must watch it on the award-winning WWE Network and or Peacock. You want to explain to them why they need to watch that match? PG-13 basically 
goes from being kind of made fun of to being the most overact on the show within a few minutes. And you know, it's a shame they didn't do more with them. Yep. They were such a good complement to that roster. Well, it was different. Yes. They were different. And they do... They're doing basically just doing, like, slightly bawdier Tennessee bullshit, and I mean that in a complimentary way. (laughs) Well, it is. Yeah. (laughs) And it got over just tremendously. You know, my favorite spot is the one where uh, it's Jamie... It's standing over Mikey, who's kneeling, and then he, like, he gyrates in front of Mikey's face and says, Mikey likes it! And then Mikey puts him in the testicular claw, and D- Jamie just does this elaborate bit where he grabs the mic as Wolfie is trying to console him, and he just starts going in, like, the most Mickey Mouse soprano voice. And Wolfie, just as soon as he hears his voice sounding like that, just, like, makes this face and hand gesture like, oh, to hell with you. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, they were great here. Yep. And I'll... I guess his timing was wrong. I mean, he was skinny, but Wolfie was... I mean, is. He's alive. Wolfie's not that short. Like, yeah. he probably should have had a little bit more... You know, even taking size biases into account, he probably should have had a little bit more of a major league career than he did. He was skinny. That's the thing. He was a skinny guy. Yes. And and that gimmick, the gimmick only had so much shelf life. But he reinvented himself. He reinvented himself. But I, but the thing, is, the, the thing is, though, is that I think people didn't want that, though. They, they still wanted the gimmick. I mean, it's 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 tough when you're in a gimmick that to a general mass crowd can be dated or can become dated. Mm. But you didn't have the hardcores that love you in that gimmick so much that they won't accept you if you're not playing that gimmick. It's That's, a tough tough road the the hoe for some people, you know? That said they probably they probably could have modified the PG thirteen gimmick a bit to make it more contemporary. You know, perfect, you know the perfect example of that what I'm talking about is Valvenus. Hmm. Every time they tried to make Val Venus into something different, he would just die, and they would have to go right back to the old Val Venus. You know? But Slash was over where he worked, you know, where he was actually getting a push and stuff. Yeah, but, I mean, that wasn't much. (laughs) I I wonder how much different things are if he stays in OVW. Has anyone ever said why he stopped working OVW? Because the original New Church was... Who was it? It was him and um, Brian Keys? I think so. But anyway. All right. So Chris Kennedy and Bam Bigelow beat Balls Mahoney and Chris Chatty. Highlight earning minutes was Bigelow giving Balls a vertical suplex. Kendino eventually pinned Chatty after a tough row suplex. Balls at the ref of the chair after the match. Joey Styles came out and noticed Blue Meanie, who was wearing task colors at ringside. Styles hit Lance Wright to interview him. Meanie Montez and then Wise left the building. Styles introduced Rick Rude, who came to the ring with a woman on each arm. Rude said he signed a two-year deal with BCW earlier that afternoon. That's bullshit! Rude said he was surprised Jerry Lawler would show his face at DCW Arena, but at that time, Dream and the Sandman don't need a partner to, he- to beat the heel threesome. Mm-hmm. 
Also, I just remembered I need to queue up a clip for later, but we'll figure that out. Taz beat Lance Storm to retain ECW TV title. Storm didn't get booed, but Taz got way more cheers during ring intros. Storm got in some early offense, but Taz took over with his Taz Plex and Taz Mission. Storm escaped the first Taz Mission, but Taz replied it for the win. They get to make a big deal on TV out Storm escaping the Taz Mission as a consolation for Storm losing the match. Lance as a babyface didn't just did not fit here, though. Oh, no. Terry Funk beat Shane Douglas with Francine by DQ the retaining Sydney heavyweight title. They brought right at Star, quick split the ringside and down the aisle. Back on the ring, some of the fans began to cheer for a title change. Funk went for the spin until a finisher, but Francine jumped to the ring. Funk gave her a time and drop. Douglas got the ringside, but Funk applied the spin until a hold to him out there. Can't do it, and then ran to the ring to save Douglas. Francine responded by, to a Funk's atomic drop by biting him on the ear. It drew blood, and the ref called for the DQ. A DQ, huh? Uh, yeah. Terry Funk. Terry Funk as champion. I mean, it was it was the perfect thing to do at Barely Legal. And then I think it got to a situation, all right, what do we do now? Yep. <laughs> you have that situation where you do something like that, and it's like, okay, where do we go from here? And they didn't know. They did not know what to, where to go from there and for a while. Because we're now three three months in, and Terry's still the champion. Yeah, and for me at least, I don't think this was a widespread belief, but at the time, I think just because, not even like an offended way, just because it seemed so out of place, that promo, well, I guess it's an angle technically, I forget if it's the go-home TV episode before Barely Legal or what, no, actually, wait, I don't think I had ECW TV till later in the year, so this is, I guess, during the post-Barely Legal pre-WrestlePalooza period? That thing where Funk confronts Raven and asks him if his dad molested him? Like, I felt like just it took all the steam off of Terry, because it just was so weird. Mm-hmm. But, uh, between that and some of the stuff we talked about earlier, you sure get the feeling that Paul knows he is not producing as good a product and is trying to make it edgier. Oh, and not doing a good job of it. Well, here's the thing. WF is kind of starting to steal his thunder. Well, not that much yet at this time. Not yet, but it's starting to. Hmm. You know? But, uh... But, yeah. All right. Uh, the Gangsters beat the Dudleys in a weapons cage. match to capture the ECW tag titles. Apparently, there's only room for one tag team in ECW's Purgatory, and the Pitbulls have displaced the Gangsters. Who got their first major win since the incident last year in Revere, Massachusetts. Before the match, Bubba complained about being locked in a cage with two convicts. After violent brawling with weapons, Devon climbed over the top of the cage to the floor. In the ring, Bubba gave New Jack the Bubba cutter, but Mustafa crawled over and pinned Bubba, who knocked himself silly, executing the cutter off the top rope. So, I think the main thing to say about this, and it also affects the next match, is, as legend has it, the reason that despite being a tentpole ECW show in theory, because this was billed as Heatwave, right? Yes. In spite of that, this show did not get an ECW home video release, and the belief is because they used it in part, besides the show not being that good overall, was that they got a new cage, and it was so tall and like just dense enough with the chain link that it was very difficult to see through. They barely showed anything of these two matches on TV. It was tough. And I don't believe they ever use that cage again, as well. No, I don't think so. 
And in the third mystery partner gimmick match of seven days, Dude Love and WF, Kurt Hing and WCW, Rick Rude's going to be ECW surprise partner. Rob Van Dam, Sabu, and Jerry Lawler defeated Tommy Dreamer, the Sandman, and Rick Rude in the main events. Before the match, Lawler over the house, but the Dreamer and Sandman weren't able to find the tag partner. And said, this is another ECW ripoff. Rude then stood up from his broadcast with this on the stage and began walking to the ring. The crowd went nuts. Lawler egged on Rude over the house mic. Rude earned the cage, but immediately turned to Dreamer and gave him the Rude Awakening. He then left the cage, since his back is still in no condition to actually work a match. The three-on-two beating went on for several minutes until Terry Funk ran to the ring to make the save. Candido, Bigelow, and Douglas stopped Funk from tri- climbing into the ring. In the cage, Dreamer was tied to the cage in the crucifixion position as Lawler brought a groin claw. A series of wrestlers ran to the cage trying to get in, but the heels kept everyone out of the cage. Taz did eventually make his way into the ring. Sabu and Van Damme fled, leaving Lawler to get Taz plaxed and Taz mission in mid-ring. Candido then ran in and went after Taz. Taz put him out with Taz mission. Rude, Francine, Bigelow, and Douglas eventually overwhelmed and beat on Taz. Rude gave the triple threat sign before leaving. The event ended with Taz, Dreamer, and Sandman being helped from the ring. Paul's clearly trying to go for three heavy heat angles, three arena shows in a row, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And this one, I guess it could have been, but no one in the arena or at home could really see anything. So. And the problem... The problem was they didn't want Rick Rude to do this. No. The, fan, the fans love Rick Rude. I mean, this is this is doing a swerve for sw- sake of doing a swerve. Yep. And it was not what the fans wanted. Let the bad taste in their mouth. They had just seen the whole Lawler Cornette angle from you know the previous show, and then this happens, and it's too much. And it's then it's much. what? What? Eight weeks later, the. Rude turns back babyface? Yeah, pretty much. By setting up the Bigelow turn? Yeah. <laughs> it's stupid. Really stupid booking here. Or it's as like, he would say say to Tommy N, maybe it's not stupid, though. Maybe it's just that he's so far ahead of the curve of everyone else that they have to catch up. Well, it's like we said, you know, when we did the Barely Legal Patreon show. The build to that is that 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 night was the death of that version of ECW. Yes, and the ECW that spawned after Barely Legal, and pretty much pretty much to the end of the promotion is a told this joint a mess, and and there's a lot of reasons for that, but creative, oh my goodness, yeah. creative creative was never the same after Barely Legal, nope. never. Everything was, was was for that night, was built to that night, and they n- never could recapture the magic. You know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, as we talked about, they talked about doing the pay-per-view from early 95. So almost two years, that was the, the white whale, the Moby Dick of Paul Heyman. And then you finally get there, you know? And it's like, I mean, good Lord, it's like when you're... When you will, when I'm trying to think of a, a, a way a way to make this analogy, <laughs> it's like uh, in the, the first time that you ha- you know you're with your girlfriend or whatever, and, and you finally see her naked. Okay, and it's one of those relationships like back in the day, not now, back in the day when you know it was sometimes it would take a while before that took place, and then when that happened, you know, and you had your first time, and that was what it was, and you know. 
every time after that, you know, it's kind of becomes more normal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's the specialness that's wore off. <laughs> Unless you do some type of gimmicks, maybe, to freshen it up, which ECW was trying to do <laughs> on their shows, I guess. <laughs> two different things. But, I mean, that's kind of what it was. And, yeah. So. Well, <laughs> ECW does add toys before they're done. <laughs> oh man! But anyway, all right. So, uh, qu- quite the weekend for Extreme Championship Wrestling in many ways. Good lord! Thomas Rahman, the Inchworm, who was BWO member doing a D- Dennis Rahman knockoff, suffered a broken eardrum when Taz slapped him hard across the face as they were blown off his role in the angle. Sounds about right. <laughs> So I guess this is a good time to mention this because I don't think his name has come up until now, at least recently. I still don't know how this happened. Let me see if I can find it. Several months ago, Thomas Rodman texted me as a wrong number. Okay. And I'm trying to remember who did I... Oh, wait, I can't see that on my computer with the... I have to... They don't let you search the the texts in the web app. But I like it wasn't like he had gotten it from anyone, but it was very hold on, let's see. Rodman. Alright. <laughs> so okay, so this is from December 9th, 721 PM. George? Hey, it's Tom Rodman. Me, not a George. Is this Tom Tom Rodman the wrestler? And then he's like, Yes, who is this? Sorry, I thought it was George. And I tried to figure out who the heck he was talking about. And he said he had three numbers with my area code in the phone and that was where it got weird he I think he thought I was Georgianne Macropolis and well, that he was a, easy, easy, she easy. was alive or something One's alive, well, he one's gave, well he said he said Georgie unless there's a Georgie Kansopolis that's also around wrestling I bet I don't know I said I didn't know who that was and it was and he was like, ah, oh, very odd, sorry to have bothered you, you know, no worries, it's all good. But I couldn't figure out how did he have my number in his phone, and how did this wrong number end up being someone that would know who he was? I don't know. I had to share that, though. But anyway, enthralling. All right, at one point, Dan Severn was strongly considered for the mystery partner role in The Six Man. Could you just imagine that? There was also consideration of trying to put together a deal with WCW, where they would use a WCW wrestling show in exchange for a lower settlement in the Raven deal. Of course. But since WCW didn't even offer any kind of settlement, that didn't take place either. The plan all along was to do this type of angle with Rude as a way to put him more into the storyline and off television, where his gimmick as the announcer, who doesn't know what he isn't allowed to say on television, was clearly short-term. Well, not necessarily at this time. The feeling on Severn is that if he's going to work here, it's to do a pay-per-view match against Taz, and the feeling is that would need a lengthy buildup to have the right heat and anticipation of four weeks was way too short. So probably done sometime in the future. And then instead went with Candido as Tad's pay-per-view opponent. I'm guessing the reason this is considered at all possible is because theoretically Paul was claiming he was trying to make things right with Dennis when they did the Cornette angle. Yes. But actually, I think Cornette's talked about this, that that might have come up using Severn. And then none of that happens because he goes back on all of his promises to Dennis. Ball does. Yeah. Corluzo, for those who don't know. But 
they are such a mess at this point. But not in even the usual ways ECW is a mess. Yeah. Well, how do you think Dan Severn would have done in ECW? I think Paul would have at least known how to use him to make him look good. So I think he would have maybe done better in ECW than he did a lot of places. Well, they would have built him up to face Taz and then had Taz, you know, take care of him. So, yeah, they would have built him up at least. So. I don't know if they, I don't know if he'd do that, though. <laughs> Dan? Yeah. Yeah, maybe not. Money talks. All right, Shane Douglas. Oh, yeah, that ECW money. <laughs> Shane Douglas in a TV interview where he claimed he did the job using those words and laughed about tapping out, saying he didn't want to lose TV title since he wanted the heavyweight title instead. It's really strange that Russell Bass could say that he took a dive and used the term did the job to say that. They're hitting on TV on the eventual tag team with Cronus and New Jack. The gangsta haters. This is Dave uh, running down the TV. So, wait a second. They're hinting at that before Saturn's gone? Uh, yeah. That's something I don't remember. Well, Saturn's hurt. Still. But, but New Jack and Mustafa are now the tag team champions. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Weird. Uh, the TV show this week was filled with tons of swearing. Audio cut, but the wording was obvious. Particularly about Rude. Talking about how much he hated Lawler. At one point during a match with a triple threat, Joey Styles that ba- said that Balls Mahoney wants to cream Francine. And Rude responded, so do I. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, the uh, the ECW television in the Rude Styles era is something else. I think Rick Rude does a lot of stuff just to try to pop Joey Styles and yes. just to, to, to make you completely lose it, which Styles does. I mean, he, t- he breaks numerous times. And... Uh, it's entertaining. Is it misogynistic? Absolutely it is. But it's entertaining. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? It's 1997. All right. If you're, in case you're wondering what it took to get Jim Cornette to make an appearance at the UCW Arena, it took a $750 payoff, dinner at a four-star restaurant, and limo service for the night. <laughs> I didn't know that Ribbit was a four-star restaurant. <laughs> what Ribbit? Is that a rabbit place? No, it was it was a barbecue place that was the preferred. Oh, uh, ribbit. Okay. Yes. Okay, I got I got that now. If I call that ribbit like a rabbit, I think it's supposed to be ribbit more like a frog, but as a rib place. Frog. Okay. Yeah, ribbit. What am I thinking? Why say rabbit for frog? But that yes. was Cornette and Dennis's preferred uh, Philadelphia eatery. Fantastic. But yeah, as Cornette has explained, I do believe him on this. He was willing to do it because it seemed like it would get Paul and Dennis to put their shit to bed. And that Paul wouldn't, have, Paul wouldn't, you know, bar ECW guys from working Dennis's shows on off days anymore, all that stuff. And, and then he just immediately goes back on it. When Jim Cornette has to play Switzerland in the situation, what does that say? Well, technically, wasn't Chris Candido the one playing Switzerland? I I guess, but good lord, it, it, Cornette's more the bargaining chip. <laughs> oh my god, Paul Heyman says it's absolutely untrue that he gave up the tape of Steve Austin doing the Hulk Hogan gimmick for the use on the Stolco Via that's turned into such a controversial situation. Joey Styles is still said to be planning on suing WF over the video. Heyman says if you see the tape, it's obviously dubbed from VHS because the quality of it, and not dubbed from three fourth of Super VHS as a professional dub would be. As you can clearly see <laughs> on the videotape, it's obviously 
fucked up for Paige. <laughs> oh my god. Oh yes, because all, all we all know if there's one thing ECW's never done, it's use VHS as a professional videotape medium. And this is on the Austin three sixteen tape, right? Uh Costone Coltetso. Yeah, Costone Coltetso. Yeah. It was the first one. Yeah. Um let me see. Ain't no fucking way that Paul Heyman did not give them that tape. <laughs> That's definitely part of the deal he made. He got it to him. And and I can firmly believe that Joey Styles didn't know about it either. And it's probably shit like this that gets that really gets that tension going between Paul and Joey. Yes. Because Joey wants to get paid for his work. He wants to get some type of royalty. Wait, did I not save this? I thought I did save this from the Westchester County Court website. I thought I had the Joey Styles lawsuit complaint somewhere, but I can't find it right now. Well, anyway. All right. So, oh, you it's ECW, so let's talk about their television contracts. Yeah, I should figure ECW's paying for Channel 31 in New York is $3,000 per week for the 2 a.m. time slot, which is likely its biggest weekly television bill. Paying should be in quotes there. <laughs> and Channel 31 Bix is? Okay, was it WPXN yet? Hold on, let me see. These days it's the Ion station. Back then... It's WPXN TV. I think it was already WPXN, but it predates PaxNet and Ion. It was WBIS in 97. Okay, let's see. Yes, okay, at this point, yeah, it's still WBIS, I guess. So, it had been owned by New York City. It was part of, like, WNYC at one point, and that whole right, profit thing. This point, at this point in time, um, it was... Oh, it's owned by Dow Jones, I think, at that time, isn't it? It would it it would uh it would show uh sports. It would had uh, show New York Knicks games. It would show uh, stuff from the from Wall Street. Yeah, it, it was a oh, this is WBISS plus that did not classic, last long. Classic Sports Network. Right, that I remember. I believe their PXN by the time ECW was on there, though. If not, then then shortly thereafter. Yeah, so. Um, but when I say that about pay, for those who don't know, we've talked about it more on the Patreon shows. If you look at the bankruptcy, there are a lot of TV stage, TV partners, mainly America One and MSG, who they just didn't pay for at least the last year and a half or so. Yeah, but that's not this point in time. I know it's not at this point in time, but it also shows that they were at one point paying 5500 to $6,000 a week just for New York. Because they didn't get rid mm -hmm. of MSG. Mm-hmm. Silly. All right. Uh, a clarification on the story that's caused a lot of controversy over the past week in regards to ECW. The gentleman ran a pay-reviewer house show in Northern Kentucky University near Cincinnati. It was reported in the Observer last week that a local indie promoter had sent the college a tape of the Eric Coolis incident, and they started asking questions, and it all fell apart. The college president received the tape of the Coolis incident, and the college legal counsel began asking questions. The tape actually came from an anonymous source, but the belief locally is that it did come from a local indie promoter who didn't run, didn't want ECW running in their area. Both Steve Carroll and Mark LaMonica, Bubba Ray Dudley, who's going to be the local promoter for the show at ECW, said that ECW decided itself not to hold the show there and instead went with the Fort Lauderdale site. And Carroll claimed Northern Kentucky University was at no point the primary site for the pay-per-view. 
According to Dave D'Angelo, who works at the campus recreation and was the local contact, he saw the coolest tape and the legal staff was worried about potential liability and the college was worried about bad publicity in regards to doing a national preview show. ECW sent several testimonials from buildings that were happy to have ECW and proof of liability insurance to the college. From an ECW standpoint, publicity that they had a preview show scheduled for a building and if they were banned and had to move to a new site would again put them looking like to outsiders something akin to UFC or EFC, which has had to do the same thing so many times, which is the thing they feared the most. The extreme name, a very clever marketing idea, when Paul Hammond came up with it a few years back, hit them in the ass big time because many cable companies and media outlets have lumped them in with extreme fighting, which has caused a red flag wave to many cable systems who have then decided not to carry the product. Since they never officially prepared me for that building, that isn't the case here. D'Angelo, who's said to be grossed out by the tape, felt that doing just a local house show, which university would be a part of the financial split of the game and basically be working somewhat as co-promoters, went and risked garnering negative national publicity. He was pretty confident the lawyers would approve ECW in the building for a tentatively planned August 30th house show. He said ECW admitted the coolest incident took place after the college had gotten the tape, but it's waiting a single incident that happened several months ago and isn't indicative of their product today. There's a lot of inhabitants among several people in ECW. Over a disc, getting in the Observer because Request TV, which is carrying the ball for ECW on the pay-per-view, is still afraid of Apple for ECW. And the coolest tape is always a potential time bomb. Particularly if me and Alice were to cover a story and then get the tape and see it for themselves. Me and ECW are upset that the coolest incident seems to always be hung over the company's head. Carol, at this point, coolest doesn't find any legal action against ECW. ECW has attempted to get medical reports from the coolest family to find out the actual injury suffered, but has never received anything in return. Oh, boy. <laughs> Where do we even start? I have no idea. There's a lot there. I like that they're fine with doing a show where they're effectively partnering with ECW, but not a pay-per-view because they're worried it would make them look bad nationally. You know, I mean, what did they expect? I mean, what did they expect was going to happen? You know what really comes across in a lot of this stuff? What? That Paul thinks it's unfair that this is being held over them. Yeah, he basically said it. That's what Dave says here. And but how is it unfair? unfair. <laughs> it's not unfair. It happened on your watch. We did a whole Patreon show about this, folks. Yes. Patreon.com slash 20 Sheets. I mean, I know probably most of you listening have heard that. If not, go there. But, yeah, New Jay did what he did. But the, the promotion sure as hell didn't come off smelling like a rose and all this. They they had their major issues as well in yeah. how they were handled. So they never really came out and tried to absolve themselves from this either. You know? They tried to cover it up at first, but otherwise... They tried to cover it up, but there's yeah. no, there's no, you know, um, big mea culpa on it. There's no national apology tour or getting on, get on their TV and apologizing and then like that. No. You know? And New Jack wasn't punished. Not the slightest, really. So, and what do you think is going to happen when you start running in areas that you don't normally run? Mm. Where you have independent promoters. And I'm curious who this would be. Northern Kentucky, near Cincinnati. Hmm. Well... I mean, one of the people that comes to mind is not an independent promoter at the time. Yeah. But 
there aren't that many people that you think of when it comes to that area. I don't know. It's just, and as far as I remember, I don't even think they even they even ran Cincinnati until like late, if they even ran it at all. By then, I think they ran like a regular building in Cincinnati. They may have ran it in the TNN era or some shit like that, but yeah, definitely didn't do it pre-TNN. So these things happen. People can use you know some past things. To, to, to stop you from doing stuff if you they perceive you as competition. And then, like Dave mentioned, the extreme name and the extreme fighting and stuff like that, that was a big deal at this time, too. So, I mean, they... Nothing you can do about that. In regard to Louis Piccoli, if you got upset when you went backstage about doing the t- job for Dr. Tom Pritchard last week, he didn't blow up anyone specifically, although Sabu was having to tell him to calm down about it and not blow his job over. Spicoli's on thin ice with the promotion and all other things being equal. The fact he has to be flown in every week for California from California that handles him to work out in the ring at 5 p.m. before his matches every night and he hasn't been doing so is a hell of a matters. He wasn't on this weekend shows but that was due to his being given the weekend ahead of time. Okay, there's obvious subtext here so I'm just going to say it. If you what? think that you need this guy to show up early and work out in the ring every night to prove to you that he's not loaded maybe it's not worth it. Well, you know the story with Sabu and Spicoli at this time, right? Refresh my memory. Is that the FMW bus thing? No, 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 no. I don't know if it's at this point in time or not, but Paul's not paying Spicoli. Sabu is. Sabu was, was you know, told Paul, could just keep using him, I'll pay him. That's right. Or at least Sabu has claimed that. Why would he lie about that? Sabu I mean, has some weird stories about Yeah, but Paul. why would he lie about that? No, you're you right. Know? I do think it makes sense. Because but... it makes Sabu look like a fool. <laughs> why would he lie about that? He's paying this man out of his own pocket so he, can, so he could be working shows. Because Paul had enough of it. But you agree with me, though, that someone who's ex- as an experienced and polished a worker as Louis Spicoli is at this point, there's no way that Heyman wants him to work out before every show for any reason other than to prove he's not loaded, right? Or to punish him. Because Paul and him weren't getting along. I mean, that's possible. It isn't like Paul Hammond does a whole grudges, Bix. We know that. Well, there is that. And there is whatever his relationship is with Sabu at this point. Yeah. It's probably a combination of everything. Yeah, I wish we had the um, the clip on the... Uh, down on the Because he tells a story in the timeline of ECW do, the 97 with Sean Oliver. We don't have that on here, but uh, yeah, it, yeah, he admits it. He uh, paid him out his pocket, and yeah, if you want to know more about '97 ECW, watch that. Oh, that's something else. And now the rap band Insane Clown Posse was getting so much media pub of late after being dropped by Disney for their song about the Great Malenko. With all the media pub about that song, Dave shouldn't hear anyone know who the song was named after. Of course not, Dave. Inside of Interscope Records was on Stern on July 17th, so a lot of time putting there how big fans there were of ECW, and somebody they would be going to the show in Queens next night. They said if it wrestles Rob Van Dam. If it ECW were so big that Heyman thought the plug helped the crowd significantly in Queens as far as how many were turned away, and also in Philadelphia. Stern generally hates pro wrestling, but didn't say anything negative about it in the interview. I'm sure it probably did have, have an, a ripple effect off of it, you know, because at the time, Stern, this is 97, so he's on top of the world this time. Private parts has been been in the theaters, done his thing. I mean, 
he's yeah he's just got it got everything going on this time so yeah. i mean i'm pretty damn sure that they that they got a bump off of it didn't private parts even open number one its first weekend i don't know if it opened number one i know i went and saw it opening weekend but i don't remember if it opened number one or not i'm looking real quick on box office mojo Let's see, week by week, okay. domestic, all right, uh, yeah, they opened at number one, 14.6 million, the week of, uh, for the weekend of March 7th. Yep, I remember going to see that at Parkwood Cinemas in lovely Griffin, Georgia. It did fall off pretty quick, though. Yeah, but still, it had its number one. Yep. And ICP at this time, I had been listening to ICP for well over a year by this point since Stranglemania came out in 96. So I, I had got the, in ICP by then, so now everybody else was starting to get into it. And uh, this is when they were at their peak, pretty much, at this point in time. So, yeah, 1997 was something else. <laughs> Yeah, and also it's weird to think about how the ICP were a major label act originally. They're on Disney, yeah, but you couldn't find their shit in stores, and if you did, you were very—it was very little. Like I remember, um, only place I could find this stuff lo that was local, local was Media Play had the stuff, but there wasn't much of it, very little, until '97. And then, then, then they, then what you saw was in '97 when Great Malenko came out, started getting buzz. Then all the old albums started popping back up into these in these stores. So, man, this is taking taking me back. '97 is <laughs> <laughs> a point year of my life. I graduated high school. That's when I, you know, started going to work at the grocery store. A lot going on in '97. Turned eighteen, so. Yeah, pivotal year in my life. All right, let's go to the other indies here. Universal Superstars of America. Vix's hometown independent group uh, in New York City at the time. They had three shows. In four days, <laughs> yes. Four days. Staten Island on the 16th. We have uh, Gino Caruso oh, over Sheik Sator. Al Bald Eagle over Lord Zeeg. Oh, gee, I wonder what local area indie main mainstay Al Bald Eagle was making fun of. <laughs> I'm sure it's not Bobby Bald Eagle. <laughs> the Bushwhackers over Magic and Sator, the Sheik. George Animal Steel over Johnny Valiant. Uh, okay. And Typhoon over Tiger Khan. Sure. Then we go to the 17th in Brooklyn. Gino Caruso over Billy Walker. Jerry Idol, <laughs> Jerry Idol over Brad Thompson, the Bushwhackers and George Animal Steel over Lord Zeke, Tiger Khan, and Sheik Sator, Typhoon over Magic, and Duke Schneider, not the famous Brooklyn Dodger Hall of Famer, over the Black Sultan. They had a dude named Duke Schneider in Brooklyn. 40 years after the Dodgers left Brooklyn. Amazing. And then Greenport. On the 19th, we have Guillotine the Grand over Nathan Alexander, Mike Norman over Jimmy D. Ranged, Paul Loria over the Kamikaze Kid, 
the Bushwhackers over Metal Maniac and Gino Caruso, and Typhoon over Tiger Khan. There are a few bad wrestling matches I want to see more than the Bushwhackers versus Metal Maniac and Gino Caruso in the year of your Lord, 1997. <laughs> They're New York heroes, Bix. <laughs> this is what indie wrestling used to look like, folks. <laughs> in the in New York, yeah. Well, we do though. We have a New Jersey indie that was kind of trying to be more of a smart mark indie a little bit. New Jack City Wrestling. They ran Long Branch, New Jersey, on July twenty third. We have Bobby G over Billy Real, the Ghetto Blaster over Mister Puerto Rico, America Kickboxer over Blaze. Reckless Youth over Ace Darling. Mr. Lucifer over Magic by Countout. Supernova over Rick Ratchet. Ian Rotten over Bullpain. Don Montoy and Danny Wolf won a, a triangle match in the main event over the Overweight Lover and Tweaky Ramirez and Lupus and Ryder. How about Ian and his car load coming up, Bix? Yeah, so we've got Ian Bull, Kickboxer, Blaze. Anyone else? Or is that it? Oh, the IWA crew? That's about it. Yeah, four people. Coming up from Louisville. Wasn't Prazak hooked up with New Jack City Wrestling somehow? Who? Prazak? Or am I thinking of something else? Day Prazak? Yeah. I don't know, but possibly. I know EWC definitely was him. In some form or fashion. I just remember ECW and New Jack City had their uh, beef for a while there. Yeah. So, there's that. All right, it's ECWA. They're in Wilmington, Delaware, on July 19th. We have Devin Storm over Bobby Piper. Oh, Bobby Piper, huh? Does he know Dave Mysterio or uh, Dave Patera at all? Uh, Jerry Idle. <laughs> Ace Darling over Mike Quackenbush. Primo Cornero III over Commando. <laughs> I wonder when uh, he hit his uh, finishing mover before he hit it, he uh, said, let off some steam, Bennett. Prince of Darkness over Cowboy Blaze, because that was that movie. Commando. Boogie Woogie Brown over Viper. Cheetah Master over Armageddon. Glenn Osborne over Rockin' Ronnie. Reckless Youth over Steve Carino. And our main event. A main event for the ages, folks. George Animal Steel over Mr. Ulala. Holy shit. Well, this is definitely both sides of ECWA. <laughs> holy shit can you imagine the shtick in that match yeah pretty much oh my god let's cleanse our palate and go to the south all-star wrestling in jacksonville north carolina on july 18th we have beautiful bobby dean over little tokyo malia hasaka over peggy lee leather the Eagle over the German Stormtrooper. Fucking Stormtrooper from Knoxville is still around in 1997. Yeah. The Ring Lords over the Rock and Roll Express. Thanks to interference from Mr. Hughes. Ricky Nelson over Michael Youngblood. And Ricky Morton over Mr. Hughes in a scheduled grudge match. Or as it said in the torch, grubbed a match. <laughs> well, the, the card also featured Bootiful Bobby Dean. And don't forget... uh. Malaya Hasaka. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got quite a, a few Carolina shows here. NCW, Steve Martin's promotion, National Championship Wrestling. Ran Silva, not Sylvia, North Carolina on July 19th at Bailey's Bar and Grill for 150 fans. Will of the Wisp, Jeff Hardy beat Heroin. Shouldn't that be the other way around? Heroin played by Bobby Hayes. 
Rusty Riddle over Ricky Class. Ricky Rocket, not R- Ratchet, over Eddie Golden to win the vacant NCW TV title. The Ghetto Boys fought Mad Max Miles and Jake Mulligan to a double disqualification. Chris Hamrick over, it says here, Chris Hamrock over Casey Thunder by disqualification. You mean Bo Sir- James' uh, longtime quote unquote cousin, Casey Thunder? Yes. Surfer, Matt Harney, and Kid, <laughs> Dy- and Kid Dynamo. Surfer is Surge. Well, and Kid Dynamo is Shannon Moore. Shannon Moore over Campaign. <laughs> Marty Gardner is champagne and impressive. Okay, 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 wait, wait, wait. Surfer is clearly Surge. Yeah. Campaign is clearly ch- champagne. Yeah. Who do we think impressive is? I have no idea. Okay, okay. It's 1997. We're assuming these are all people in the Omega crew. I'm trying to think who else is around at this time. Well, we got the well, we got the main event here. We got the NCW title where Venom, Jason Hart. Beat David Jericho, David Kid Cash, by disqualification. So there's Jason Art. So who knows who impressive was? But anyway, Champagne appeared on the July 18th Montel Williams show. It was acknowledged as a pro wrestler. The topic was, I was a high school geek, but look how I've changed. He said it would come off very well. So it was Wade dictating this? Because he calls him Champagne, like... Not still not using the correct na- spelling for the gimmick, but like the beverage here. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so who else could impressive? Be? It could be Sweet Dreams. It could be Caprice Coleman as Ice. How many other people are still around in nine or around yet in ninety seven? Otto Schwanz. Where's Mike Maverick? Is he an Omega yet? I don't know. I mean, Helms or Kid Vicious? No. I, I, is it possible? Well, wait. I don't know if he's an Omega yet anyway, because he didn't, he, he was trained by someone else sooner, Helms was. It, there's no way that someone heard imp, Kid Vicious is impressive over a mic at the house. I, mic, don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway. All right. We stay in North Carolina for NWA 2000. They ran Rayford, North Carolina on July 18th at the National Guard Armory. Rayford, North Carolina. Interesting, uh, interesting little town there. You know, uh, well, never mind. I won't get into that. All right, okay. so uh, <laughs> Christian York went to a draw with Joy Matthews in your opener. By the way, everyone listen to this lineup and see if you can guess who the promoter of NWA 2000 was. <laughs> Corporal Punishment defeated Major De Beers, not Colonel <laughs> De Beers getting a promotion. <laughs> Knuckles Baldino, oh, over Pablo Marquez. Well, might as well. Get some other bookings while you're in the country. NWA World Lightweight title match. Steve Carino retained over Jimmy Cicero. C.W. Anderson and Q-Ball Carmichael defeated the Disco Express. Eddie Brown over Otto Schwantz. NWA Nash Heavyweight title match. Salvatore Sincere, that jobber Tom Brandy, defeated Big Slam to win the title. And a 15-man battle royal in your main event won by Jimmy Cicero. Hmm. <laughs> Christian York, Joey Matthews. Jimmy Cicero, C.W. Anderson, Q-Ball, Carmichael, Tom Brandy, Big Slam. <laughs> oh, and Steve Carino. Hmm, I wonder who's promoting this show. I wonder if he successfully defended the World Light Heavyweight title on this occasion. <laughs> he might have. It's very Marylandy. My impression was, was that NWA 2000 was his promotion. 
I might be wrong with that. I know we have multiple people that can tell us if we're wrong, if I'm wrong about that, Al Getz being one of them, but I, if he's not, if it's not his promotion, he's booking, I believe. It's possible. Cause it does not feel like your usual North Carolina show for this era. Even your like more work ratey insider in North Carolina show. Well, let's go to the USWA. Just as an example of how bad business has been, there are weeks where the total gross for the entire week has hit $6,000. And how much did the offices cost? <laughs> oh, I don't know. A lot. Six grand. Yikes. The actual name of the new president of the USWA is Mike Selker. And he set up an office in Memphis shortly. Spoiler! It's not his actual name. <laughs> it's Mark Selker. <laughs> I love it when... When we have something like that, its actual name is this, but it's not that. How much do you want to bet that the previous reference actually did call him Mark Selker? <laughs> Probably. Luther Biggs is gone. Announced that various times in various places haven't been arrested or haven't suffered a broken leg. <laughs> or either or. And Dutch Mantel will now be managed by Billy Joe Travis. We'll be managing Billy Joe Travis. We'll be managing Billy Joe Travis. Because Luther Biggs had been his manager. <laughs> oh my god arrested or had a broke leg one or the other <laughs> sure they did a TV angle where Doomsday Glenn Jacobs was the rest of three jobbers it turned out the Scorpion turned to be a spellbinder under the hood and so they did a LaParca GP angle well at least they're copying the good angles by the way it doesn't appear that Jacobs will wind up being Kane Doga as USDB has been told of any date in the near future they had, he had to wind up and stay here what is going on <laughs> Sounds like a lot of miscommunication going on here. Yeah. Gotta love it. No no one's noticing that the guy who's supposed to be coming in as the Undertaker's evil long-lost brother is working an invulnerable monster gimmick in Memphis under a mask? Yeah. Like, what do you think is happening? <laughs> who knows? I'm sure they're getting their mixed signals. Yeah. So do we blame all this on J.D. McKay? <laughs> Who knows? I'm kidding. Late in the show, Brian Christopher was attacked by Travis and Doomsday until Doug Gilbert made the save. Gilbert's return, he'd already returned early in the week at a house show in Louisville, got a big pop. There was a tremendous heat in the past between Doug and Jerry Lawler. Oh, you think? Later, Doug was jumped by both by both Travis and Doomsday, and Christopher made the save, which led to a tag match on TV, which ended in a heels DQ when Dutch interfered. Oh, so there you go. The TV range past two weeks have been the lowest in the history of the show. That sounds worse than it really is. As the July 19 TV show still did a 5.7 rating. But this show has a recent history of doing 10 ratings. And at one point in time, drew a large television audience in all but one or two of the network primetime hot shows in that market. In the early 80s. Even though they are moving the show in September to make room for NBC children's programming, the show has never once in its history on station ever not won its time slot during its regular time period. But you gotta have city jams on their picks. Whatever that was. Was it city jams? When you, I, I don't know what you're talking about. NBC show. Um, city guys? City guys! Why am I saying city jams? City guys. And what's the basketball themed one? Oh my god. I should know this. If I just put in the words TNBC basketball. Wait, TNB, wait. NBC Teen Basketball Show. Or was it? Hang time. 
Tom, Reggie Diaz. How about the fact that Frank Bonner directed all the episodes of City Guys? The recently uh, deceased Frank Bonner, who was uh, Herb Tarlick on WKRP in Cincinnati. Huh. Wow. Tremendous character actor in his day. But yeah, huge ratings. Huge. Even when they were struggling, business-wise. They still did great TV ratings. I'm trying to find, because I had tweeted it at some point. I think the Torch ran... They ran something that had ratings from like 1990. And I want to say it was still, if not high teens, then low 20s or something like that for the rating. The yeah. peak is the peak, I believe, in the early 80s or whenever it was, was something like 25 rating, 70, 75 share. It's amazing. And the thing that Lance Russell was always proudest of was between the share and how much the sets in use numbers in Memphis went up at 11 on Saturday mornings was that he could point to the fact that people were turning on TV specifically to watch wrestling. Yeah. I mean, th that's the barometer right there. I mean, they're not just watching TV already and flipping. They're turning their TV to watch wrestling. Yep. And turn it on. Yeah. Something that Lance Russell really deserves more credit for is basically inventing Saturday morning wrestling. <laughs> In a lot of ways, yeah. Because maybe there were other places that had Saturday morning TV when he started doing it in, what was it, like late 50s, early 60s when he moved it? Something like that. Everyone in TV and in wrestling was saying, no, only cartoons are on, only kids are watching. And Lance's point of view was only kids are watching because only kid shows are on. Mm -hmm. And against everyone else's advice, he went with his gut, and boy, was he right. Yeah. All right, now let's go to the competition. Ian Rotten, Saturday Night South, drew uh, sellout of 400 fans on July 19th in Louisville, Kentucky. After drawing 300 fans in the same building the night before. We'll talk about that show, too. Uh, they did an angle where Ian uh, Rotten announced that Les Thatcher would be the new IWA commissioner. And IWA was joining the NWA. Oh, I just realized something. How much do we think IWA Men's South tickets were in 1997? What do you want to say? Average eight bucks? Possible. Just to throw out a number? So that means the they would have done close to the USWA's gross that week just on those two shows. <laughs> yeah. So they brought up Dennis Corluzzo as head of the NWA, who did cut a heel promo to start a promotion for promotion feud. Which in an angle at the end of the show where Corluzzo and several of his wrestlers all attacked Ian Rotten at their bar where I mentioned his bull pain. Tom Burton is doing it again where he wrestles people out of the crowd. At least on this show, the guy of the crowd was a planet worker. And he shot his Dan Severin to a match on September the 4th. All right, July 18th show drew 300 fans. Uh, Tower of Doom and Tom Burton over American Kickboxer and Shark Boy. The War Machines over Twigo Ramirez and one of the Lost Boys. Bullpain and Terry Great over Roller Hard and Brian Taylor. Ian Rotten and Blaze over The Misfits. That'd be Derek Domino and Harley Lewis. War Machines over Tower of Doom and Tom Burton. Bullpain and Terry the Great over Ian Rotten and Blaze. War Machine over Bullpain and Terry the Great. Is this a turn? And Harley over Man Man Pondo. I don't know. And Ox Harley over Man Man Pondo in your main event. Now, the night teeth in Derby Sports Arena in Louisville drew 400 fans. We have American Kickboxer over Billy Real. Three-way for the lightweight title. 
as American Kickboxer beat Jarrett DeGrey and Turin to win the title. NWA World Women's title, Debbie Cohn, Shane over Robbie Rage. Robbie Rage, uh, the female wrestler, not the WCW wrestler. I, I think that would be obvious, Biggs. I hope women's, so. For the World Women's title. Dumbtad it's Deathmatch. the World Women's title that Bo James wins at, around this time. Give <laughs> me Al Getz. Didn't Bo win it too? Uh, I know Al Getz did. Okay. Uh, Th- Thumbtack Deathmatch, Lady Vendetta over Kenny Devine. Plus, he's a manager. Uh, I didn't even miss that tells the War Machines retain their man upon the Nos Harley and no roast barbed wire death match for that. I didn't even miss that favorite title. Ian Rotten over Bull Payne to win the shot championship. It's something look at I didn't miss out in this era drawing these numbers as compared to what they would do when they had CM Punk and all those guys there in that era when they had a much better up and down roster and they could draw barely 100 people. If sometimes I'm close. I wonder how much doing that free hotline drove early IWA business. I feel like it has to be a big part of it. I mean, it's possible, but it's also probably the change in wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know? Possible that's part of it, too. Change, change in wrestling fandom. All right, ICW. is saying championship wrestling in Lincoln Park, Michigan on July 20th. We have Pierre Francois over Briar Wellington. Tony Smalls over Sheikh Abdul, Rhino Richards over Davy Dynamic, Rick Matrix over DBA, The Big over Ron Harbaugh's disqualification, Ian Ron over Bull Payne, Jared Great over Rick Wilde, and and Rick Get Boston in a triangle match, and Joey Legend went to no contest with Tex Monroe. Interesting mix of wrestlers between the Michigan guys and the IWA guys and the Ontario guys. All pro wrestling. Roland Alexander and Dave Meltzer was at the show in Hayward Couple on July 18th. Well, Falls got anywhere match with Vic Grimes versus Aaron O'Grady. So Dave was kind of told ahead of time something would happen that he should see. Oh, okay. That match. Well, the match largely took place outside the gym with the guys brought up and down the street in the parking lot, bashed each other on trees and cars, knocking over signs along with a liberal use of garbage cans, a shovel, and a rake. It was a hurricane run off a car in a parking lot. Shades of rain hooving in Philadelphia from the previous year. Anyway, the sixth spot this building this was building to was Aaron O'Grady got in the car. It was going about 30 miles an hour, Dave estimate. More like a little faster than a little slower. With the driver's door open and ran over Grimes with the door as he drove by. Oh, yeah. Within 30 seconds, Grimes had kicked out of a pin attempt on the asphalt. Was back up and on offense. Ended up winning the match a few minutes later back in the rank. He appeared to be unhurt by the stunt, but Dave fears for those who try and copycat it. Since everything that gets attention in wrestling is eventually copy. Dave also wanted to make mention of Robert Thompson, a local second-generation wrestler who's good enough worker to go somewhere. His wrestling base and move-to-move move transition are solid, and his high-flying range is from good to exceptional. Complete with his having a moonsault top rope to the floor in this regular arsenal. Wait a second. Is Robert Thompson Rick Thompson's son? Yes. I don't think I ever knew that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't think I ever knew that Rick Thompson was a black guy, which is probably why I never made the connection, because I'm not sure I ever saw Rick Thompson wrestle. He's one of those guys you see in California results, and that's about it. Hmm. All right. Results, full results of this show. Kwame Kamosi over Rick Turner. Boom Boom Kamini over Jason C. Clay. Frank Murdoch over Ty Dalton. APW Tag Titles, Robert Thompson and Donovan Morgan over Steve Rizzono and Tony Jones in over 20 minutes. Universal weight title, Chris Cole with a 30-minute draw with Michael Modest. And the Grinds are Grady Falls game where a match went 25-22. Small matches here. Wow, those last three matches took over uh, 75 minutes. 
that falls kind of anywhere matches ambitious, but it's not particularly good. There are better showcases of those two guys. I remember the car spot, and yeah, yeah I could see where Dave would have been uneasy about such a thing. That said, they're also very obviously using the door because it's the safest way to do it. Yes. But, yeah, it's the early days of All-Pro. And, and uh, this is the match that really starts getting them attention online. Yeah, and it helps that Dave was there and watching it, and so we got it out there. Yep. All right, Ed's back with us, and now hey. let's close up with World Championship Wrestling. WCW will counter in some part the change in the Raw schedule as they will implement a semi-regular series of three-hour Monday television shows called Nitro Plus, running from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Time. The current idea is that Nitro Plus shows would take place about once a month, with little warning in advance as to when they'll take place. The first Nitro Plus will take place on August the 4th, which not coincidentally at least, is the first week WS Raw moves back an hour. This plan to do shows like this was discussed before the shocking WF rating came in for his tape SummerSlam special on July 14th. Although no doubt that rating sped the wheels of the motion that much faster. Okay, I remember the term Nitro Plus. I believe in reality it's just the Luger Hogan show and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's no three-hour Nitros until the semi-permanent switch. Yeah, thank God. Again, yeah. three hours... Three hours is... Oh. That's way too much. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, but of course they're going to answer to what WWE's doing, so it's a game of cat and mouse here, for sure, between these two on the television situation. Yes. I feel like they used the term Nitro Plus a bit hyping that show, but I'm guessing they gave up on the concept in the next month or so, because I don't remember it being a big part of the actual show. Yeah, I don't think that it, you know, it was probably that big of a difference either in ratings, so that's probably why they didn't. All right, Nitro on the 14th drew 10,515, 8,398, paying 135.52 to the Orlando Arena. Show up on the debut of the Nitro Girls. Kimberly Falkenberg, along with some local dancers. The reaction here was mainly negative to it, but Dave's feelings is no different than cheerleaders at football games. Wrestling is a live arena event. It's part of the total entertainment world, as all pro sports are, and purists are the last ones to catch on. However, the women are fine as bumpers coming back, as WF uses short-lived Raw brand. Raw band, excuse me. But giving them a three-minute segment as they did to open the show would be a bad idea the second time. Uh, I mean, it's the debut. You know, they're going, they were going to go a little bit longer, but... Yeah, I mean, they settled into a nice spot, Bix, I thought, where they just came in and did their little thing, and that was that. Yes, and although Dave calls them local dancers, no, these are the actual Nitro girls that we get permanently. But they were local to Atlanta, though. Were they? Well, they're not in Atlanta, though. They're in Orlando. You know what he means. <laughs> but were all of them from Atlanta? I think they were from the Atlanta area. Okay, because who do we have here to start with? We've got... You got all of them. Andre, who was there at the beginning? So we've got AC Jazz, Spice, Shay, Fire, and I think there's one more that's not Kim, right? Or is that all of them? Where's Kevin Nash's special friend? Is that Charmel in the back? I don't think Charmel was there till later. There is a Black Nitro girl. Yeah, I don't think she lasts. Because that's not Charmel. It is WCW, too, so... Well, there is that. <laughs> but they're establishing the concept. 
I don't yeah. know if it should have been the first thing on the show with Michael Buffer introducing them. Yes, they did have Michael Buffer doing that. But in the grand scheme of things, they, they, they had them go a little too long on some of the early appearances after this. But in the long run, they were used fine. You know, they and DJ ran later on. The point was to have something to occupy the fans during commercial breaks. And they're still in the era of uh, striptease, the Demi Moore movie, you know, being a thing. So, yeah. And boy, can you tell that choreography is not Kimberly's strength. <laughs> <laughs> These women are not in sync. No, the crowd not. loves it, though. Why did Dave say that they didn't? Look, they're having a great time. Well, they're all those horny guys in the crowd, absolutely. Yeah. Outside of Kimberly, and I mean, she would too, but the synchronization would get better from the actual professional dancers. And they're not in, like, their Nitro Girls outfits. They're wearing regular clothing. They're all wearing spice. different clothes, too, yeah. Spice might as well, you know, be pretty much bottomless. And like, <laughs> she's very short shorts on. But uh, and, was well, it was Spice your favorite? Were you were you like CRZ in that sense? <laughs> uh, of all the Nitro girls, uh, I think she probably was. Now, Larry's Bisco would debate that with me. No, He's on his set would right be now. AC Jazz. He loved him some AC Jazz. <laughs> you, you know who his favorite wrestler in Wildside was? JC Daz. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Larry loves his Macy Jazz, which, you know, she's the total opposite of uh, his wife, so. <laughs> hey, whatever. But anyway. Hey, remember uh, the Larry Zabisco sex tape stunt? <laughs> the Patriot dude loved Nitro Girls. Quite a night of debuts in wrestling that night. Or is that so all they, of them, or they're not anymore? I mean, it's Nitro in 1997. I'm sure we could have, like, a random luchador showing up for the first and only time. Well... <laughs> We got luchadors to talk about in just a second. Alex Wright and Prince Ikea went 92 seconds for the Giants showed up and chokeslammed the referee, Ikea, and some of the guys, mainly the Mexican wrestlers in yellow shirts, all about their mask on. So if you're curious as to what Los Bianos, Ciclope, Supercolo, and Laparca look like without their mask, get out the VCR. <laughs> wow, how about that? He did an interview challenging Kevin Nash. And that's that. All right, so we see the yellow guys laid out, yellow shirt guy, excuse me, laid out in the ring. So, Bix Paul White going to... with a top knot here. Yeah, Bix is trying to find the moment where uh, he choke slammed them. All right, I'll go back okay. a little bit more. Keep going back. That man did not look like a luchador. No. All right, um, here we go. So, this match does not last long though. So. Alex Wright, of course, does his dance. Okay, here comes uh, Paul White. Yes. Giants walking out. He's about to get in the ring. Don't choke slam everybody. I forget. Is he a babyface? Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. He's a babyface until like April or May. Uh, 98, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's with Luger at this time. And there he chokes out the referee. All right, so he wants his mic here. And. Talking Print, shit. He's protesting choke, uh, the choke slam as Alex Wright points and celebrates, applauds. Oh, here comes security. There's, oh, there's one. I <laughs> see. There's another one. 
There's oh. another one. That's one of the Vianos. <laughs> I got little slight there, were de- there were definitely two Mendoza-looking gentlemen there. That was a parka, though, I think, the first one. With the with the facial hair? Oh, Psychosis. There's another one. Yeah, is that that's not, And that's not a luchador. <laughs> Who was the last one before? I think it's Psychosis. I think it's Super Kolo. Did Kolo have long hair back then? It's not Psychosis because he wasn't mentioned. Okay. Did they mention Vianos? It could have been Damian. Viano C- or Halloween. Vianos, yeah. Super Play, Super, Par- Super Kolo, and La Parca. Okay. So, there you go. How about that? Uh, and I like that Dave has been in the back at so many Lucha shows that he knew exactly which guys it was. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe Dave would unmask these guys like this. Like, shoot trash. Well, he didn't specify which was which. <laughs> <laughs> Eh, it's not that far off from saying that, you know, for example, Silver Ant was Tracy Williams. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because he was, because Silver Ant was Tracy Williams, just like Fire Ant was Orange Cassidy. But I think we're allowed to talk about that one now. And Green Ant? That'd be Ju- Oh, God, I almost called him Jugulak. <laughs> Jugulak? <laughs> <laughs> Jugulak. He's a member of the tribe, though. That brother of his is a Shonda, though. <laughs> we got a lot of those running around in wrestling lately. Reactivating their Twitter accounts and all that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, um, Eddie Guerrero beat Chava Guerrero Jr. in 415 with a frost flash and a really good match. Eddie has the love, got the love machine heel gimmick down pat, and this was the best thing on the show. Particularly says Eddie made his nephew look great. He gave him a second frost flash after the match until Hector Guerrero came out. And Eddie shoved Hector down. Ooh. This heel run did so much for Eddie. Oh, God, yeah. Like, not that he wasn't great, but he, as soon as he turned, he went from being one of the best, one of the best, you know, one of the overall best wrestlers in the world to being, like, one of the 5 to 10 best wrestlers in the world overnight. Like, this is where things really start to click for him. In the like well, as personality wise, yeah, personality wise, that's what I mean. This is it was just in ring. The guy was showing the charisma and all that stuff. So, and also he's doing all this while on like a salad only diet or something to get ripped. Yet still had the cardio and everything to be Eddie Guerrero. Why is he eating only salad to get ripped? He should just have Ron Simmons kick him in the kidney. That's what we learned last time. Right? <laughs> Well, that's gaining muscle. He's yeah, he's re- yeah, Eddie's really lean here. This is not like he's. I'm, I assume he's on the gas, but this is Eddie trying to get as lean as possible. Whereas later he was clearly trying to get big. Yeah. All right. Uh, GDP did an interview challenge at Kurt Henning. Paul Meat did an interview after that. Steiner's meat. Vicious and delicious. Buff Bagwell and Scott Norton by DQ in 619 when the Great Muda, Masiri Chono, and Vincent interfered. Steiner's went up clearing house and all cleaning house and all those guys. Wait, does that mean Vincent was joining NWO Japan? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, better than average, Dave said. Raven did an interview knocking down Stevie Richards. This is remember, this is the night after Bash at the Beach, folks. Benoit beat Mike Enos in 344 with a cripple crossface and a better than average TV bout. Super Kolo and LaParka went 50 seconds for Randy Savage attacked Parka, and Paige made the save. 
but Henning came to Page with brass knucks and walked off along Savage again, dropped the elbow on Page. Henning did an interview calling Page the biggest mark in the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's what the kids call on the square. Yes. Dave thinks I do these inside interviews, and he's serious about this. When they use terms that 90% of the audience doesn't know, they announce to translate these terms into English. Dave knows all the announcers are afraid to go there, but for us, says something that has the audiences that has the audiences don't understand. The announcers really should try to explain it to the basses. Either that, or the wrestlers should be told to do interviews for the audiences and not for the newsletter readers. The boys backstage and the boys in WF watch it on video the next night. Well, if Dave only knew what was coming up in wrestling as the years go by. <laughs> but this is that era when the lingo of the business starts getting spouted on TV. You know? Yeah. The wrestling world is changing. The internet is changing the business. Ed, do you and, have your Vince Russo drop handy? Oh, it's about marks on the internet. Yes. Asking questions that they think are cool to ask. <laughs> Jonah doesn't let me near the buttons. I don't have that. Oh, He's smart. Okay. <laughs> but the thing, the thing is, is that, I mean, they're going for that audience even back then. And, 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 and <laughs> They're doing it now, but we're 24 years later. I mean, the masses are not going to know what this stuff means. You know, or these or inside lingo, or this is a shoot, or all this other stuff. You're pandering to a certain percentage of the wrestling fan base. Mm. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's that big of a deal, because, like, like, as a kid at this time, I never really, like, you could tell it was an insult. You didn't have to know what it mean. Like, when The yeah. Rock would call people jabronis, I never once wondered what the word means, but I could tell by the way he used it that it was definitely an insult. Also, I feel like this would be different now because I feel like well, outside of wrestling, well, no, even outside of wrestling, I feel like Mark in the con man sense is used a lot more and known a lot more by the general public than it was 24 yeah. years ago. Um, I don't know about all. That. I wouldn't say common knowledge, but certainly much more well known. Nah. I certainly hear it a lot more in non wrestling context than I used to. Nah. And I mean, completely divorced from pro wrestling, where they're talking about it as in like Mark for a con man. Yeah. All right. Um. <laughs> so the NWO interview came next. Nash said he was doing a Larry Flint act, but he really was doing a spoof on Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation. Yes. Kevin he was Nash in a wheelchair. in a wheelchair and during this whole thing. I can't remember if there's anything on note in this. Well, it, it, the next thing, but there's not really much of note in the promo. It's a, This is when they introduced Conan as the newest member of the NWO. Well, there you go. So they brought out Conan, who they call K-Dog, and inducted him into the NWO. So how about that? Yeah, I, well, okay, I, I need to ask real quick, though. Is this just my memory, or did they do this whole Conan... I can't say turn, because he was a heel the whole time. But this Conan NWO jump, didn't wasn't it kind of booked in a way that made no sense with regards to, like, a linear time? Because don't they do the tease that he's going to help Ray after he joins the NWO? Or something like that? Or was that the catalyst, or is there more than one angle? I remember there being something where Conan teases that he's helping Ray or doing some babyface thing, but it was stupidly obvious that it was a swerve. Well, I mean, yeah, he probably did Because he had already turned. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's something about Ray's leg. They talk about it in this episode, like Conan broke Ray's leg. Okay, so they did that already, but I feel like there's something after, too, or there was there was something that didn't flow, is what I remember. Also, I love Vincent's sunglasses. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, they're really playing a Nash in the wheelchair here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wait, wait, also, why are you doing this after the wheelchair gimmick is done for the Heart Foundation? If it's a spoof of them. Well, maybe he really was doing Larry Flint. Because the mm. P versus Larry Flint was the thing at the time, so. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, Hall and Six beat Harlem Heat in nine minutes when Nash got the wheelchair and clotheslined Booker and Hall pinned them with the outsider edge. Really bad match otherwise. Muda and Chono would be public enemy at 650 when Chono pinned Johnny Grunge at the Yakuza kick at the Muda blue mist in his eyes. That's a even match. Worse, <laughs> even worse than the previous match. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> it, it really wasn't. It was like, as far as public enemy goes, that was probably one of the better matches they've ever had. Well, I hope so. Uh, when Muda and Chono in there. And then you have uh, Jeff Jarrett in the U.S. title match beating Ric Flair by DQ in 525. Flair had Jarrett set for the figure four, but enraged Mongo and Mike at the ring, and along with Benoit, they destroyed Jeff Jarrett. Flair looked good again. And the show ended with a Luger interview. The entire NWO came out, and Sting with a Kevin Nash wig came out, took off the wig, stood with Luger, and the show went off the air. A Kevin Nash wig. It was a but long then, wig. Yeah, even, yeah, I'm sure it was very obvious that it was... I, I ruined it. I should have said the opposite. But they've been doing for weeks the whole... Is Oh, is that Sting when it's obviously Nash thing? Well, let's see. I want to see the picture of Sting in uh, this wig. All right, there's Sting without I'm the wig. I'm going back to try to find it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Should I put on the sound to see here how Tony uh, and company are handling well. this? Yeah, might as well. We haven't played any sound yet on this show. Uh-oh. Oh, come on, award-winning WWE. Well, we have, just not from Nitro. What? In this section? It was taking long earlier, but it actually worked. Hold on, let's see. Yeah, all this rewinding and fast-forwarding is what's killing this. Well, it's if there's no chapter mark, then I don't really have a choice. All right. Yeah, like see. one of the main through lines on this whole episode is that they keep bringing up that it was Kevin Nash dressed as Sting at Bash of the Beach, and then Tony, for some reason, keeps telling them that they don't they don't know it was Kevin Nash because he had a mask on, and I don't understand the logic behind that. He was seven like, feet tall and had obvious stubble and stuff poking out. He there's stepped a, over the top rope. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's the thing about the whole this whole Kevin Nash Sting thing. And the announcers always played it up as they didn't know who was who. That was one of the biggest insults they ever did. And their hair was nothing alike. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the really hair. long Kevin Nash hair. Ugh. Okay. So let's see. As I make sure the sound's all the way up on this. It's obviously not Nash. And they don't even try. They don't even shoot him up like the Kali shot to make him look taller. You got me anymore. I don't know. I would say this is Sting, but you guys need to. Who in the world is this? Who is this? He, <laughs> he steps through the ropes. And, you know, is this? Well, let me say right now, it's it's not Kevin Nash because it's not Todd. It's Sting. It's Sting. Oh. He says it before he even takes the mask off. So now, come and get some of this, ladies and gentlemen. Good night, bitch. <laughs> oh God. 
you can hear Bischoff or whoever screaming in Okerlund and Tony's ears there. Well, they went long, didn't they? <laughs> they went real long. So they Raw outlasted a... them by about three minutes with their over. They should have put a scroll under it to let everybody know that the next show was definitely starting. <laughs> Movies for guys who like move. Well, no, wait, TNT. What would have been on at this point? Was it Robin Hood still? They didn't do a replay right after anymore. Like, no, it was at midnight. Replay was at okay, midnight. Okay. So uh, it would have been Robin Hood, I think. <sighs> okay. Now, I pulled the Torch Nitro report up just to see one thing that we did uh, did not min- they did not get mentioned in the uh, in the Dave report was they did a one uh, those Hogan uh, paid announcements. So Hogan was on the show with Rodman. But Rodman, he wasn't there in the building, which is interesting because it's the night after the pay per view and it's in Orlando. <laughs> but he's not there. Uh, Raymond and Richards, you know, we talked about that in ECW earlier, um, ECW section. They had their little deal here we talked about. And um, it talks about what, what, you know, some of the dialogue here. Oakley interviewed Raymond, asked about the big surprise Richards hinted at night before. When Raymond said there's no announcement, Richards changed from clueless putt smile to surprise and alarm. Richard said to Raven, you told me if I signed a contract with WCW, that. And then Raven grabbed Richards by the hair and spat in his face. And I don't believe that ever went anywhere, did it? No. And uh, it is funny to read Wade talk about how the DDP angle with LaParco would be a key to help get LaParco over. <laughs> you know that. what, though? If they had run with it, because this really is when LaParco starts to get more over this general time frame they this is probably when they should have put really started to pull the trigger on him being something more than what he was yeah they had a window from here through like early 98 i would say where they could have really done something with parka well they could have if they wanted to which they weren't going to yeah but what once 98 kind of keeps going he it, it's clear that he is a prelim luchador with the baggage that entails in WCW, and he's still much more over than his push, but the window to pu- actually push him has closed. Now, Ed, at the time, you're 10 years old, as we talked about during the WF section. What were your thoughts on WCW at that time? So, uh, I'm from like a super, super small town where like we didn't have wrestling magazines, we didn't have news like us. So, like, and for some reason, I don't, I actually have no idea how it happened. I didn't know WCW existed until the last Clash of the Champions. Uh, when I just randomly went by it and I was like, holy shit, it's Razor Ramon. <laughs> I had no idea that this company existed at all. Well, if um, you have no magazines and you didn't get worldwide because you didn't have cable until like this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you didn't have worldwide in syndication, I'm guessing, then... Well, if we did, it would have been on a Saturday morning, and my ass was, like, watching cartoons and stuff. It wasn't flipping to, like, Channel 55 to see what syndicated program was on, Mm. you know what I mean? So, yeah, I had no clue until, like, September, October, whenever that last clash is. It's August, I think. August, okay, whenever, yeah, that would be the first time I ever even, like, heard of or seen WCW. Yes. So your first impression of WCW was all of the top heels staring in terror at a turkey for five minutes. 
It was, <laughs> and actually, if you want like a real answer, it was the NWO talking about how bad WCW sucked and me being like, oh, this is that company that they talk about that sucks all the time on Raw. <laughs> and like, oh, these guys do suck. And then I was like hooked from then because I was like, yeah, these guys are cool. The NWO is cool, but this WCW stuff, this sucks. And I'm going to watch it for these NWO guys. And I hate this WCW shit. <laughs> so like they completely worked me. They got me totally. <laughs> that's the problem though you know they they made their own promotion look like you know could be idiots you know and it, it, that's what really hurts the promotion you know i mean there's a way to do that angle and not make yourself look like you know complete jobbers and idiots in the process the fact yeah, that like- they never did any barricading the locker room angles is well, the big standout general, problem in general? Just stupidity across the board. It worked for when, when, as long as it did, and it probably probably shouldn't have, but it did, and uh, we we saw what happened after the fact. But anyway, all right. So Rob Van Dam and Dorfman Jr. Are backstage it's in Orlando at Nitro. Funk was also at the pay per view. The feeling for the last time Van Dam showed up at Nitro, it turned into an angle that made him from a mid carter to a main eventer. And with the thing falling apart, he showed up to get the press and the rumors mill, rumor mill's going. WCW had no knowledge he was coming, although the Observer had been told in advance, but they did let him backstage. RVD is living in Atlanta or Orlando or what? He was in Florida. Time. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as, as we talked about before, Rob Van Dam would have been much better off going to WCW. Would he have had a cruiserweight, do you think? That's a good question because he is a lot bigger than a lot of the cruiserweights. No, I tell you what they, I tell you where they, what they do with him. TV I mean, title. He's, prob- he's probably booked in like the TV title, maybe U.S. title programs. Benoit, uh, you know, Raven, Eddie, you know, Alex stuff Wright, like TDP. Yeah, stuff like that. Which, hey, I mean, it's still, you know, decent spot. Am I crazy, or is Rob Van Dam and DDP something that sounds like it would be, like, shockingly really good? Like, their that, styles don't... Ma- yes. Their styles don't match up on paper, but I feel like DDP is well, wanting to plan the stuff out. Well, that, too, would lend itself well to the more elaborate RVD stuff. It's heel Rob Van Dam, and this time period, heel Rob Van Dam. I mean, as you saw in '96, was a difference of Rob Van Dam. Yes. So who yeah, who knows how that would have been? And also, heel Rob Van Dam was just an overall more effective character, even if he did get you know super over with the ECW fans. Still, overall, a more effective character because all of the whole F and show stuff worked a lot better as a heel. Yes. Torch said WCW is going to be cracking down on the number of backstage passes given out. Too many wrestlers employees have been bringing friends. Some work in wrestling, many don't. Backstage recent shows. Making for a crowded scene. It was especially bad bash at the beach because everyone wanted to be around Dennis Rodman. Well, naturally. So, okay. I was going to say, given the time frame, I wonder if this has anything to do with Joel Hackett, but then I realized two things. One, no, because the thing that really came to a head was when WCW led him backstage, like, what was it, like a few days after Spicoli died? It was something like that. And then also, just it's WCW. <laughs> they, they're they not cracking down on a Mark Doctor. 
basically acting as a drug dealer. It's WCW. Yeah, they they're mainly going after all you know these hanger ons and stuff like that. So, so I mentioned Nitro in Orlando. Saw Joe Gomez over Jeff Bradley, who worked for a cup of coffee in ECW as Dudley Dudley, and Bill Gold, real name Bill Goldberg, beat Hector Guerrero in dark matches. Gold is really green, but has good size, and people think he's got potential. He might. He just might turn out to be something. <laughs> what, and how different is his career if he does not have Berg at the end of his name? He's just Bill Gold. I, I, Bill Gold sounds like a be totally guy. different because you don't get the chant. Bill Gold. Bill Gold. <laughs> yeah, the Chan is definitely one of the big uh, high spots of his gimmick. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you don't get that. So the results for him before this are... Hold on, I just lost my... Gold. Finding page. I always thought it was weird that they did it in the boring chant cadence, though. Not Goldberg. Goldberg. Yeah, you know, I mean, Jericho even pointed it out that one time in that promo. Okay, so he wrestled his trainer, Buddy Lee Parker, on June 23rd at the Macon Coliseum Nitro taping, 24th in Dalton at... I was at that show. Saturday night, Bill Goldberg defeated Nature Boy Buddy Landell. <laughs> Chris, what can you tell us about Bill Goldberg, Bill Goldberg versus Buddy Landell? I wasn't at that show. I was at the Macon show. Oh, you were at the Macon show. Okay. I was at the Dwayne Bruce show. Okay. So, so that's probably his first, his first match. Yeah. I was wondering who the hell that guy was because I couldn't hear the ring announcer. I couldn't hear Penzer because the way the building was, it was loud and shit. So and then, who the fuck was that guy? Because when I knew Bill Goldberg, when he played for the Falcons and George Bulldogs, he had hair. Okay, so also, so HistoryWWE.com says this is Hugh Morris and not Hector Guerrero. No, he definitely wrestled Hector. I remember this at the time. Well, I remember people saying he lost to Hector, and then July 22nd, well, we'll talk about that later, but he has another match against a name I do not recognize at all, um, and then September 22nd is his next match after that, which is the uh, TV debut, beating Hugh Morris, yeah. which also so features a dark match in the form of Bruiser Mastino Mantar defeating Damian Seisaisais. Tank of the True Commission. Oh, yeah, he would have... Yeah, so he worked both promotions out here. That's something. And also, they, they were given some luchador, some tryouts on that Salt Lake show, too. So there was Dandy Tejano and whoever Aztec Warrior is over Super Astro, Oro Jr., Mickey Segura, and Pantera. Interesting mm. mix of stuff there. All right, Nitro on July 22nd, Jacksonville, Florida. There was a 7,465, Overall good, but not great show. And to be clear, this is Tuesday Nitro. Yes. Yes, because the Civil War uh, thing was airing on uh, TNT on Monday night. Yeah. Dave doesn't mention this, and so I got to pull the the torch up here. Hogan and Bischoff came out. They interrupted the announcers. The show started. And uh, Hogan was lying next to Bischoff on the mat. He accepted Les Luger's challenge. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so there you go. So th- there's that. All right, K-Dog, Conan beat Subasa. Yes. A trainee of Ultimate Guerrero, Ultimate Guerrero, Ultimate Dragon in Mexico, who is actually a transplanted Japanese. A transplanted Japanese. That's how it's worded. In 27 seconds with a tequila sunrise submission. 
of course, that's the same Subasa that would go on to work Osaka Pro, a team with Black Buffalo. Yep, people forget Kennedy. that he's a uh, that he's an Ultimate guy. Mm-hmm. Dragon system yeah. and all that, but he 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 never worked for him on Japan once, right? If he did, it wasn't but once or something, maybe even twice, yeah. Well, because he's in Osaka Pro pretty much right as Torimon Japan is launching. I don't see any Torimon Japan results for him, just Torimon Mexico, CMLL, and uh, this result, which is also his only WCW match. Well, yeah. Yeah, People used to say, oh, they flew him in from Japan. No, he's in Mexico at the time, but still. They flew him to and from Mexico City for this, and then never used him again. Ultimate Dragon won a TV title from Steven Regal by tap out with a Dragon Sleeper in 323. Crowd went nuts for Dragon's offense. F with surprise title switch. It was good, but it wasn't that time to develop a match these two should be doing. Let me cue up this finish because I think, Ed, you watch this. I think you'll agree. The pop for Ultima winning is like shockingly gigantic. Yeah, was he like really over at this time? Well, and Regal was over, too. But okay. if you're going based on, like, live crowd reactions, this last pushed run of his before he gets hurt, he they could have done something with him. And, of course, they don't, like we said earlier. But, all right, here's the finish of this. Chop, kick volley. And I'm referee between you guys or what? sleepers on, and Regal knows it. Yeah, I mean, that was a hot crowd. And pretty much from the second he started being booked as a babyface, crowds were into him. Well, he was a babyface offense and stuff, yeah. You know, he had been a heel for the first, you know, however, you know, eight months or whatever in WCW, but they split him off from Sonny Ono. You know, they do the little feud with Psychosis, which even gets a pay-per-view match, and people liked him. Yeah. He's someone, too, where I think his charisma is really underrated. Yes. There's a reason besides just his athleticism and his moves that this guy was earmarked to be a star the first time people saw him. Oh, yeah. All right, Dave, doesn't mention this. Gene Oakland interviewed Ric Flair. Flair said he, Arn Anderson, and Mongo, along with Chris Wall, made a decision on who the newest horseman would be. He then pointed to the stage and out walked six. Flair's reaction made it clear that Six was not supposed to be the one. <laughs> Six said, there's no new horsemen. The horsemen are dead. He said, Arn's out. Flair's already been out with shoulder injury. He only returned because he spent all of his money. Flair interrupted him and said, Six is too tough for him. He's, he's going to walk away. He began to walk away, but sucker punched Six from the side. Benoit came out, stood next to Flair. Six said they wouldn't pull that off and haul a national round. Benoit said, let's find out. So, setting up uh, what's coming up there with that. Um, All right. Real quick, just looking at Flair here, is his? Did anyone's plastic surgery give their career more longevity than Flair's facelift in September did? September ninety-seven, because he was start. He was starting to look old. Yeah, well, took out pause. Let's look at it. Yeah. 
I had it muted. I don't know why it made that little sound, but uh, I can see what you're saying. His face is showing a lot more lines than it had even like a year before. Like, yeah, I can see what you're saying. And I think also Maybe that, that, that he was dressing differently. I think hurt the yeah, presentation like he, too. The dad, the dad version of Shawn Michaels here. Right. Instead of khaki shorts, he's wearing khaki pants. <laughs> got khakis. He's got this kind of weird patterned button-up short sleeve shirt. Yeah, he's not in a suit. Yeah, there's this. This is also sweater era flair. Well, not in the summertime. It's not. No, but '97 is yeah. know, sweater Ric Flair. Actually, I think he's wearing the sweater vest in the in the Arn thing, which is summer though. But he just. He was wearing clothes that made him look older on top of everything else. So, I just remember the first time I watched I watched back from this era, after, you know, years later, after he had gotten the facelift. Like, it, it is really noticeable if you just go back to it. But it seems like it did him well, so good for him. His only other competition in that area is probably Onita, right? As far as facelifts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerry Lawler. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it brought I don't think it really enhanced their like longevity and careers though the way it did with Flair. Well, that's a very nineteen ninety seven look on the Nitro Girls here. God, and it brings me back. <laughs> still, so they're not matching clothes, Holy but there's clearly been an attempt by some of them co- to coordinate it. it they yeah. have a matching aesthetic. Yes, yes, they do. You're right, Ed. You're absolutely right. All right, so the Giant beat the Great Muda by his qualification. In 51 seconds for blowing the mist in Giant's eyes, he's about to be chokeslammed. Uh, Savage and Vincent joined in on the phone until Giant made his own comeback. Being blinded, when Luger came in for the save, Giant needed to chokeslam him, but figured it out and let him down. It was that luxurious hair. He that, said he couldn't uh, get his hand around that roided neck. Well, you know... <laughs> Having luxurious hair and roided neck is definitely one of Lex Luger's. Oh, see, you could have... Oh, fuck. Ass. No, wait, that's the wrong one. (laughs) 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 I forgot that I had that on A. I haven't been using the drops as much lately. So... I forgot forgot that A was... Ass. And Z on the keyboard is... Gallicades. Look at Great Muda's uh, headgear here. Isn't that awesome? Man, I was so excited when I saw this match punk come up, and then it was only 50 seconds, and I was so bummed out. I was the just wondering is, what the hell it could be, you know? The thing, the thing is, you see Muda here, and it's like, man, he looks so badass. And then he takes the headgear off, and he's balding. <laughs> man, with face paint. Like, oh, no. <laughs> I actually uh, wonder if he would have shaved his head sooner if there was no Muda gimmick in play, too. I gotta should. think that was holding him back a bit. He should have. Good God. If he and was fighting about way too long. I never liked the bald Muda looks, but you were never going to get the same thing after shaving his head anyway, so it's whatever. But he made it work. Oh, I would say he did. He's still wrestling. Well, I, mean, I mean bald Muda specifically, though, not Muto. Could he not wrestle, Chris? Do you think that's an option? He's <laughs> Yeah. He's been bald. <laughs> He's been bald for 20 years. More, because it was December 31st, uh, 2000. 20 years. 20 and a half years. Yeah. 
So he has been bald Mudo, yeah, several years longer than he was Mudo with hair. Yes. Because he debuted in 84. So that's, you know, 16 and a half years versus like 20 and a half years. D. Malenko pinned Mongo and Michael unfortunately threw the outside interference with Jeff Jarrett. Malenko carried it to a decent match. Afterwards, Jarrett and Deborah asked Malenko to join their team and watch their back. Malenko acted like he considered the offer, but said he wouldn't answer until he was good and ready. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't really go anywhere. Well, Larry Zabisco had an interesting line in this match. When talking about Deborah leaving Mongo, Zabisco said, Women are like elephants. They're interesting to look at, but you don't want to own one. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> the, the joke is that you expect him to say they never forget. I think. <laughs> oh, Larry. Larry loves the women. That's for sure. Eddie Guerrero pin Hector Guerrero in 345 with a frost splash. Very good for what it was, but if it was a match and telling a story post-match. Malenko came out and attacked Eddie and put him in the clover leap, but Hector saved Eddie. Then when Malenko attacked Hector, Eddie walked out on him. Yeah, that, that is good good stuff. All right, next we get J.J. Dillon, who's got their sign Raven to a contract. But Steve Richardson, he signed with WCW, and that like he negotiated a deal for Raven. Raven gave one of his interviews, nobody understands, and ripped <laughs> up his contract. The lore of the Raven. <laughs> <laughs> so we got o- 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 Oakland and Stevie had a had a uh, chemistry together. <laughs> Oakland, uh, <laughs> Oakland told him, you're soft as a grape, and Stevie says, that good or bad? <laughs> <laughs> So Raven, uh, Stevie told Raven he negotiated a deal for him, and he swung a deal where Raven gets paid almost as much as he would, and would get rental cars with a cassette deck for those long drives. <laughs> <laughs> Raven refused to go corporate. That's why he tore up his contract, and he got and Raven slapped Stevie. Stevie's so awesome. Bullet Boys cut off shirt too. Holy shit! God bless dances. Stevie Richards, the King of Swing. All right, uh, Luger beat Scott Norton by his qualification in 154 when Vincent interfered. Luger made, his own, Luger made his own save and rat Vincent after the match. Since Luger's being groomed for Hogan in a few weeks, he really should have racked Norton as well. Well, it's interesting you say beefy match when Vincent's involved, too. He's got the beef. You mean the meat rat. sauce he likes from the Olive Garden. <laughs> yes. Mortis and Raph beat La Parca and Sikosis in 433 when they used a combination powerbomb, H Crusher, double team move from all Japan on Sikosis. Sikosis blew a rope climbing spot and looked as though he killed himself, or at the very least ripped his legs and groin up. But true form, he got back up as if nothing had happened and did every spot perfectly from that point, including both Mexicans doing great dives. It was good. After the match, Parker used another one of those breakaway chairs on Mortis, but Raph cut off Parker with a boot to the face. Yes, this was a very fun match, and uh, I love the Mortis and Raph uh, stuff here, Ed. I thought I, I love the look. I love I love the way they, they wrestle together. Of course, uh, Vandenberg at ringside. I thoroughly enjoyed this act, dude. Mortis was so dope, and I never understood with like, and especially in WWE when they had nothing to do with Canyon, like they had nothing for him. Why not just let him go back to Mortis just because of that mask? You know what I mean? Well, they tried it out. And it was purple, and it looked cool as shit. And <laughs> they did nothing with it. Yeah. He was just—he was pretty much DOA, you know. He was never going to probably have a successful run in that company, like a for, lot of those different guys. For a number of reasons, most of them invalid. 
Yeah, but again, I mean, he had the WCW stench on him. It, it's just so sad because, like, with the indies over the last two years, like, couple years, like, you know, Canyon would have had, like, a huge indie run. Oh, if he had lived. Oh, absolutely. Oh, he would have been. Oh, he would have been huge in the renaissance of uh, the indies as far as making appearances, wrestling, whatever. Seminars. Oh, God. You don't think John Thorne would have had that guy in there doing stuff? Oh, come on. Easy. <laughs> Biggins would have been jumping at a chance to get him on the show. Absolutely. Oh, he did a bunch of matches as Mortis in 03. He did like at least half a dozen dark matches. So he, you know, he had the opportunity, but it just didn't work out. Oh my God. Well, this is certainly a match that happened. A dark match from a New Orleans uh, SmackDown taping, September 203. Mortis and Alter Boy Lou Cox defeated John Heidenreich and Tyson Tomko. <laughs> Yeah, that's something else. Listen, somebody in that company, find me that tape. <laughs> Mortis yeah. versus John Walters. Mortis versus an unknown. Mortis versus an unknown. Oh, and also Mortis and Shofunaki defeated two unknowns around the four-minute mark in El Paso. <laughs> well, who knows? Matt Hardy know. versus Mortis in Boston on a house show. It, it, it felt at the time like they were going to run with it. Yeah, You know, it wasn't just a one-night thing, but it just didn't happen, and then I believe it was not long after that that he got cut. All right, another thing not mentioned in Dave's uh, notes is that uh, Shivani asked that Holland Nash accepted the challenge of Flair and Benoit. They went backstage to Flair to like Kern Henning. He didn't appreciate being stood up on live TV, revealing that Henning was supposed to be the new horseman. So there you go. Interesting. Uh, so next, we get Buff Bagwell beating Booker T in 542 with a blockbuster. At their outside interference from Norton, and what was the best match on either big show? How about that, both of these guys are underrated. Really underrated, probably because both are in tag teams of partners who aren't that good. Oof. Aw, that's not nice to uh, Scott Norton. Norton. Uh, they did an angle where Ray, Ray came out on crutches, and Conan came out. This is, I guess, what we're talking about here, uh, from what earlier, uh, and it kicked away both crutches as Conan went after him. Parkas, the coast of Buffyanos, backed him up. Early in the show, they set the stage for this by saying how Conan got all the Mexicans into WCW, but they don't know how to react to him because of what he did to Ray and him joining the NWO. Today, he pointed out that some of the guys who backed him up are usually his rivals. At one point, Conan uh, said to Ray, shouldn't you be at summer school playing in the sand? <laughs> so... Um, what title did Conan have here? Because the announcers would talk about how, like, now the NWO has the Mexican heavyweight title. I don't when think he even had a title? belt anymore, but they, I guess they were still billing Conan as the Mexican heavyweight champion. Would it be the IWC belt, though? Mm, I think the physical belt they used when Conan first came in was the IWAS belt. Okay. Because, like, you know, like, the, fo- the photo of Conan and Hogan is with the belts has... Conan with the IWAS belt. Yeah. Yeah, so John Arezzi's belt was used for that, just to make it weirder. Kurt and Michael Wall Street in 48 seconds with the Fisherman Suplex. Perfectplex. Too short to get a read on Henning. After the match, Page attacked Henning, and as Henning went for his finisher, Page turned into a diamond cutter and left him laying. Under normal circumstances, Dave said this was stupid, because what's the point of seeing a revenge match on pay-per-view when the face has already left the heel laying? 
But Dave's feelings, Paige is going to put it hitting over big time on the pay per view by having Paige reverse diamond cutter into a pinning combination or hitting doing that. Yeah, I mean, wrestling logic would say don't don't do that, but if if hitting's going over the pay per view, then yeah. Also, but still, you know, they just botched Hennig so badly. Oh God! You look at how everything you look at how everything played out. Why didn't they? I'm assuming they didn't have it all planned yet. But why not just hold off on debuting him until he's introduced as the new horseman? Yeah, it's, yeah, it just it's, it's WCW. Well, also he makes the first appearance the Nitro before Bass at the Beach, where he's the mystery partner. It's so stupid. Yes. The Papa rating. I mean, they tried Papa rating. That's all it was about. But they were already popping the rating based on the fact I that there was a surprise, that. and they <laughs> and they had that. like a zillion different people teased as a surprise. I know. All right. So Hall and Nash attend the tag titles, beating Flair and Benoit on eight twenty one. When Nash pinned Benoit after a boot to the face, good match as well. Six interferes like a Flair and wound up putting him in the bus killer after Flair had his shoulder run to the post while the camera was in the ring. Mongo made the save. Earlier in the show, Flair was going to announce the full force of that six before came out, blah, blah, blah. So Dave mentions it there. Then it mentions the backstage deal. Uh, Flair and Henning are teaming up the clash, but the eventual idea is to wind up with the Malenko as a full horseman. Well, it okay. takes a year. Okay. Um, I don't think there's more than one Outsiders Flair Benoit match, right? I think it's, this is the only one. This is the one. It's really good. Yeah. And, 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 and... I, I wish Flair and Benoit would have teamed up more. You know, they, they didn't team up as a regular straight tag team much at all. Sad. Honestly, from this match, they look like a much better team than Benoit and Arnmore. Yeah, I think it works together better dy- dynamically. I think part of the problem is that character-wise, it's more so in the ring than on promos, Arn and Benoit are kind of the same guy at that time. In so a way, yes. having the personality counterbalance probably helped a lot. Plus, they both throw the chops, so you got the one similarity, and it's it's a really good match. I love the spot where Nash goes for the jackknife on Benoit, and Benoit just starts hauling off and punching him over and over until he falls over. Yeah, this this is one of the better outsiders matches. Wade noted that it was a good show in a sense that it didn't hotshot angles, yet it felt way short in terms of intensity compared to Raw. Oh, I'll say. Hogan Luger's hype, which should have dominated the show, was weak. Yeah. All they had was that one little deal at the beginning of the show. And that was it. So when is Nitro Plus? What, the next week? Or the week after that? Well, it's the title change, isn't it? So it's the Monday before Road Wild, right? So that would be the 28th. Of July? Yeah, because Royal Wild was usually the first Saturday of August. Well, no, it was August 9th, so... Okay, oh, so it's on my birthday. Weeks. It was on my birthday, 18th birthday. Yes, okay, so probably... No, it was definitely the Monday before. So it's... So the 4th. The 4th. Yes. yes. Alright, so two weeks later. Alright, ratings for Nitro on Tuesday were a 3.84 rating. 3.63 first hour, 4.05 second hour, and a 6.69 share. The ratings were shockingly high. And very significant, and that it showed that it wasn't just the viewer patterns being used to watch wrestling on Mondays that draws for Nitro, but that fans will seek it out and find it. Just because they don't have the same look and running Raws on Thursdays or Fridays earlier this year when Monday was preempted, 
It also shows TBS did the idea of doing a primetime live show on a night besides Monday without WWE competition could do even better ratings than Nitro. TBS is after a show, likely now on Wednesday. And WWE realized the company's doing well with the current situation, and a major change would risk both morale and threaten to overexpose the product and overwork the bookers and the angles, so they're trying to find a way to avoid doing it. Foreshadowing like a motherfucker here. Eric <laughs> Bischoff, I mean, he's been consistent in saying he never wanted that show, and you see it right here. And and you want to talk about, you know, one of the major things that killed WCW? Thunder. Yep. Even though we love Thunder for what it was, but it, it was just a brutal, well, brutal. Well, also, we don't think about it this way, but probably also Thunder and Three Hour Nitros starting so close together. Yes. Absolutely. Because they go, they go full-time three hours, what, like late winter, early spring? Something like that? Mm-hmm. So, just not good. And also, also, it's a very WCW thing that they had a Thunder set that got thrown out after, what, like three weeks? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ed, what do you think about that? The the, the, the rating basically staying the same, even though they're on a different night. What do you what, what do you think was, was the reason? You think it was the fact that people knew, knew it and they were just going to seek it out no matter what? I think so. They probably did a good job of promoting it, right? Letting everybody know that Nitro is going to be on Tuesday the next week. Yeah, or... they definitely mentioned it. Honestly, it probably helped, too, that the Civil War thing was so highly promoted. Yeah. That there's more, you're also having more awareness that there's not a Nitro on Monday. Than True. Usual. True. So probably a little bit of all that. And I also wonder if in a weird way the the WWF Summer Flashback might have caused more people that don't normally watch Nitro to seek it out anyway. Yeah, possible. Well, it's that and when a product's hot, people are going to want to watch it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, also, the, well, the thing we've learned recently is fans will look for it, but if it's in a dead-end time slot, that's a problem. We saw that with the AEW stuff. When they moved well, to Tuesdays uh, or Thursdays, well, NXT too, when they were moving around. When they moved to Tuesday or Thursday or whatever, and sometimes Friday, if they were in prime time, they were fine. But doing like Saturday at 10 and stuff like that just wasn't. Well, it doesn't help. Or Friday at 10, excuse me. It doesn't help when your network television partner doesn't advertise you. On During the, the preempting programming, so yeah. Programming. Uh, yeah, they... <clears throat> they had never advertised AEW during the NBA playoffs. It was very strange. Maybe maybe once or twice. Oh man, really? Because despite as far as, what, like as far as commercials, yes. As, and I watched all the I watched all the TNT playoff games. No spots, uh, but they might have had plugs. You mean they had they had the crawl, uh, the Friday before the Saturday show. That they, they had a crawl on the bottom of the screen, but they never had any commercials, like true commercials at all. Basically, like I said, and if they did, it was like maybe like a the, like a local type spot, like Dread TV or something like that, quite a spot. Mm. But yeah, they and they did air one. The one I did remember seeing personally was they aired one, and it was like between eleven thirty and midnight after the game was over with during the post show. That's crazy. I just assumed that they would uh, run commercials during it. I mean, well, I feel like they did last Wednesday. year. Well, wait, there were no playoffs. What am I talking about? 
Yeah, it, well, yeah, there were. There were. There were no playoffs in May. I mean, but no, 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 no. <laughs> but especially on Wednesday, you know, the night that it's supposed to be on, you would think that they would right. be having ads on there, say, directing people when to watch AEW because I'm sure there were fans of AEW that don't watch NBA and they got turn tune in to see where where the, where the wrestling's at and. It ain't there. It was very strange, given how good the relationship seems to be between the two sides. It was very peculiar that there were that they weren't pushing AEW more heavily during those Wednesday night games. Yeah. If I'm them, what I what I would aim for is to try to maybe get on. Well, maybe not because it's the same audience. Like, part of me wonders if they should do like live on like a true TV or whatever. And then do a replay on TNT on whatever other night when that happens. They're not going to do that. No, they're probably not. All right. At a meeting with the wrestlers during the week, Eric Bischoff specifically said he doesn't want any bad words, vulgar, or distasteful gestures on TV shows. There were complaints from the higher-ups about those things. Among the new words banned for use on television is hosebag. Bischoff told the wrestlers to leave the dirty words and vulgar gestures to Vincent Mann. Goddamn, pal. What are you talking about? (laughs) <laughs> well, this is standards and practices. Well, not necessarily. The big issues with standard and practices start after start the following year. I don't know if this is necessarily standards and practices. The big crackdown is in '98. Well, I know that, but still, it's got to uh, be coming from that department type of department. Well, yeah, I don't know. It it could be, but I don't even remember who used hosebag. Uh, I don't know. I can't tell you who either. Yeah, and then there was, you know, there were so many wrestlers that would do things to try to get around it. You know, Conan talking about tossing his salad and peeling his potatoes. Like, it, it didn't really make much of a difference in the long run. But the long thing run. is, Ed, is that the, that the stuff that they're avoiding and can't do is the stuff that's helped propel WWF into uh, winning the war. Yeah, and it also gave them an excuse later to explain why they were losing the war. It was because they couldn't do stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. It's the virtual certainty that Harlem Heat will be repackaged with Jacqueline as their manager as Sensational Sherry has been let go. The angle where Harlem Heat fired her was a shoot, and as far as that, it was her final appearance. Uh, <laughs> they, they shouldn't have given them a new manager. Or they should have tried to go in a different direction if they did, because it's WCW, so it's not surprising. This just smacked of, well, they're all black. <laughs> and they need a female manager. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's better than Robert Parker. <laughs> yeah. and He's gone, too. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's he right. Was, he was let go, too. No, I believe I believe I've heard they got along very well with Jackie, so maybe that was part of it too. But if you're getting rid of Sherry, especially since it's Sherry Martell, you know, not that she did the best work of her career with Harlem Heat or anything, but well, it's a it's a female manager that works. It's a worker, so yeah, know. I guess. And they also had other stuff they wanted to do with Jackie. Without Sullivan, so I, I, I get, I get it in that sense, but eh, it just, it just, it didn't really click the way it, you'd want it to, and yeah, it also just felt like a reminder of Sherry to have 
to, to replace her with Jackie. Like that's so quick. Yeah. Yeah, and also it's, it's just a shame too that Sherry was not able to get her shit together with her drug problem and stuff. Yeah. Well, more on the releases. Gino came on the hotline said he thought he he thought but could confirm that Ming and Barbarian is being let go. What in the world? Not that Oakland has any credibility, but the two were at Nitro on the 14th and were scheduled to a run-in attack at Benoit to the Mike Enos match, but it was changed last minute. And the Observer wasn't clear as to why. Takes Squire David Taylor off the list as well, as he's going to get a renewed push into an underneath program against Earl, well, the former Earl Robert Eaton, Bobby Eaton. They shot some videos of Taylor recently. Is this the start of fox hunting outfit, Dave Taylor? Yes, yes it is. Okay. Most of the crew was in Orlando this week for worldwide tapings at Universal Studios. They didn't know Angles the entire week, but had more big names in town working TV matches, including Henning, who was said to look sluggish, Flair, Nash, Hall, Giant, Luger, Savage, Muda, Chono, and basically everyone not named Hogan or Piper. Among those who debuted were El Dandy from Mexico, Norman Smiley, Texas Hangman, Laundry's Jobbers, while Lenny Lane and Greg Valentine were at the tapings. Bobby Eaton and Joey Maz worked as a tag team. Ultimo Dragon brought in four of his students from Mexico to work as jobbers for the Mexicans, one of whom was Supasa. And they were said to look been all pretty green. This week will mainly be tapings for the pro show. Does Supasa have a worldwide match? I didn't see anything on Cage Match. There's so many matches that people lose track of the air on different shows. On main event has the main event exclusives and stuff like that. So Right. So this this is probably Subasa and Crazy Max, I would think. This early? Well, who would the four... Because... Okay, okay, so who worked at BCW at all? Tsubasa, Shima, Suwa, Fuji, Magnum Tokyo, Dragon Kid. I think that's it, right? Yeah. So... I mean, it could be. I mean, it could be Shima. I forget if any started before... Besides the Tsubasa thing, I forget if any started before the others, though. Well, Shima, was May, Shima was May 11th, 1997. Oh, was that early? Yeah. Oh, for his pro debut or for his WCW debut? His pro debut. Oh, okay. So it could have been him. Uh, Magnum, he was May 11th as well. I think those guys all debuted on the same day. I think they did. Well, he he, he wrestled uh, Shima in their debut match. Okay. So... Those two most definitely probably were, were, were part of that. Cage match so. at least has no Shima results in WCW until the, excuse me, April 6th, 98 Nitro. Sua also debuted on May 11, 1997. So. Well, also, I forgot, at least initially, I forget when Fuji comes in, it was Sua, Shima, and Magnum teaming as a trio in WCW. It wasn't yes. Crazy Max, per se. Yeah. No, 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 no. Because Madness splits off and gets with Alice Wright and Tiska. Yes, as the Dancing Fools or whatever. The Dancing Dodos, as Tony would call them, which eventually led, of course, to people on RSPW calling them the Dancing Dildos. <laughs> Overall, morale was really high at the Orlando tapings. Terry Taylor had all the matches planned ahead of time, so wrestlers would show up in the morning and know who they were working with and when. Under the old system, they would show up and had to stay all day and sometimes not even work because TV schedule was being done as the day went on. Terry Taylor's structured fix. He's got things under control. 
you mean the man that Bret Hart once called the biggest ass kisser in the wrestling business? <laughs> As we were all reminded of on Twitter today. Hey, he's still going. He's still employed, isn't he? Yes, by kissing Triple H's ass. Well, hey, you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes. I mean, that's some Heyman type shit when you think of it. It's like, ha ah, Paul, you're, su- you're such a brilliant young wrestling mind. <laughs> all those Pauls have to sit together, don't they? <laughs> Paul what? Taylor, Paul Heyman, Paul LeVette. Yes, so. So. There's probably more we're forgetting. <laughs> There are reports that Henning's matches at the Universal were so bad they couldn't even air them. But actually, the matches were never taped. Henning was working to get the ring rust out, and there were no plans for his matches to be on TV to begin with. There are several different ideas on what to do eventually with him, and it goes back and forth. He may be a horseman, but the original plans were that not to happen. Again, they're so lost with this guy. It also didn't help that he pretty much always looked like he was just there for a paycheck. (laughs) Pretty much until the West Texas Rednecks. That's the only time he looks like he's actually enjoying himself. Yeah, because he's doing the gimmick that he that he was into. Yeah, and that was him. Well, yes, and during the West Texas Rednecks run, he was also not repeatedly drunk on TV like he was before. No, which is weird because that's the gimmick that he probably could have got away with it. And probably <laughs> having him him and Rude together all the time probably didn't help either of them. So there's that. Oh, as far as uh, quote unquote partying, yes. But that's probably uh, true. All right, uh, Torch for a little bit here. Uh, well, at least this one. It still appears Arn Anderson's in ring days are over. He's up at Terry Taylor backstage. Source say Taylor will not lose any power when Kevin Sullivan returns to WCW full time. In fact, Sullivan will probably be working underneath Taylor. Although, if you seem to know what Sullivan's duties will actually be, Sullivan used to browbeat Taylor backstage when Taylor worked underneath him. Although, there isn't a sense Taylor holds a grudge. That can't help Sullivan's future in WCW. Oh, gee, I wonder who workshopped that last sentence with Wade. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I don't see a scenario where that last sentence is in there if Wade is not talking to Terry Taylor about this. <laughs> yes, he, he, there's no idea if he holds a grudge or not. But it can't help. <laughs> oh, Paul Taylor. What's his middle name, Bix? Worthen, isn't it? Paul Worthen Taylor. There you go. Uh, the reason the pro show on July 20th drew a shocking 2.6 rating, about double the average, is because NASCAR's uh, Pennsylvania 500 race that served as a lenient drew a 4.7 rating <laughs> and a 13 share. It's operated <laughs> show on cable for the week. So it had nothing to do with the angle building of that specific show. Holy shit. What time shit. of day was pro on at the time? That was Sunday afternoon. That was the main old main event slot. Oh, right, because main event moved to Saturday morning. Exactly. This is NASCAR was doing big time ratings in these days, and uh, this because this is uh, this is when Jeff is uh, starting to become a big deal in NASCAR. Jeff Gordon, and uh, yeah, NASCAR was hot, and TBS had races, and yeah, that's crazy. Four point seven rating, thirteen share. My God. And then NASCAR only got hotter after this too. Yeah, it did. It's what. It, I mean, it's starting to become more of a national thing instead of a southern thing. Yeah. With, with JF in charge uh, and being the main guy. But uh, although Dale Sr. is still riding high as well. But then you got that whole dynamic. But uh, yeah, that's, that's a hell of a damn rating. My God. All right. Entertainment Tonight. According to the tour, trying to feature with backstage interviews with Hogan and Rahman from Bash to the Beach on their July 19th program. 
extra. Rent interview with Robin the night of the event. Entertainment Weekly's feature on the 19th, maybe the only explanation for the Sunday Pro Show doing uh, Entertainment Tonight at EW. That's what it says here. Maybe the only explanation for Sunday Pro doing a season high 2.6. No, Wade. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's NASCAR. It's, it's the people that was getting off NASCAR that some of them stayed on. Yes. Even though their fan base, like I said last week, those fan bases don't necessarily always cross pollinate, but there you go. All right, so David Taylor again. On the July 19th Saturday Night Show, David Taylor appears to start a new push using a double R suplex into a front cradle as his finisher. What's a front cradle? Well, tell everybody what this is. I don't know what this is. You don't remember? He said the little finisher he was doing. It's the double arm and he cradles him up. Oh, he like rolls over with them holding the arms, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name of it. Lenny Lane looked a little green, but very athletic and promising in his belt with six. Unto Guerrero became the first wrestler in the United States to do the move known in Japan as the reverse Franken-Toyota, which is a reverse version of a Frankenstein off the top rope. Okay, first of all, I highly highly doubt that people in Japan were calling it the reverse (laughs) Franken-Toyota. But Poison Rana. Um, Had she been doing the Poison Rana yet? Because she had also done, like, the... The like avalanche prawn hold thing too before that, yeah, which some people the- would call a reverse Franken whatever, but it was not. Well, at least it wasn't a Japanese rolling crotch hold. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, Saturday night on the twenty sixth and August second, we're taped on July fifteenth in Fort Myers, Florida, before three thousand six twenty three paying fit two thousand eight ninety. A lot of details, but do know that Conan broke the leg, quote unquote, of Jerry Lynn, who was making his last appearance. Well, wait, wait, wait. Did he break the leg of Jerry Lynn or Mr. JL? <laughs> it says Jerry Lynn. Who was making his last appearance? Because yeah. I think he only wrestled a couple times with Jerry Lynn in WCW, so this is probably Mr. JL, because I think this is around the end of his run anyway. They did a match with the Outsiders against Public Enemy, but it was the Steiners who showed up in Public Enemy outfits carrying a table. I need to see that, this. That was cute. Uh, Eddie Guerrero beat Hector Guerrero with a frog splash, and they started to set up the giant savage match for a rogue while. WCW meeting sometime this week with George Steinbrenner with the idea of doing a nitro table from Yankee Stadium. This was talked about a lot in this era, and Ed, if it they would have done that, that would have been cool as shit. Yeah, isn't uh, Steinbrenner like a giant wrestling fan? He was tight with, with pe- the with- people, the Tampa folks, yeah. Yeah, like Dusty, right? Well, he was, yeah, and Hogan, and he was tight with Heenan, and yeah, I mean, he was, he had a lot of friends in the business. I mean, they had that show every year, the charity show. He was always in the front row at those shows, so, yeah. He was very friendly to wrestling, absolutely. And not to anybody else, just wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) And also, with a baseball stadium, you can really scale it however you want and still look good. Have it look good. Like you could push everyone onto oh, one side like of the Yankee stadium. stadium yeah. In fact, Yankee Stadium would have looked awesome for wrestling. Yes. So. The and I know. One. And by the way, I know they're saying, and I believe them that they're doing it to be different anyway. It. I'm, and I know it's a different type of stadium, but I'm just the it being different is why I'm really looking forward to the whole. Uh, I almost said Impact AEW Arthur Ashe Stadium thing. Well, it's a different dynamic. So. Yes. And. A tennis stadium is probably perfect for wrestling, too, sideline-wise. It depends on how... I mean, well, I'm just curious to see how they're going to shoot it. So, we'll Well, because the, flo- the floor is unusually going to be unusually small for a wrestling show. That's that's the one thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, Danny Viano 5 has signed contracts with WCW, so there's that. 
They're still going to give him a major push to high voltage. Well, they can get some wins. Steiners are scheduled to win the tag titles, but now more than ever, if nothing happens until it happens. Hogan's currently working on a movie in Montreal through early August, which is why he's not on TV all the time. WCW recently paid $100,000 to instead of Jimi Hendrix for Hogan and Dennis Rodman to use Voodoo Child as a ring interest music for the next 12 months. Honestly? And maybe the stuff was cheaper 24 years ago before all the DVD boom and stuff, I'm sure, would have affected that kind of thing. That seems like a pretty good deal, though. Even yeah. if you double it or whatever with inflation, when you consider how much they hammered that song home, that that's pretty reasonable, I think. Yeah. In the grand scheme because- of things. I mean, that song became notorious for, for Hogan. Absolutely. Like, anytime I hear this song, I think about Hulk Hogan. So, yes. Yeah. And also, without it, we wouldn't have got the wonderful moment where Mike Tanay confused Voodoo, Voodoo Child with the song from the v- same album, Voodoo Child, C-H-I-L-E, which Tanay did not know was pronounced Voodoo Child and called it Voodoo Chili. <laughs> <laughs> After the country chili, yes. Well, I guess Chile then. Voodoo Chile. Chile. Voodoo Chile. But I think he said Voodoo Chile. I don't think he said Voodoo Chile. Yes, there's two different versions. There's the uh, version that Hogan had and the other version. Well, there was a, no, was... it's two different songs. Voodoo Child Slight Return is the song he is. Yes. All right, and let's go back to the Icon Magazine article we talked about in WF. To close out WCW. Kevin Nash in the Icon article said, It's the difference of working for a wrestling company. WF and a television company produces wrestling, WCW. I don't think anybody can outproduce Vincent Mann. Nobody's going to outwork Vincent Mann. And that's what he said. Randy Savage said he had guts. You know, it wasn't more guts than brains. And he saw a change coming. He rolled the dice. And he was right on target. He was on a roll, just like being on a roll in Las Vegas. Everybody thought he was going to go bust, and they were wrong. He kept gathering the chips. And then Eric Bischoff. He knows that he's getting his ass kicked. There's only one way he's going to rally the rest of his audience behind him, and that's to be an underdog. I have jokingly say disparaging things about WF because controversy creates interest in cash. But in reality, Vincent Mann is living off the fat of the success that was created for him by others 10 years ago. One of the delusions that Vince tries to perpetrate is that we all take all their, that we take all their stars. Vincent Mann is probably one of the slickest con artists in the world. In fact, he's one of the most dangerous types of con artists because he believes his own bullshit. Paul Kogan made less money here in his first two years at WCW than he did in the last two years in WF. That's a fact. You're dealing with a guy who has an ego the size of Mount Everest and actually believes this stuff. It's pretty strange. Okay, where do we even start? Okay, because it's fresh in my mind. The Hogan stuff. I know Hogan was one of the first people to have any kind of real guaranteed contract. But do either of you believe at all that he made more money barely working WWF in 92 and 93 than he did in WCW 94 and 95? No. That sounds impossible. There's no chance. No chance in hell. Honestly, that sounds like Bischoff not realizing that Hogan barely worked those years. (laughs) And not realizing that he's... uh, made a put together a very transparent lie there that said how much is he really wrong about in the rest of that quote it's got a lot of valid points there 
And I think one of the best ones, and I'm curious if the thing I'm about to mention ch played into this, the thing about one of the most dangerous types of car and artist because he believes his own bullshit. What's one of the things that Meltzer has talked about is that Vince at times would say things to him that suggested he genuinely believed all of his rhetoric about Ted Turner trying to put him out of business and stuff. The really egregious one, I guess, is in 92, as the Ring Boy abuse scandal and all that is breaking, Vince and Dave Meltzer are on the phone, and according to Dave, Vince made Dave promise him, all with Dave saying, that's not going to happen, but sure, made Dave promise him that when it came out that Ted Turner was paying all these people to lie about him and his company, Dave would properly report on it. <laughs> that uh, that last section just sounds like Eric talking about himself, too. Yeah. And that there's probably some projection there. And also... Con artist stuff when, if you believe, I guess Greg Gagne is the one that's given in, in the most detail, right? But a lot of people have said, J.G. Dillon has said stuff like this too. Story goes that Bischoff got XAWA people, I believe the names Greg Gagne mentioned when, in the kayfabe commentary shoot were uh, Mike Shields and Polish Joe Shupik. Who re really, I should probably ask about this since I'm Facebook friends with both of them. But the claim was that he got them to write letters that were kind of creative and boosting his resume with the suggestion that he'd maybe help them get jobs and didn't. I don't know how much there is to that specifically, but I've always gotten the impression there's at least some, some, something to the smoke, right? Yeah. Possible. If, if just because he ends up having good ideas and stuff, but Bischoff was not a remotely obvious choice for either the executive producer job or then the EVP job a year later. Yeah. It's, he did not have the management or producer experience that they needed, which is probably also why the alleged story has him going to TV people. Because he didn't need as much help when he got the job running the whole company. But who better to help him be executive producer than two former AWA TV producers? Mm-hmm. So, okay, anything else here as far as what Eric said? Are we talking about delusions, con men, ego, believes his own shit. Gee, that doesn't describe Eric. Um, living off the fad of the success that was created him by others 10 years ago. I uh, I don't know. I think there's truth, some truth to that, but again, it also it doesn't reflect great on Bischoff either. Now Nash and Savage, both of them sure sound like they're playing the game, don't they? Well, yeah. Nash sounds like he knows his contract is going to be up in a year. <laughs> yeah, well, two two years, right? Because it's a three year contract. Well, they definitely they definitely know how to handle their business. Yeah. Yeah, the Savage thing is interesting, too, because whatever you do or don't believe about why he never went back, I don't think he'd be angling for a future return if he had had inappropriate relations with Vince's daughter. 
<laughs> Which, to be clear, my point in mentioning that is that I feel like the fact that he's acting like this is another reason to think that's not true. Yeah. Because remember, everyone, Vince constantly tried to get Savage back until about 2003. Well, we all know how Vince felt about Savage. So, yeah. Was one of, that was like his one of his real friends. Yep, because Sa- Savage had gotten a house in Connecticut, and I mean, he had previously, but he was spending more time there in that era because he was working with TV and in production meetings and all that, you know, and doing so much charitable stuff for them. Yeah. So, what the hell is Icon Magazine, though? Just before I, before we finish just, up, I want to close. It was that just a ran, random magazine. It was around the time. Yeah. Um, the one that's on Wikipedia is an architecture magazine. I don't think it mentions the other one. It just, I mean, there were other, it was just a random ass magazine. But anyway, that's it for this week. Ed, it's plug time, my man. So, <gasps> yes. plug Pod Van Dam. Anything else you want to get out there? All right. Yeah. Pod Van Dam. Uh, new episodes come out every Wednesday now. Um, we cover wrestling Twitter. We have a guest on and we talk to them. Um, then I'm on an episode of Super Fantastic talking about the horror movie Sleepaway Camp. And that should be out uh, a couple days before this comes out. Ooh, I need to listen to that then. Yeah, yeah. I only like like two horror movies in the entire world. And it's Sleepaway Camp and Night of the Creeps. And I'm really happy that I got to talk about one of them. I'm sure that you're going to... Uh... Talk talk glowingly about the ending of that film. Oh yeah, we we talk. I don't want to. I don't want to give it away. We talk about the ending. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember the first time I saw that, and uh, yeah, I was like, "What?" Yeah, it, oh, exactly. <laughs> when my sister showed me that movie for the first time, I enjoyed it, but then the ending is just like, "What?" <laughs> Excuse me. So yeah, yeah if you shot. if you want to hear. Yeah, if you want to hear about what the ending is, check out Super Fantastic. Yes. I I, I got to know, and I won't spoil it, I got to know what the casting call was like for the oh. person who was used in that closing scene. We'll talk more off the air. They, yeah, yeah, no, they, yeah, they talk, we talk about it, yeah. Okay. But, okay, so that's on Super Fantastic as well. And yeah. Pod Van Dam, uh, this week, you're going to have uh, our mutual friend Colin Delaney on, right? Yeah. Well, the extremely cute wrestler Colin Delaney's on, and we're going to talk about cereal. And well, I get them, I finally get somebody on the show to bury somebody, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, I don't want to give away who it is, but it is an ECW legend. That Does it rhyme with Dommy Dreamer? It, it doesn't. It rhymes with Mal. It's Al Snow. Fucking okay. Al Snow. It's. <laughs> oh, I am shocked that someone who was in WWE in that era doesn't like Al Snow. <laughs> yeah exactly well anything else Ed Twitter anything you want to put oh up? yeah follow me at Pod Van Ed. that's my personal Twitter and you can follow the show at Pod Van Dam yes. alright alright next week on Between the Sheets is our 6th anniversary show oh. six, full year, 6 full years of Between the Sheets and, and... I haven't done a note yet <laughs> that said because I did go over this a little bit when uh, Jace Nakarado made it a Patreon pick. This is a very, I would say, apropos week to be an anniversary show for Between the Sheets because, among other things, it includes the death of former pro wrestler George Arena, who had wrestled as a, a fake gorgeous George 
for Jack Pfeffer and others, and who was then widely reported when he died as being the original Gorgeous George passing away, in spite of that having actually happened 30 years earlier. And there's a lot that happens from there. So the, that and other news, very newslettery stuff. Um, I mean, I wasn't even really going to put that in the notes, but oh well. <laughs> that's one of the things that he actually, I think, wanted us to cover. So, well, it's good you didn't do the notes then, and I mentioned this. Because I don't like to do deaths of wrestlers. Well, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do the bio. You just have to do the media story. I don't even know if that's, well, our week is 10 days. Another 10 day show. So. I'll double check, but I'm pretty sure it's in our week. Because, uh, yeah, it's July the 18th through the 27th. And really, I mean, just looking, I've looked at this stuff. I haven't put the notes together yet. I mean, WCW is pretty much nothing <laughs> this week. Like, like the, the August 3rd Observer has no WCW section at all. None. Zero. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's extremely rare. None. No WCW section. Um, but what does take place during our week that I've seen is a uh, AAA uh, crew in Los Angeles again for the big shows uh, at the Hollywood Palladium, Watsonville, and stuff like that. So we'll have that. We got the uh, we got all kinds of stuff in Memphis going on. We got such Japanese results to talk about and all the stuff in Japan. And uh, really, the main thing on our show that's going to be talked about. Another magazine interview with Vincent Mann. Oh, <laughs> which one? With Vince, with Vince McMahon. The article on Vince McMahon, not the interview. The article. Oh, you mean, oh, not, oh, oh, so the Jeff Savage article. Jeff Savage article. Oh, okay, yes, yes, I did realize that's in there. So that that we will need to talk about a bit because there is a lot there, yes. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of things to talk about there. Yeah, for those and, who don't know, it's basically an uh, updated, amended, expanded version of the article that set off Titan Gate earlier in the year. And look, and Dave does have a note on the gorgeous George thing in the Observer, but it's only a one paragraph thing. So there's well, that. See, there, so. It's, it's an interesting story either way, though. But there, I'm trying to go through my emails and my messages with Jace because I know we talked about some of the stuff that week, but I can't find it. Yeah, I hope he wasn't looking for anything WCW related for that week. I don't believe he was. <laughs> But anyway, there you go. So next week on Between the Sheets, it's whatever. So there it is. Oh, oh, end of WBF Magazine too, right? That's talked about, yeah. But the promotions, Dave only has a minor blurb about that. So it's really about, um, it's it's in the in-between stage because guys quit WBF before a week. And then the the end of WBF is after our week. Because the TV show with the tug of war is in August. So they're still doing TV in August. So yeah, we're in that we're in that middle stage. Mm-hmm. So but the magazine thing is during our week. But anyway, Ed, thanks uh, for being on the show, my man. And uh, we'll definitely get you back on in the future. Well, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you, and thank all you listeners for uh Requesting it be on the show. But and not Joe Sposto. <laughs> thank you, Dana Donnelly, for inspiring me. Oh, no. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Vix, thanks as always to you to rock the show. And this is Chris, and so long from the Peach State of Georgia.